Hi, I'm Catherine McNamara from Shadowhunters, Arrow, and Untitled Horror Movie, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that is not subscribed to Twitter Blue. I know that's a really old reference, but it's the only one I can think of, and here we are. It is the end of the month of May, and we are here to discuss all the news, trailers, and tidbits we got throughout the month of May. There's a lot, there's a lot to get through. Joining me to take on the bulk of this, we have Andrew. Hello. Hello there. I was thinking about making some kind of joke about gathering nuts, but it was actually an even older reference that even fewer people would probably understand. Yeah. Twitter blue. That's a thing. People have just kind of accepted it now, haven't they? It's one of those things where people kick off about it for a long period of time and then it just settles down. People can't be annoyed about things for very long anymore. Well, that's the problem. There's too many things to be annoyed about. Yeah. And there's only so much vitriol to go around. Pretty much. I can only be so angry so much of the time. The Twitter stuff never angered me. When I heard that Elon Musk was running it into the ground, my reaction was, good, let it die. Yeah, it is an actual hellscape that really should not have existed, or at the very least, never got to the state where it currently exists, which is pretty much half people posting generic hot takes on Hollywood blockbusters and half a Nazi message board. Yeah. That about sums it up. Anyway, we're going to be here to talk about some of those massive blockbusters. There'll be no Nazi message boarding here, though. At least we hope not. We'll see how the recording goes. Anything could happen. But let's start with what we've been consuming over the past while. We are content consumers. That's what we are to these people. So what has been in front of your eyes as of late? Well, to avoid going off on one of my massive litanies of viewing, I've picked up a few highlights of things. First off is the final few episodes of The Owl House, which is a very, very fun animated series from Disney uh, about this teenage girl who ended up in this fantastical alternate reality with magic and monsters and whatnot, and she's able to live out her dream of learning to become a witch. It's it's a a really, really good series with lots of fantastic characters in it, though the third and final season of it was actually only three episodes There were longer than normal episodes, but still only three of them, because they originally renewed for a full episode run, but Disney decided to go back on that. The official reason being something like the series doesn't mesh with the creative direction of the company going forwards, or some other generic corporate nonsense. What does that even mean? Well, basically, what is generally being accepted as, as meaning is, yeah, the show is far, far too gay. Ah, okay. Because it is very gay, and all the more great for it. If only it's familiar at all with shows like Gravity Falls, then it's one of them they would really enjoy. And another animated series, but a far more adult one, is Digman, wherein Andy Samberg voices a jaded parody of Indiana Jones, who talks like Nicolas Cage in National Treasure, <laughs> in this bizarre world where archaeologists are massive celebrities. Uh, he's utterly washed up, and now seen as a joke, as it was about him attempting to reclaim his former glory, and also find the Holy Grail. As you do. Of course, those three priorities, get those in order. And last on this animated Disney stuff is a relatively recent reboot of DuckTales that I've been meaning to get around to for years. 
Is that the David Tennant one? Yes. Which, incidentally, is, I think, the only voice role in an animated series I can think of that he's ever done where his character wasn't a villain. Unless you count the fact that Scrooge McDuck is a very rich man, or a very rich duck, and therefore top of the capitalist chain, and therefore a villain. I was thinking of that interpretation, certainly. <laughs> but seeing as a character is generally intended to be well-meaning and benevolent, though with variably effective results, I wouldn't think of him as a genuine villain. No. Just likes to keep his big hoard of coins that you can dive into instead of donating them to charity or using them to help society in any way. Exactly. Another very good series was called Lockwood & Co, which is set in a also in Britain, where around the 1950s there was just some mass appearance of ghosts that completely destabilised the country and now become an everyday reality. And there are various agencies of people who deal with hauntings. But the thing is, in this world, it's only kids who are able to see ghosts. And as they reach physical maturity, their ability to actually perceive them becomes less and less until they can't perceive them at all. So these big agencies, they're basically sending in children to, to fight the undead, basically. <laughs> it's about a really small agency consisting entirely of this trio of teenagers who do things by themselves without any adult supervision. Sounds like something the CW would pick up before they completely changed into what they are becoming, which we'll discuss later. Exactly. It was actually really good, though it did get cancelled. Well, it's a Netflix series, of course it did. Exactly, because it, it didn't meet the standards of their nebulous viewing metric requirements. Whatever criteria they judge it by, it didn't meet it. But we're also not going to tell you even what that criteria is. It just Precisely. didn't meet it, and we cancelled it. So don't bother starting Netflix shows, as I guess is the advice. Yeah, it was based on a series of YA novels that were actually pretty good. I reviewed a couple of them for Starburst years ago, but somehow I was completely unaware that the series actually even existed. I think it dropped in, like, January. That's Netflix's marketing for you. Exactly. And I only came aware of it by chance when an unskippable advert before something else I was watching on YouTube was a trailer for it. It's just when it's mentioning names of characters, without a trailer, I was like, hang on, I know what this is. <laughs> so, very, very good, but sad there's not going to be any more of it. And film-wise, one of the best ones, jumping briefly back into Nazis, is this Finnish film called Sisu, which is kind of following the John Wick model of, of contemporary action cinema, involving a retired badass gone and causing lots of violence. In this case, a Finnish gold miner who goes out and utterly fucks <laughs> up many, many, many Nazis. I did hear about that. It was on at the cinema for like five minutes. And I don't think it's there anymore. I wasn't super interested in it based on the trailer that I saw, but cool if you enjoyed it. And there was a horror movie called Megan about a living doll companion for this brave little girl, which, as AI generally does, it turns homicidal. It's very violent, very camp, and a lot of fun. Yeah, I saw Mithrigan quite a while ago when it first came out, and it was good fun, as these things go. And then there was a Cocaine Bear, which was Cocaine Bear. Yes, it was not very good. It was everything that you knew it was going to be when you sat down to watch it. Yeah. The thing about it is, and there's a few films like that, Renfield was another one, where they seem to be trying to manufacture a cult classic. Yeah. So we're going to make this demented thing that will become a cult classic, but you don't get to choose what becomes a cult classic. It just happens. You can't force it. Yeah, because it becomes by the very nature of the people who end up loving it, not the nature of what the thing is itself. You also have to be prepared for it to fail at the cinema in order to let it become a cult classic. <laughs> that is also true. But these two, I don't think they did very well at the cinema, and people probably won't be going back to them at any point. I would be surprised. But you never know how these things will play out in the years to come, but I can't see 
either of those sticking in the minds of people that consume them. I would be surprised. It did frustrate me a little bit, though, in that I have attempted to try to teach myself how to properly write scripts, and one that I wasn't working on, and I'm serious about this, was called Mythgator, <laughs> which was inspired by this story I read about Florida or Alabama or something like that, where people are being advised to not flush their drug stashes down the toilet because the alligators were getting at them. <laughs> okay. And I was basically just imagining a giant alligator tripping on meth rampaging through the Everglades, because I thought that sounded hilarious. Maybe it is. Who knows? You never know. You can look forward to someone stealing your idea before you finish the script. How dare they? Now that you've said it on this podcast that is listened to by everyone in Hollywood. Oh, of course, yes. Or your script will be finished by an AI, which is the next problem. Having read a few of AI's attempts at writing, I don't think we're in that much danger yet. No, but it'll happen quicker than you imagine. Sadly, I think you might be right. Cool. Well, those things sound interesting. Are the Disney ones in danger of being deleted for no reason, like they did a bunch of stuff? I think DuckTales probably not, because that's been around for quite a while. The Owl House, possibly. As I mentioned, Disney have no interest in it. Yeah. And we're only begrudgingly allowed the creatives to try to give it an ending. So it might not stick around. So if it's something that anyone thinks sounds fun, then they probably should check it out sooner rather than later. It's really insane because one of the things they got rid of was the new Willow series. That's one of their things. Maybe it didn't do that well or wasn't that well received or whatever, but now it's gone. So if you want to watch it, you can't. You just can't. Unless you adopt other means of getting a hold of it, of course. But if you want to legally watch it, you can't. That's insane. I saw someone tweeting about this, I think it was, and they mentioned that in previous years, your favourite TV show ending just meant that they weren't making any more of it. Nowadays, your favourite TV show ending means that it will literally cease to exist. (laughs) Crazy. It's just insane. But Disney's gone to Disney. The good news is, though, Inhumans is still on the platform, so you can still watch that. Oh my god. Thank you for reminding me of that. (laughs) You could still watch it if you wanted I don't know why you would, but you could. One of the younger guys I work with asked me to help him put together this list of the chronology of Marvel movies and TV shows because he wanted to watch it all in order. And because he's 16, he'd barely been born when it started to become a thing. God, that doesn't even bear thinking about, does it? Right, and there's other folk who are just too young to remember it starting, which is terrifying. But the actual point was that I actually completely forgot to put Inhumans anywhere because I had actually forgotten it existed. My theory is it's set in the Agents of the Old Universe anyway. Yes, which Kevin Feige has now decanoned from the MCU. Yeah, thanks Kevin Feige. The Marvel show that outlasted all the Netflix Marvel shows <laughs> and people like probably more than your current crop of shows. But sure, it doesn't count. No. My watching has not been a massive shift from previous months really. The Flash, which is now finished forever, it's gone. We have one more thing to do. We need to record a podcast about it, and then we're done. It's the end. Yeah. For anyone who's wondering, the ending was crap. Reviews are on the website. It ended as it continued, really. Just rubbish. I'm not going to say anything about that, because once I start, I won't stop. And I just don't have the energy right now. Save it for the podcast. That too. Superman and Lois is the other thing, which I'm really enjoying. I think season three is possibly their best, actually. I'm really finding it quite engaging. They're doing a very serious and heartbreaking plot that's working very well. So that's great. Can't wait for that to get cancelled soon. The <laughs> CWC will be keeping us on tenterhooks saying they'll make a decision soon and they're pitting it against Gotham Knights. Gotham Knights stands a chance of survival because it's cheaper to make, but Superman and Lois has more viewers, but it's more expensive to make. Hmm. choices or they may just cancel both of them 
Who knows? Gotham Knights isn't actually that bad, by the way. It's kind of an enjoyable sort of rubbish. I think I know what you mean. I was just a bit cynical about it because I think the whole Batman without Batman concept has run its course insofar as it was ever anything viable in the first place. Yeah, we had Batwoman, that was enough. And Gotham. Yeah, Gotham as well. Well, Gotham ended up having Batman, but not really. He had everything except the suit at one point. Yeah. And he was like 12 years old or however old he was. The other thing I've been watching is How I Met Your Father, which is something that, despite being utterly rubbish, I can't stop myself from watching. I can just pop it on for 20 minutes while I'm doing other things and it doesn't impact me too much, but it's very not good. It doesn't really do anything that the parent show did to set itself apart, so you don't have any wacky flashbacks or any of these, oh no, I remember the story wrongly, I just told you the wrong thing. All that stuff they used to do to play with memory and all that to give you different takes or different perspectives. They don't do that in this show. It's just a very straight sitcom with boring characters that aren't funny. I think the most positive thing I can say about that one is that I didn't hate it as much as I was expecting to. Wow, that's high praise. (laughs) I I hated it about as much as I expected to. (laughs) The characters are all insufferable, but never mind. I will continue to watch it. I'll continue to waste 20 minutes of my life about once a week just to power through it. I haven't picked up Ghosts yet. That's back at the moment, but I haven't picked that up. But I was enjoying that, actually, or at least sometimes I was. Put Rose McIver in something and I'll watch it, I think is what we can take from that. I think we've had this conversation before. There's just some actors where if they put them in something, I'll watch it regardless. I'm a sucker for those sorts of things. On the film side, I saw Guardians 3. Really enjoyed it. I'm not going to go as far to say it's a return to form for Marvel or anything like that because it's a James Gunn film. Well, it's still a Marvel film, but it's a James Gunn film, so the criteria is slightly different. I think the Marvels will be the litmus test of where Marvel are at in terms of their quality level after Quantumania. I think at the moment James Gunn is just in a position where he can do whatever the hell he wants. So there certainly wouldn't have been as much corporate pressure to put the MCU stamp on it as much as there may have been if anybody else had directed it. Yeah. It's a good ending for these characters. It's really moving in places, especially in regards to Rocket's backstory. It looks great. The visual effects are very good, which... You shouldn't have to actually point out, but in the current landscape, if they're good, you have to point it out because so much of these types of things are not very good in terms of visuals. It's actually one that I didn't manage to get around to at a cinema due to various life things. Though what I have heard from people about it has been unanimously positive, so it's definitely one I'm looking forward to. There's a podcast about it coming up. Whenever I get it edited and released, Aaron is on that. He is on the camp of not really liking it that much. So we do have quite a spirited debate about the quality of the film, which doesn't always happen on this podcast. I have thought that a few times, actually, yeah. is quite often we are generally more or less of one mind about things. Yeah, but we have different views on different aspects of things, which means that you get the discussion. But Exactly. It's quite rare for the opposite side argument to come up, but you can only work with what you've got. If I'm only recording with the people that have seen the film that also enjoyed it, that are part of this team, then that's all I have. I can't do (laughs) much else. I can't turn around to someone and say, Isaac, you hate this film now. (laughs) Explain why. (laughs) Just for that all-important perspective that you might get otherwise. It's just one of those things. The bane of running a podcast, I guess. Something else I saw was The Little Mermaid, which I thought was fine. It's one of the better live-action Disney remakes, but it also has all the same problems. It's too long. It's too repetitive of the original, etc., etc. Halle Bailey was great in the lead role, though. And Melissa McCarthy was really enjoying just hamming it up as Ursula. 
Javier Bardem phoned it in. He wasn't bothered. <laughs> and the guy playing Eric, whatever, he was a bit of a damp squib. I notice it's not making a lot of money, which suggests to me that Disney have accidentally trained their audience to just wait until it drops on Disney+. Plus <laughs> Because it only takes like five minutes now. I think someone needs to have a serious word with their marketing department. Is If the way that you're developing how your content is presented literally means that people aren't going to be going to see it, then you've absolutely gone wrong somewhere. Yes. The other thing I saw was Fast X, which was exactly what I expected it to be. (laughs) It's just nonsense. Although the thing is, they've already peaked in terms of how huge the nonsense can be. In the last film, they went to space. In this one, they don't do anything like that. So it just feels a bit like more of the same. Exactly. Once you've crashed a car through a satellite, where do you go from there? (laughs) And this one, it's even more bizarre because you can really feel all the tension that exists among this quote-unquote family. (laughs) Especially where it comes from Vin Diesel, because what happens is the film splits the party into different sub-teams that are off effectively in their own film. There's no tangible connection between what Tyrese Gibson's doing and what anyone else is doing. So they're effectively different films. And then Vin Diesel's just off on his own most of the time. And that's not interesting. Vin Diesel baffles me. I don't understand why he's successful, because he can't emote. He has zero charisma. There's just no presence to him. He's a large physical presence, I suppose, but there's no presence on screen. Not one word of what he says I find believable. Not one facial expression looks like a facial expression anybody would associate with a certain emotion. It's just nonsense. He's just terrible. And I think he doesn't understand that people don't watch the franchise for him anymore. If they ever did. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. And with regard to why successful, I can only surmise it's down to him having starred in three moderately successful action movies that were released in fairly quick succession in the early 2000s that made people pay attention to who he is. And it's just kind of big coasting off that ever since. Yeah. But with Fast X, Jason Momoa was great. He was really chewing the scenery. He knew what film he was in, even if no one else did. So that was entertaining. And John Cena got to be funny, which he didn't in the last one. The best way to use John Cena is make him funny. Exactly. Even though his physical presence is obviously geared towards serious action, it is this comedic timing that he excels most at. Yeah, he's very funny. And he's obviously believable in action, so you get that. But he's not the same character he was in the last one. He's now just John Cena. Which is generally what people want from him. Yeah. And that's what happens in these movies anyway. Someone's an enemy for a film and then they're on the team in the next one. So I fully expect that Jason Momoa will change sides before the end of the next one. And Vin Diesel says there might be another one. So I fully expect he'll be part of the family at some point. But there's no stakes in these films. There's no consequences of anything that happens. Nobody dies. Or if they do, they come back later because they're not really dead. Nobody gets injured even. Physics isn't a consideration. And I know you can lobby that criticism at almost any blockbuster, but it's amplified in these films. There's a moment in it where Vin Diesel drops his car from a plane onto two other cars. They explode and his is fine, for example. So there's no baseline for you to follow any of what's going on. And there was even a moment in the last movie, or I think it was Tyrese Gibson, where it was actually lampshading just how preposterous it is that they all survived these ridiculous encounters that they've had. And it was actually positing that they might genuinely be superhuman. Yeah, that didn't go anywhere. It was so weird that they included that. You would have to pay that off in some way, and they just didn't. I think it was because they genuinely didn't consider it something that needed to be paid off. It was more 
just an acknowledgement of how preposterous these films have ballooned to in scale, rather than actually doing anything about it. Yeah, because it was brought up two or three times, so you would expect it to be paid off in some way, I don't know, he dies, or even just gets a cut in his cheek or something, just to prove how not invincible they are, but... Yeah, I do think at some point someone in that cast found a magic amulet that's keeping them alive. Vin's cross that he keeps carrying around is some kind of magical talisman that wards off harm. I'd watch that film. That's what's going to be revealed to be. I guess the only thing they can do next is time travel. They do a drag race and they use so much noise that they reach the speed of light and travel back in time. <laughs> the films are ridiculous. The thing is, they don't really have to try anymore because... People that love them will love them unconditionally, and then there's people like me that are watching them and thinking, why am I watching this crap? Oh, right, it's because I'm a pop culture commentator and I have to. Yeah, although I haven't reviewed it. Because I have nothing to say about it. That's the thing. There's nothing to dig into. It's quite funny just how big the cast is, though. Jason Statham's in this one, but he's in one scene and then he disappears as if to say, see you in the next film. Hmm. And that's him. That's all he does. And it leaked way early, but The Rock is back. His tail tucked between his legs after the failure of Black Adam. Yeah, because there's only room for one overinflated ego in this franchise. Yeah, I'm sure he won't be sharing any screen time with anyone else. You've got all these huge action stars in these films, but they're never in the same room. Because <laughs> they all hate each other. Oh, that's hilarious. But anyway, I watched that and wished I hadn't. Let's move on to some quick plugs. Do you have anything to plug that you've been working on that you want people to have a look at? Not right now, but hopefully by the time this airs, I'll have a review up of a wonderfully daft horror movie called Killer Kites. Ah yes, and that will be on this very website. Yes, it will be. It's basically exactly what I think it is. It's an incredibly cheap horror movie with little in, in the way of production value or transfer, and just involves a lot of homemade effects of Nazi kites attacking people. Cool. Sounds awesome. It's just nuts, but in a wonderfully fun way. And you've got the discussion we had about the two Flashpoint adaptations coming up as well. I think it'll be the week before The Flash releases. There is that, yes. Though any thoughts on the subject of The Flash just kind of got overwritten by my increasingly boiling ire at how dreadful the final season of the TV series was. Yeah, and we discussed the state of film criticism as well. So we sometimes discuss Flashpoint in that discussion, but it's in there. So you can check that out when it drops in a couple of weeks. For me, my plugging over on the We Made This Podcast Network, I've been doing a couple of bits and pieces. I was on the podcast 616 episode about Into the Spider-Verse, ahead of Across the Spider-Verse. There is also a Neil Before Pod Into the Spider-Verse episode that we released when the first film came out. So listen to that one first and then listen to the other one because we need the listeners over here. And then you can <laughs> check it out over there. I say different things on both, I think. Although I can't remember the... Neil Before Pod episode well enough, because it was a while ago, funnily enough. And we're gearing up for the coverage of Strange New World Season 2 over on We Are Starfleet, where I'm one of four hosts. So we'll be getting started on that very soon, because we've got screeners, and we can get started on that, and we can be ahead of the things and ready to release without scrambling to get it done. So that's always nice. Thank you, Paramount, for honouring us with advance access to the show. And there'll be reviews on this website of Streaking Worlds as well when the series starts on the 15th of June. But shall we move on to discussing some trailers and things? I think we should. Well, wait a minute. Before we do that, do you notice that cabinet in the corner? That seems a bit suspicious, doesn't it? I'm not sure if that was a cabinet when I actually arrived. Yeah. There is something weird going on here. I don't like it. Maybe you should go hide and 
the other room while I investigate this. Yeah, I'm just going to go somewhere else and you deal with this and just let me know when you're done, okay? Yeah. I thought that cabinet was a bit suspicious. I didn't remember buying that. So it was you all along here and you've been here the whole time. This is a much better disguise than being a giant metal eagle that's supposedly been unnoticed for centuries. So, yeah, I'm happy with it. I would have probably noticed a giant metal eagle in the corner of my room. Yep. It begs the question why you've been sitting here as a cabinet this whole time. Why were there giant metal eagles sitting there the whole time? I think it's just put it back to this film, my friend. So we're just not worrying about logic or things making sense anymore. Okay, that's fine. I'm afraid that's the nature of these things sometimes. Do you think Rise of the Beast is going to answer that question? Why were they hiding as animals? that weren't in any way looking like the real animals all the time? Or do you think they're just going to say, can we skip to the action? I don't know. But that brings us on to why you're here. We're here to discuss some Transformers news. You're dropping in to do that. So first of all, we'll talk about the final trailer for Transformers Rise of the Beasts. And yes, the big question is, why would robots hide as animals, especially when there's no animals of that size on Earth? So yes, there are gorillas, but gorillas are not that big. Yeah, it's a tricky one. The original Beast Wars that they had, had them hiding as animals because they wanted to sell animal shapes. Yes. There's no getting around that. But they didn't try to pretend that they were hiding for this way. They had to give them a shape that could give them resistance to the deadly energies of the planet they were on. So if they're out in their robot form, then... It would be a survival moment for them. But if they could transform into their beast form, they'd be protected from the planet. You could argue, how was just taking that shape protecting them? But we kind of just moved on from that. We didn't worry about it too much. It did. It protected them. They had the right shape and the right makeup such that they weren't affected. So they took some effort to explain it, but it was a conceit and you either bought into it or you didn't. For this film coming up, the conceit is much harder to swallow, I think. But I'm going to assume they'll do the same thing we look like animals and we're in the jungle what more do you want get on with it maybe they won't maybe they'll do something but i'm i'm not really expecting that the trailer suggests that they have been here for a long time so maybe there'll be some kind of prologue where they explain why optimus primal and the others are around or have been around for i guess millions of years I don't know what continuity they're going for. Optimus Primal only says centuries. I don't really get a good idea of when they dropped in, to be honest. I mean, it is only a trailer. It's down to the film to explain that. Yes, it is. I'd be interested if they do try and put it in. I'm just expecting that they won't. Yeah, we'll see. But what do you think of this latest trailer? There's a lot in it. I would argue it probably gives you too much. It reveals the big bad, it shows you a lot of the major action sequences. It's one of those annoying things they do in marketing where we want to make you interested in watching this film by showing you most of it. Are they just trying to get you to want to watch the action, though? Because if they are, then they just tease the action from various different scenes, and you know that the sequences will be longer, so you're getting a taste of each of the action points. I know the Michael Bay setup was mostly a, an action setup, and Bumblebee did swerve a bit from that. Obviously, there were action moments, 
but it was more of a character piece being centred on him. But are they swinging back now with Rise of the Beast, the big set piece action stuff? And if that's all they're trying to sell you, then arguably that's what this is giving you. I mean, I'm not interested. If that's what this is, I've lost interest. I regained an interest with Bumblebee and they'll lose it from me if they do swing back into the old. But I don't know what to make from that trailer other than, yeah, come and watch the action. Robots will be fighting each other and there'll be bigger robots than they've ever been. So that's good, isn't it? They do seem to be pivoting back to the more familiar Michael Bay setup, even though it isn't Michael Bay directing this film. But they're pivoting back to there's a lot of robots fighting another load of robots and we're going to introduce some other gimmicky stuff from the old shows that you might recognise. So you've got the beasts in amongst that. After Bumblebee was a more character-driven, girl-in-her-robot-type story. Mm. Along the lines of E.T. or The Iron Giant, something like that, and that didn't financially do very well, so I wonder if that's prompted them to pivot back to what was financially popular before. Regardless of what you might think of the Michael Bay Transformers movies, they made a lot of money at one time. So I wonder if they're thinking about, maybe that's what people want from Transformers, and maybe that's what we need to deliver. Well, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I'm perfectly prepared to admit that the Transformers in that iteration has moved beyond my interest. I'm no longer the target audience. There's a different audience. It's more of a blockbuster audience now. And and they do have to make money. So I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Although when the Michael Bay films ended, they weren't making the kind of money that they were before, which is why they pivoted to Bumblebee in the first place. Is that just because there were six of them there? Once you get into that many sequels, surely you expect a drop-off of money. It's not because people didn't like it. It's just you give them the same thing over and over again. Yeah, Michael Bay made five, so Bumblebee was the sixth. But by the fifth one, I think there was a massive drop-off because people were thinking, God, not this again. Yeah, I've seen it. I enjoyed it the first time round. I enjoyed it the second time round. But the fifth time, no, I've seen it. That would happen to anything, I think. Yeah, but... I don't think that's the way that people that want to make money out of films necessarily think. It's the idea of let's keep giving the audience the same thing over and over again until it stops making money. Then we'll try something else. They try something else that doesn't make money, so now we're back to let's try the original thing. That's a crazy circular situation to be in. It almost sounds like throwing good money after bad, actually. Well, it's brand maintenance, isn't it? Paramount have Transformers. They want Transformers to be a massive success, so they're going to keep making Transformers movies. But if they just want to keep the brand going, then the other thing we're going to talk about is a way of keeping the ownership of it and moving on. So it feels like you didn't need to do loads and loads and loads and loads, but I don't know. No, I do wonder with Transformers, at least from a blockbuster point of view, I wonder how many actual options you have in terms of what types of stories you can tell. It seems like the personal one-on-one robot human dynamic thing is one option and then you've got the big bombastic blockbuster stuff as your other option i don't know if there is any other we need a summer blockbuster out of this type setups that would work for that franchise if it's specifically got to be a summer blockbuster then yes you are limited in what you can do the ability to keep the product going means you have to step outside of that but again i would say isn't that true of most properties there's only 
so many times you can see the same superhero on screen fighting the same battle they normally do before you'd have to consider stepping out of it. As much as you like Superman, you're enjoying things like Lois and Clark because they've done something different and stepped out of it. If you just got to see five, six, even seven Superman stories where he has to deal with the same big blockbuster villain setup, you'd get less out of it, I think. You'd have a greater connection to it, but even then, I think you'd get less out of it. Superman and Lois, you were talking about, not Lois and Clark, I hate that show. Oh, sorry, Superman and Lois, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lois and Clark, I hated that show. Oh, okay. I don't exactly know why, but I hated it. I just didn't gel with it at all. But yeah, I think a lot of what you're talking about there is budget conscious as well but we've also talked in the past about how they are just redoing the same stories with superheroes over and over again yeah. you get a couple of films then they reboot it and we go through the origin again how many yeah. times have we seen the Waynes being murdered for example that's a common thing to poke at when you're talking about Batman we're constantly seeing his parents get shot yeah. can we move on from this in some way and you never seem to get very far beyond it I guess with Transformers you might be looking at sort of the same thing at least in terms of the cinematic releases you're always going to be stuck in this all about Cersei's Decepticons, this war that's been raging for centuries or millennia or however long it's been going on for, and it's just going to be this constant back and forth of them shooting at each other. This film looks like it's trying to offer something different in having a three-way conflict. The tagline is the Autobots and Decepticons. In the various formats they're in, because there's two types of each now, are going to have to join together and fight against the bigger band. And so I was like, oh, we've broken it. We're no longer having the Autobots fighting the Decepticons. First of all, there's two lots of Autobots, and there's two lots of Decepticons. And then there's also this other team. Terracons are coming in because they're going to be part of Unicron setup. But no, hang on a minute, you've got two sides of a conflict still fighting each other. It doesn't really matter that you've changed who's on which side. So it feels like they think they've gone into a different setup because they've got Unicron coming in as the big bad. And enemies will have to unite together. Well, yeah, but that's a tried and true plot line. There's not necessarily anything new. Oh, and isn't it that there's an artifact that you have to find? So that's totally different from having to find the Allspark, isn't it? Yeah, that's going to be completely different. Why did somebody hide something important on Earth years ago? Why did the Aztecs or the Mayans or whoever it is? Because it'll be one of them. It won't be these random Celts that just got bored one day and buried something. We'll probably take the tried and true South American cliche, I imagine, of hidden Mayan temples or whatever. So it feels like they think they're offering us something new, but I've just got this fear that they're not. It's just going to be two sides of metal warriors fighting each other with the humans chasing an artifact and it all comes together where the big bad is defeated by love and unity and the artifact so i'm not looking forward to it i just don't know that the trailer has promised me that it is going to be different it feels like maybe they think it's offering something different i don't know maybe the more cynical approach is true maybe you're right they're offering us the same they think we want old mayan artifacts and robots fighting and therefore, that's what we're getting. And we'll see if the box office supports that theory or not. Yeah, most of the Michael Bay Transformers movies are about this artifact on Earth that they didn't know about before that's suddenly really important. And they always contradicted the previous movies because the first movie was, well, this is the first time humans and Transformers have ever connected in some way. And then the second film was, actually, that happened earlier. The third film was, oh, yeah, there was some mess on the moon. The fourth one was... 
there's more crap on Earth that yeah. we didn't know about, and so on. They just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Well, based on that description, then, it looks like you're going to be given the Michael Bay films again. And I'm saying you rather than me, because at the moment you're not filling me with any confidence to go and watch this. The one thing that does fill me with a little bit of confidence is the fact that Michael Bay isn't involved in this, so maybe he will beef up the humans to just more than ridiculous nonsense that he fell into. You say he's not involved, but he is a producer, so how much influence do you think he's got? I think he's just a producer in the fact that his name is on it rather than actually doing anything. In the same way that Steven Spielberg was a producer on his films. Right, okay. Steven Spielberg didn't do anything. Right. His name was just on it. Okay, fair enough. A lot of the time people will attach their names as a producer in order to attract money to the production and then they get money back on the back end. Well, in that case, I'll transfer my fear over to the owners, Hasbro, because they've caused a lot of trouble for me recently on the Dungeons & Dragons side, which, when it eventually comes out, people can pick up from our podcast on that. But they've done a lot of damage of Hasbro recently, and they are pretty much following the same standard corporate route. All of our stuff is not making enough money. How can we squeeze it for more money? And if the D&D side of things is anything to go by, the corporate decision is to sacrifice quality, hit the important bases fast enough and hard enough that people are just desperately trying to open their wallets to keep up with the purchasing rather than actually ending up with anything. And again, if it goes the same as D&D, the quality is so bad that the audience are starting to turn around and go, hang on, why am I paying for this? I'm not quite sure anymore, but doesn't seem to have stopped them yet so they've not got a good brand name for me as Hasbro at the moment and given the trailer combined with that I'm honestly not expecting anything from this at all if it turns out to be awesome then I will be surprised and I'll be pleased because I like Bumblebee and I don't want to see the franchise that I like be completely destroyed I'm not up for that I would love it to be great but I'm afraid I'm at the point where I'm thinking this is an outside chance at the moment, and we'll see. Some positive stuff I will say about it is it echoes the strength of Bumblebee in that the designs of all the robots are distinct rather than just being the mess of stuff, particularly in the later Michael Bay films. Well, it's something. Michael Bay's stuff was often criticised for particularly Decepticons being just hunks of grey and silver metal and they're very hard to distinguish. That problem seems to not exist here. When you look at them, you can tell who they are based on just looking at them, which goes back to the 80s designs, isn't it? They were designed for very simple animation styles, so they had to be kind of boxy and easy to identify. Although it was always a big selling point for me looking back as an adult that they specifically animated the characters to have the same transformation as the toys that you could buy. And that was crazy that somebody cared to put that much in. That's a sort of attention to detail and care that shows that somebody likes what they're doing, is interested in it, and wants to take that much time. I'm not going to accuse modern Transformers film alone of doing that. I do wonder if the modern filmmaking, there's just not enough time for the animators to take that care and give that love to something anymore because... They're being told, get this film out, I need you on another film immediately afterwards. Marvel has been rumoured to have that problem. Why are you still drawing that character? Why aren't you on the next film yet? And so how can the animators possibly put anything into their special effect in the case of Marvel? So yeah, the old cartoon might have been simple, but 
there was a care and a love in it that I would really like to see in these modern films. If there is, awesome, cool. Well, the care will be deployed in different ways. The focus will be on making the transformations look cool, Mm. which they usually do. You can see them all fold into themselves and how they transform from the robot to the car or vice versa. And they do different things with the transformations as they go on. They transform some parts of themselves. So you'll see a car... And then an arm will come out to grab someone or whatever, just to really play with the idea. To be fair, I was really into Mirage that they've shown on the trailer because of that. Mirage did look really cool. It was weird for me to get into at the start because they've merged, as far as I can see, Mirage with another Autovoc character, Jazz. They've merged the character of Mirage with the character of Jazz to create this on-screen Autobot called Mirage. And I was trying to get my head around that, and it stopped me enjoying it when I first saw it. But when I watched the final trailer, and I made my peace with that, as you say, when they show Mirage, well, creating a mirage of himself, and then he has this funky transformation where the human gets to just start walking and Mirage is transforming around him so that the momentum of him driving and stopping is nicely transferred to the human walking. And you're thinking, in modern physics, I don't think that's possible, but it's great, so I'm (laughs) fine with it. So I admit, that sort of stuff, it does look cool. And that is a level of cool that I am into because somebody having an entrance doesn't seem to get in the way of any plot. It's just, yeah, we are here and we do want a visual spectacle. Here's something. And like, yeah, that was nice. And it can be a character affectation as well. Mirage likes to show off. Oh, well, if they have combined Mirage and Jazz into one super Mirage, then yes, this character will definitely want to show off. And yeah, that's defining. It will make them, as you say, an actual character rather than just a soldier that's there to get shot or do the shooting. Yeah, so there's that. Bumblebee seems to have a reduced role, at least based on the trailers, which I found interesting because he's been more of the focus of all of the films prior to this point than any of the others. Hmm. So it's an interesting choice. I wonder if he can still not talk. I imagine that's just the brand of Bumblebee now. Bumblebee just talks using his radio. That's just been a thing for so long now that that's the way he is. Yeah, it's a weird to see it, actually, because he's fulfilling the same role as he used to back in Generation 1, but in a completely different way. So I appreciate the character as it is, even if it is changed. But as the connection to the humans, he is still fulfilling that place in the story. And it makes me wonder if a connection to the humans is needed in a massive three-way bitch slap, which this film is going to be, you know, when it comes down to it, there's just going to be giant army battles, but the humans are going to be off digging up the artifact. Well, for the most part, there was the female human lead. I don't know any of the characters from a human perspective, I'm afraid, but she is at one point hanging from a large metal object. So I guess... That might not be part of the artifact gather, but it might. I don't know. Anyway, Bumblebee isn't needed in his traditional role in a mass army battle. So, yeah, it's potentially just not his film. Yeah. One thing to note is Michelle Yeoh continues her domination of the world by being in this voicing one of the Transformers. She's everywhere. 
You can't get rid of her. She's just everywhere. Yeah, that's become her thing. She is now known for just doing everything. Yeah, she's just everywhere. And they can say that this Transformers film has an Oscar winner in it now. So. Oh, well, fair enough. How many Transformers films can boast that? Actually, probably a few of them. They seem to attract big actors somehow, probably because of the paycheck. Lots of money. Yeah, I can imagine that the size of this is still huge and able to bring in people. And what you were talking about, the human story, you need that because the Transformers are all CGI. So you can't have them on screen all the time. So you need a bit of a focus on the humans. Not like in an animated film where everything's animated. So the Transformers yeah. can be more prominent. You do, but you're thinking, what connection can this possibly have other than we need humans. The only way we can do that is with an artifact. Carry on. It does just feel like it's in there because it needs to be. Yeah, that's what they did in every other film. So we're doing it here because those made money and we want to make money again. Yeah. We didn't make money by trying our different thing last time, so we're going to try it this time, which is what I think has happened here. Really cynical way of looking at it, but it's just the way the business seems to work. Just out of curiosity, do you know anything about the voice actor for Unicron on this? Because in the Generation 1, I'll call it that, even though it's more complicated than that, Generation 1 cartoon film, the voice of Unicron and the voice of a couple of other characters was quite a catch. And I'm wondering, have they gone for a massive name for Unicron's voice here as well? Orson Welles was the original voice, wasn't he? Despite any stories behind that, nonetheless, yes, it was. He didn't really know what film he was in, apparently, because it was his last role and he was on his way out. No, as I say, there's a whole bunch of story behind it. But as I say, nonetheless, they caught a name. I mean, they caught, as well as a name, an impressive voice and when you are playing a planet devouring planet i feel like the voice has got to be impressive and you can do it with special effects and this that and the other i know but surely you've got to start with a really impressive voice even if you are going to magnify it but i don't know that i know the person playing unicron i wondered if you do so i don't think he's a household name coleman domingo is his name he most prominently seems to have been in fear of the walking dead which i haven't seen right 99 episodes of that he was also in eight episodes of euphoria which was popular he was in the Candyman sequel as well and he's just done bits and pieces over the years so i don't think he's huge in that way in terms of voice actors the big names are people like michelle yo ron perlman he's optimus primal peter dinklage voices scourge and then you have your transformers household names like peter cullen you do but they can be more everyday names the reason unicron i'm asking about is just because the sheer power of the character needs to come across in their voice and i don't mean just because of their size i was being a bit flippant with that i also mean because this character is from the mythology of the character's background. Unicron is somebody who was created back at the creation of the race. He's effectively a godlike figure. And if you were going to put the divine on screen, then you're expecting to really feel it in the voice, not just the size of the character, but in the divinity of the character. And Orson Welles was a catch for that. I'm not saying they don't. I actually don't know them at all. But I do wonder, will they be able to give us a performance that matches that need of being somewhat divine? Maybe. I don't know enough about them. No. But the beauty of voice acting is you can get people that aren't necessarily massively famous who are just really good at voice acting. Mm. That's what we're maybe expecting here. Although the Unicron question is a weird one because... They're bringing Unicron in here, and it's obviously comes late in the marketing, so the final trailer reveals that Unicron is coming, 
Oh. And that seems a bit, not a bit soon, because we don't know if this is a planned trilogy or anything like that. And we've had six of these previously. Unicron was in the final Michael Bay one. It was revealed that Unicron is Earth. Somehow Earth was built around Unicron. Very weird. But it's not the first time that's happened. I watched Transformers Prime, an animated show, and they did that story with Unicron as well. Still weird. Maybe it's happened prior to that, I don't know. But if all you've ever seen is G1, then you'll have a lot of gaps, I guess. There's so many continuities in Transformers now that you can't say anything is wrong. That's why I choose the word weird for me. (laughs) Because the idea that one of the mythological figures from the Transformers background was somehow connected to the development of Earth. It just kind of turned up for no reason. It sort of makes sense because turns out every Transformer comes to hide on Earth. It's this locus, this nexus that they all come to. And the only way he could hide on Earth was by being the Earth. So I do understand that the theme is being followed, but it's one of those ones where the theme is being followed so literally It doesn't really seem to match any mythology that I can think of that isn't just trying to crowbar something in. So it's not wrong, it's weird. But in this, it seems that it's a more traditional or early take on Unicron, where he's this roaming, planet-devouring Transformer that is now making its way to Earth. My guess is it'll be something that occurs quite late in the film and there'll be some big action sequence that ends up destroying him, which doesn't seem to support the weight that such a character is supposed to have i think that's what i also fear because if you go back to the original cartoon film then they do weave in the pseudo spirituality that they have in the background it's not quite as simple as them being gone so i'm taking a shortcut but they bring in the matrix of leadership they bring the two elements of the main character in hot rod facing off against his own issues aligning that with the defeat of Unicron. And it's weaved together. Now, I'm not going to be someone who can sit here and tell you that the old Transformers cartoon was as good as Shakespeare. I am going to be biased in thinking that it was good. But what I will say is that they put some effort into weaving the storylines together. And so when Unicron is, spoilers by the way, when Unicron is defeated, it's more in consequence of Hot Rod coming into his own, into learning who he really is, into completing his journey And when he completes his journey, he's able to bring down Unicron. So it's not a battle. It's not an action sequence. It's the culmination of a point of narrative plot. And it's therefore very welcome because it's part of the story. It makes sense. It's part of the emotional arc and you're there with it. But as you say, with this one, I'm more expecting it to be a big action sequence. Potentially they find the artifact and then someone has to throw the artifact to one of the Autobots who then has to jab the artifact into Unicron's face. And it will be a fight scene where they take down a planet with the artifact used as a weapon. And that will be somewhat boring. It'll be really disappointing. But they don't have this equivalent of a character going through their journey like Hot Rod had, where he essentially evolves physically as well as spiritually, I suppose. But that's the whole point of it. But I don't see that. They've not introduced a character element to this film that could fulfill that role. It does seem to just be a big action basham. So I think that would be really disappointing, actually. Even for the people watching it, there's a big danger that it might just be a bit ridiculous. Yeah, we'll see. And it does look like we see the end action sequence in this trailer 
and it looks like a bit of a dull and murky battlefield like you see in so many of these things so that's again a bit dull yeah but we'll find out I suppose or I will I don't know if you will I'll tell you I don't know we'll see I did like Bumblebee so maybe I should allow that to be the image in my head rather than Michael Bay going in Maybe I should see it. We still don't know if this is a sequel to Bumblebee or if it's a completely separate reboot continuity. It's set in the 90s, whereas Bumblebee was set in the 80s. Yeah, I'd be interested to know. And I suppose you could connect them without actually bothering to make any direct connections. There might just be a line in the film that says, oh, remember that friend you made in the 80s? What's she up to now or something? I don't know. Well, yeah, maybe I need to see it. Talk myself into it. I need to know now. <laughs> well, didn't expect to do that, but... That's the power of podcasting, isn't it? There you go. Let's move on to the other Transformers thing then, something that might be more innately interesting to you, I don't know. Much more interesting. Paramount sets its first animated Transformers movie, voice cast to include Chris Hemsworth, Brian Tyree Henry, Scarlett Johansson and more. It's going to be called Transformers 1, directed by Josh Cooley, and it stars some of the people that I talked about before, including Keegan-Michael Key, John Hamm and Lawrence Fishburne. Release is set for July 19th, 2024. The film will tell the story of how a young Optimus Prime, played by Chris Hemsworth, and Megatron, Brian Tyree Henry, went from being brothers in arms to sworn enemies. Johansson is voicing Elita, he will be Bumblebee, Ham is Sentinel Prime, and Fishburne plays Alpha Trion. I don't really know who most of those characters are, so it's a Transformers origins story, essentially. Very much, yeah. Well, it's going to be before the war, whereas most of the stuff we've seen either details the war or the aftermath of it. Well, I thought that actually, because I remember when we talked about this before, we said it's an origin story and said, oh, yeah, we've seen that a million times. And I was thinking, I don't think we have. I don't remember seeing it this far back in time in anything other than a two-part episode from the G1 cartoon. So I'm pleased to see that it is actually something new rather than a rehash. So the story will be about how Optimus becomes a prime, I guess. Exactly that, yes. And it seems like... Because they've said that Prime and Megatron were brothers in arms, they're picking up one of the continuities, of which there are numerous, but one of the continuities that I've not seen myself, where they were both gladiators fighting for the pleasure of their masters, and they break out of that, and then have a political difference of opinion onto where they should go afterwards, and it causes a rift between them. Transformers Prime plays with that origin story at one point. There's an episode where Optimus Prime loses his memory and thinks that he's Orion Pax, which apparently was his name before he was Optimus Prime. It was, yeah. And he sees Megatron as a friend, because he doesn't remember all the stuff that led to them not being friends. This seems like an interesting idea, because even I've seen so many iterations of the Endless War, as in I've played two video games that detailed it, and I watched a bit of that Netflix animated series that they released that also detailed it. Which started out so well, by the way, because they had such an awesome setup of a hopeless situation in the war before they leave, but they so quickly leave and then bring up all the good old favourites on the way. And I'm saying, you started out doing something new and original that I've not seen before, and stylistically it was amazing. They really changed the genre, they really changed the feel of it, and it was just as brutal as the 1980s film, which was so brutal that some kids watching it were just horrified. (laughs) But it, it really captured that had that dark and nasty to it that obviously I was going to want to see in something that was a bit of a war flick. But then, as I say, then they just leave. 
and then they just go on adventures through the solar system and they meet everybody. How on earth they manage to drive their ship through a path that lets them meet literally everybody that is in the galaxy just on that one path. You're thinking, that's just the worst place you should go. You never go down that road, ever. Because it's just all the people that are on it you don't want to meet. Yeah, space is really big. The chance of you running into people is quite slim. Except everybody. <laughs> so it started so well, started so original, and then became the things that we need to sell. And like, oh, okay, fine, you've given up. So I am dreading that that happens here as well. Like they end up time traveling and they end up meeting Bumblebee from the future. And then he teaches them who they are going to be. And that's how they become who they are because of some circular time loop. I really hope it's not that. I've no reason to think it is that, but people seem so keen to make sure that they can sell people what they already know. But they've set this right back in time so that you cannot do that. But they're going to want to. So I'm dreading it. I'm really, really looking forward to this. But there's so much fear based on the way I know producers like to work that I, I almost want to watch from behind the sofa. But either way, if it focus on the positive, for now. This is a plotline that hasn't been done before. It's also going to be new for me because I'm more used to Orion Pax as the dock worker. He works in a warehouse. He's a nobody in terms of his importance to the race of Transformers. But of course, the whole point is with the Primes that it's not about the equivalent of bloodline. It's not about what you might learn. It's who you are deep inside. It's that whole 1980s, you're a good person and you make the right choices because you've learned the proper lessons of life. It's that moral setup. So he then turns into a prime because he is worth as one of those sorts of stories. I'm used to that. I actually quite like that because it has this interesting element whereby he ends up hero-worshipping Megatron for a bit. And then there's the brutal reveal of, oh, my hero's completely awful. That's a shame. Again, it's quite dark for a, a kid's show. But what they're offering us here then is that more political setup where the two of them are presumably going to throw down their masters and then suddenly realize when they have to create a new society, we both want to create very different societies here. That is politics. That could really go somewhere interesting for several seasons. Whether it will or not, I don't know. But the promise is huge. It's an animated theatrical release, so it's going to be like two hours at most for this story. Right, okay. The closest analogue I can think of, based on the description of brothers in arms that become enemies, is Xavier and Magneto from X-Men. Yeah, very much. They start off being friends, wanting the same things, and then they diverge as they go because they realise that they want those things differently, and therefore you have conflict. But it definitely exists with other characters. Oh, it'll be a story as old as time. They're not creating something new here. I'm not saying they are, but I'm saying it's something that Transformers hasn't done before and something that could be quite important and meaningful. I'm always in that search for meaning and purpose. I don't want to see Transformers having to go through a scene just as an excuse to stop the battle so we can start another battle. That's what I don't like to see about Transformers. I don't just want to see them fight and the other scenes are just filler. I want to see them having a reason to fight. I want to see Optimus Prime upset that he has to fight. I don't want to see Optimus Prime enjoying killing people. I don't want to see him reveling in the battle. I don't want to see him as a Viking warrior. I want to see someone who is distraught that his planet and his people are being wrecked by something. And he is being forced to deal with that. 
And there's big danger of some of these big blockbuster ones that I started watching. I think I saw more of a Viking who wanted to pillage. Not all the time, but enough to put me off. And now this animated movie that they're going to create is offering me the chance to get not necessarily good old-fashioned 80s moral stories anymore, but something where, yeah, the characters have a reason to do what they do other than just... It looks cool. Am I right in thinking that the original war, certainly in the original cartoon, it was like millions of years before Optimus Prime and so on got revived on Earth? There's a really, really long war, and whether that goes on for a million years before they leave, I can't quite remember. It's certainly a long time, and I would trust anybody that said, yes, it's millions of years. But then if you go to the Generation 1 continuity, they also lose more millions of years because they crash in Earth's early history and then they get awakened in modern times. So it's a ridiculously long time between them starting the war and coming to on Earth. People I know that loved G1 have often pointed out that in the original cartoon, when they detail Cybertron again after Prime and so on wake up, it's as if it's been five minutes, as in nothing has really changed. They've just seemed to be waiting for these guys to wake up to resume the war. So that's maybe something they need to fix or get away from. I suppose Bumblebee, the film sort of fixed that, as in Bumblebee was straight on Earth, so the war was still raging over on Cybertron, so it wasn't a delay in the same way. I don't know. Again, there's so many continuities, it depends which one you pick up. If you pick up on the cartoon, I can't quite remember everything that was going on, good agree how many decades has it been, but they have Shockwave as the leader of Cybertron. The war is over. He is just this despotic leader. There are people who are resisting his leadership, but it's no longer something you would call a war. It's people who, if you want to generously call them freedom fighters, still resisting this tyrant. So I understand that they're saying there's still a fight going on, but there's not a planetary war going on. It depends which continuity you go into. You're asked to believe that over these millions of years, the Decepticons have never been ever challenged once. They still have the planet. And whether you want to just say that too simple or not, fair enough. I suspect that it's something that you have to write off as conceit. And if you can't take it, you just don't watch. That's one of those. And it seems like subsequent continuities shortened the time frame to make it more palatable, I guess. Absolutely. That's the thing. There's so many continuities. I even have to stroke. See, when I say Generation 1, in my head, I'm having to stop myself talking about the three different variations of Generation 1. Yeah, because there's the cartoon, there's the comics, isn't there? There's two lots of comics and one cartoon. And even then, when you start talking about Generation 1, you're thinking, so where's it end? Does it end with the film? Anyway, the <laughs> point is, if somebody ever says to you, it's this continuity, don't trust them, really, unless they give you a full paragraph explaining exactly which continuity <laughs> it is. Fair enough. I've seen people online talk about how they would like to see Bumblebee become a prime because of how much focus he's had in the franchise since well, the first Michael Bay film, really. It's probably at the point where he sort of deserves it. They always danced around that as a possibility, I think, because he's the one who is looking up to Prime, again, in the generation one that I know, clarifying as much as I can. He looks up to Prime and learns the lessons. Prime is the teacher, Bumblebee is the student. Now, when they go through some of the films and the developments, they pass the Matrix on to other people because Bumblebee isn't 
effectively mature enough. He hasn't reached that stage, but if they wanted to, they could wind further into the future, and then this student could develop that. They've always set that up, that he is the one who has got the right kind heart. He is Orion Pax, actually, when you think of it that way. He is a leader in waiting. Humble beginnings and all that stuff. Yeah, it's just something I've seen people talk about online. I do think that it's possibly past time for that to happen, just based on how much I've seen in the films. He's been such a focus for such a long time, and he's even in this one. He must be really young in this one if it's Prime's early days. I don't know how they'd do it, though, because it would involve breaking the continuity and moving on to something new, and I don't believe they want to do that. Well, I'm not sure what continuity would even happen in, because... There's, like you say, so many of them, and every couple of years a new one comes out. Well, even these film continuities, they like the characters as they've got them because they can resell what people already know. In order to do that, you'd have to let a character have development and move on. I just don't know that they want that from these. Yeah, but this animated film is not any of those things. It's a very early days thing with... An interesting voice cast. I wonder what Chris Hemsworth's Optimus Prime will sound like. Yeah, I don't know, actually. I imagine Brian Tyree Henry will do a really good Megatron. I've heard quite a few voices for Megatron, though, in the stuff I've even seen. Right. Hugo Weaving, for example, from the Michael Bay movies. He was really good. I'm quite interested in Keegan-Michael Key as Bumblebee, actually. I'm kind of looking forward to that. I don't know who Alita is, so I don't know what Scarlett Johansson's voicing. When Orion Pax was turned into Optimus Prime, his partner at the time, whose name is now going to elude me, good grief, this is testing my memory, <laughs> but she was also transformed into an Autobot Alita. So they are potentially a love interest, which is something that nobody's really explored too much in Transformers, but they were technically a species of people that did have connections. Yeah, John Hamm, Sentinel Prime. I imagine he'll be very suave like he usually is. Yeah, I don't know how they'd play that, actually. A strong leader, he could go a couple of ways. That depends on the plot. That really depends on what they want to do. Do they want a leader that's losing control? Do they want a leader that's handing down the wisdom? But they've got Sentinel Prime and Alpha Tryon, so they've got two people in this leadership role. So where are they going to put them? Who's Alpha Tryon? Alpha Tryon is the one that is, I suppose, more of a spiritual leader, but is responsible for turning Orion Pax into Optimus Prime. So he's not a prime. He's not a leader in that same sense. If you wanted to do some equivalent, you could put Sentinel Prime in as a monarch figure, and then you could put Alpha Tryon in more as the church, who is a wise old man that they can go to for assistance and information. But when it comes to the plot, I don't know where they're going to want to put them. Traditionally, Sentinel Prime is up front, and Alpha Tryon is hiding away and is the old guy that you have to go and find. The old man with the big beard on the top of the mountain. You've got to go and find him. He's not just on the street, whereas Sentinel Prime is going to be out up front. They've not mentioned who the overseers are yet. And I assume that's part of it, because if Prime and Megatron start as friends, then they need to be fighting somebody. So I assume it's the overseers. So I don't really know who the bad guys are listed at yet, but maybe that's another release. Yeah, we're very early in the information cycle on this one. It's just telling you who's in it and what roughly it's going to be about. Well, that's cool. I'll certainly be interested in it. I'm not super into Transformers. My connection to it comes from the films and a couple of more modern animated shows that I've seen. I have seen some of the old G1 stuff, but I feel like it's something that you have to be there at the time in order to be able to still engage with. So I couldn't engage with it as an adult, seeing it for the first time. 
But then I don't think that you're necessarily supposed to. That's why they keep rebooting it every couple of years so that every generation of young viewers can have their own Transformers to look at. It's the same with the Turtles. They just reboot every couple of years just so that whoever's young at the time can then enjoy that. Storytelling styles, animation styles, everything moves on, so you can't expect the thing that you made decades ago to still resonate necessarily. No, absolutely not. Obviously, you'll get people that grew up with it that can then go back to it. I'm like that with Power Rangers. I can watch the old Power Rangers stuff because... I watched it at the time. But if someone was making me watch it now with no prior knowledge of it, I would be like, what the hell is this? Yeah, I would say that the old G1 cartoon would be weird for kids to watch now, just because they'd be expecting it visually to be different, even if it wasn't anything. I mean, the moralising as well might really seem odd to people, like the old He-Man and so on that did that. They might just, what? What's going on here? Why are you wasting time on this? Get to the action. The overt lessons that these shows try to tell you, yeah. That's what we grew up with. My mother was always happy that I got this from such cartoons because she never made us go to church, so we didn't have that enforced belief system imparted to us, but we got it from our TV. It was just normal. It was the same with me. I got it from like superhero cartoons I was watching or whatever. Yeah. And Power Rangers, these kind of moral lessons. I think that is the thing I would like to see back though. Not the moral lessons, but I would like to see Transformers movies, TV, whatever they do, there to be something more than just the action. I don't want to say that it has to be moral. It could be character driven. It could be stories. It could be whatever you like. I just want to see them used as more than an action blockbuster. And I have to be the person that I've talked about in another podcast that may come out just before this one, or maybe not actually, I don't know what the order is, but about the idea of stories changing by the needs of the people at the time. So it's not that things just change, they actually change in response to society. So I will not fill that gap with what I think it should be. I just think there is a gap in the Michael Bay films that he left on purpose because he didn't want it. And it could be filled with what the children of today would find interesting or valuable or both so you want more bumblebee really stylistically a film that's the only one i've been offered recently yes i would like to see more of that which is a shame that apparently that wasn't popular i wonder if some of that was to do with fatigue as well as in not another transformers movie so people didn't even give it the chance maybe it's possible it came out quite soon after the sixth one and by then people were like ugh not another one of these and then they made Bumblebee I don't know if they marketed it well enough for people to look at it and think okay this is going to give me something else or even knowing it was existing to be honest tricky I think they made a mess with the marketing on that so that they didn't make it clear that people should go and see this but who knows that's a shame yeah it really is but anyway I think we've talked as much as we can about a small article that tells you that some people are in stuff. We could have gone deeper. I could have done loads of research if you wanted, but for a small <laughs> off segment of a larger piece, I will agree. People might not want any more. Okay, well, what I'll do is I will do the classic transition back to Andrew then, as if by magic a sound will play and then suddenly Andrew will be back. Thank you for joining for chatting about Transformers, Aaron. Bye. Don't worry about it. It was just Aaron. He's just going to sit there as a cabinet now. He's not going to disturb us for the rest of this podcast. He's quite happy being a cabinet. That's good to know. Okay, so where were we? Where were we? Back onto trailers. The first one up is Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese's latest film that will definitely be cinema, unlike all the ones he hates. (laughs) This one is three hours, 26 minutes long, which is very long. Is there an intermission? I feel like that's veering into intermission territory because who's going to hold a 
PN for that long. Cannes liked it, as in the film festival, but you can take that as you want to take it, really. Uh, I'm not going to comment on the matter. But what did you think of this trailer? I think the film definitely looks an interesting one, and the story is an interesting one. I was slightly confused by the trailer itself, though, because the film is definitely a crime drama, and yes, it is about some very horrific crimes, but the trailer seemed to be edited as though it was a horror movie, and seemed to be giving the impression that the main attraction of the film was going to be the frights in it, and the stalking and killing, which seemed an odd choice to me. I've got no doubt that the film itself isn't going to be like that, but I would question why they chose to present it in that way. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot going on, which you would imagine would be the case for a three-hour, 26-minute film. It's a crime drama, and there's Indigenous First Nations aspects to it as well. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure what it's getting at here. I'm sure Scorsese has a plan, but I don't know. It looks very stylish, and the cast are great, and it's definitely going to hit on some pretty sensitive ideas. I feel like the whole First Nations persecution and all that stuff that happened is quite a prominent plot point at the moment. There's a lot of coverage of it, maybe in smaller films, because I've seen a few where it has been brought up and the consequences of all that. So this is... I was going to say Scorsese taking it into the mainstream, but can you ever consider Scorsese movies really mainstream? I suppose you can because they are released around Oscar season. They get a lot of buzz and they end up doing quite well because they get a lot of buzz. So this will be Scorsese angling for best picture, I guess. I think it pretty much depends on exactly how you define mainstream. Yeah, that's a difficult one by itself, isn't it? Yeah, because I mean, it can just depend on the time of year. Never mind just general audience sensibilities about any given decade. Yeah, the barrier to entry will be the running time, I think. There'll be people who see how long that is and think, I'm not going to see that. I'll never get through that. Yes, yeah, someone said, I'm just going to stay home, sit on my sofa and binge 10 hour long episodes of a TV show on Netflix. Yeah, but at least during those 10 hours, you can get up and pause and decompress a little bit. Got to the toilet, get something to eat. Yeah, perhaps have an hour away from it or something. But in this case, it will just be straight through. Unless there is an intermission, which I feel like there probably should be. Yeah, because what with that being a tradition of classic cinema, you would imagine it's a notion that would appeal to Scorsese. Yeah, because if you think about it, it's, say, half an hour of trailers and adverts before it, that's four hours in the cinema. <laughs> that's your day. Yeah, it's a long time to be sat in one place. Cinemas will be showing two screenings a day. That's all they can fit in. But it looks interesting, at least. Scorsese working with DiCaprio again, surprising no one. <laughs> Next one up is video game adaptation, Five Nights at Freddy's. These are games that I have not played, so I don't know if horror is a thing that is associated with those games, but it looks pretty cool. Yeah, but absolutely. It's definitely going for exactly the same angle that the games do. Well, I've only actually played the first one. It's a very basic concept, but it's one's a lot of fun. The idea is that you're a night security guard in this family restaurant that has a band of animatronic animals on stage supposedly playing instruments. But these ones are actually alive. And at night, they roam around the restaurant, with the excuse being that their gear is seized up if they're idle for too long. And if they encounter you, they will think that you're actually one of them, but outside of its costume endoskeleton thing. You'll be promptly stuffed inside one and killed. So you're sat inside a secure office, and you can watch the movements on monitors and ring down the security doors if they get too close. But the thing is that everything that you use costs a certain amount of electricity. 
to operate, and you've only got a finite supply of it. All right, okay. It's kind of like a sort of mix between strategy and survival horror, just with a very simple concept. Yeah, the trailer shows all the monitors, so that makes sense. And the story that gradually gets revealed, it's only suggested at first, but becomes more and more overtly stated as the series goes on, that the restaurant was where a bunch of children were murdered by this psychopath, and their bodies were hidden inside the suits of these animals. And it's their ghosts that are haunting them. Okay. And going by what the trailer shows, I think that's definitely the way that whatever story it has is going to go. Yeah, it just gives you a collection of imagery in the trailer. It's less than a minute long, so it's a tease, of course, but sounds interesting. Like I say, I didn't play the game, so I don't really know too much about this, but it sounds like it could be adapted easily enough. Yeah, definitely. As I mentioned, the games are very, very basic. So once you've got the factors of it incorporated, it's very easy to work a story and action around it. Cool. Well, I have very little to say about it because I've not played the game, but it looks like they're on the right track with this. So keep an eye on it and see how it turns out, I guess. Let's move on to the next one, which is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. We have another trailer for that. I feel like I didn't really need this trailer because we had the first trailer and then that long featurette about jumping off a dirt bike while flying into a canyon. So I feel like we kind of got a lot of what the film's going to give us. This one's very light on story, but really high on insanity. There's Tom Cruise running in at least three or four different locations. Because that is one of the things Tom Cruise does best. He runs, he rides motorcycles, and tries to kill himself. Those are the three things that he does. Yes, pretty much. It will be a shame when this series stops, actually, because I feel like this level of creativity isn't really happening a lot in action films. We see so many bad action films. So when you have a series that there's a lot of focus on delivering things that we haven't seen before and doing them practically, then... It's a shame to lose that, but Tom Cruise is bowing out relatively soon, probably after these two films. Because as much as he would like to pretend otherwise, he is not getting any younger. Yeah. So are you keen for this film? Not as much as I was expecting to be, to be honest. I do enjoy the films, and I do agree that their very elaborate approach to action is something that we don't see enough of anymore. I'm just not sure how many more of these films we actually need. Especially with the trailer dealing with the notion of ghosts of the past and Hunt's life kind of coming full circle from where it started. But those are like ideas that they've done before. Yeah, they've been doing that since the fourth film, really. The idea that the world is leaving people like Ethan Hunt behind, but he's actually one of the crop of people that can keep the world ticking over. Yeah, and I'm just not sure how many times we need to be reminded of that. Well, at least two more times. <laughs> and then he might find some younger, death-defying daredevil to pick up in his stead. Yeah, which, in a way, is... Kind of the premise of this entire series, because in the original series, the 60s, it was John Boyd's character from the first movie, Jim Phelps, who was the central protagonist. Then they made the odd decision for him to be the villain. Yeah, I know people that liked the TV show were a bit confused by the first movie because of what they did to the named characters from the TV show. I had no concept of that because I've never seen the TV show. On the Star Wars podcast, one of the magazine's editors likened it to a reboot of Star Trek, beginning with Captain Kirk turning up and killing everyone. <laughs> now that I can understand <laughs> and I'm sure J.J. Abrams would have done it if they'd have let him it would not surprise me <laughs> but it'll certainly be a lot of fun this the Mission Impossible movies are a ton of fun and it really got Rebecca Ferguson out there in the public sphere people started to know who she was after her appearance in Mission Impossible so good job there she could pick up the franchise after this, to be honest. Although I don't know if she's quite as insane as Tom Cruise is. I'd be surprised, because that's quite a high bar. Yeah. But before that, it seemed like he was grooming Jeremy Renner to pick up after him. 
then that didn't happen. Yes, in much the same way that Jeremy Renner taking over the Bourne franchise didn't happen. Yeah, but Jeremy Renner did actually almost kill himself recently, so maybe he's not the best to do this. Yes, in a far less cinematic way as well. Yeah, we'll see how this pans out. Certainly getting two more of those. It'll be interesting to see what nonsense they get up to in this one and then how they top it in the next one. Because unlike the Fast and Furious franchise, this is all about let's outdo ourselves somehow. And that is actually one of the things that makes it so much fun. Yeah, you come out of a Mission Impossible movie thinking, I can't remember what that was about, but I remember how Tom Cruise hung on the side of a plane. That was cool. Yes, and also while briefly wondering why Simon Pegg is still there, but also not complaining about it. Because it's a bad robot thing and he's pals with J.J. Abrams, I think. Yeah. That's what it is. At least he hasn't turned up to write the films like he did on Star Trek. I mean, he did a good job of that, so maybe it would be fine if he did. Let's not find out. I think it would just be an experiment that nobody's really that keen to see the results of. Yeah. Let's move on to The Haunted Mansion, or Haunted Mansion, I think it's just called. It's another attempt to turn a Disney ride into a Disney movie. Not the first time they've done it with Haunted Mansion as well. They did the really crappy version with Eddie Murphy that I saw some of and then turned it off because I found it unbearable. I remember I rented it from a video store oh way back and it wasn't even halfway through, I don't think. And I was just was not vibing with it at all. So I turned it off. This one looks like they've done a bit better, at least from the trailer. It's got a great cast and I quite like the visual aesthetic of it. So it looks like it could be a bit of fun. Yeah, I definitely think it looks like it could be a lot of fun. And it also looks like it's going to be a hell of a lot less goofy than the Eddie Murphy movie. Overall, it's definitely still going to be a broadly comedic film, but it also seemed that there were bits of it that were genuinely going to be attempting to frighten the kids that are going to see it. Which I think is actually a good thing, because it's going to be enough to be scary for kids, but not so much so that it's going to overwhelm them or make the film end up being unsuitable for them. They'll try and scare you in one scene and then make you laugh in the next scene and make you forget about the fact you were scared in the previous scene. Yeah. And when that kind of thing is done right, it works beautifully. So I do hope this film manages to do it. Yeah, and add it to the list of things based on rides. We had Pirates of the Caribbean, which are films that I don't like. Jungle Cruise, which I thought was okay. And now this. There's probably others. Can't wait to see Disney's Space Mountain. <laughs> I'm surprised that doesn't already exist. <laughs> yeah, I suppose the three that we've had, they're kind of narrative-driven, aren't they? As in the Pirates of the Caribbean, there's Pirates on the Caribbean. Jungle Cruise, you're on a cruise through the jungle. Haunted Mansion, you're in a haunted mansion. But on Space Mountain, I think it's just a ride, isn't it? It's Actually not sure, but I think so. Anybody who's been to Disneyland, let us know. Clear that up for us. Anyway, moving on. The creator, we have another emergent AI story, which is actually very topical at the moment because we're dealing with the growth of AI and more along the lines of it will end up rendering us all obsolete in any job that you do, because that's how good it's getting. But let's try and not think too heavily about that kind of apocalypse, because in a society that's a capitalist one, the idea of automating things so you don't have to employ anybody anymore is a great thing for companies, not so much for the people that work for them. But we'll have the last laugh if we haven't starved to death when they realise they have no customers because nobody works for any company because AI runs everything. So nobody has any money to buy the things that all these AIs are making. Yeah, it'd be great. Just this company director losing money. But we'll all have starved to death by then, so it doesn't make any difference because that's how capitalism works. Well, that was one of the things I always found hilarious about the latter Resident Evil movies. In, in, in the world, this entire globe of post-apocalyptic hellscape overrun by zombies, there still existed evil corporations who were trying to figure out how to monetize it. Yeah, there are no customers. You can't sell this to anybody. They're all dead. So what are you doing? 
just sitting in your bunker, just playing with your apocalypse scenarios. Yeah, I was quite intrigued by this one. It seemed to me to be a bit like a throwback to the kind of pop sci-fi that got published in the 60s, had authors using speculative fiction plots and concepts as an allegory for contemporary real-world issues. And as you say, the dangers that AI poses being quite a topical one right now. Yeah, this is an exaggeration of it, of course. Yeah. The one that Chris always brings up is, well done, we've created the Torment Nexus, as seen in the book, do not create the Torment Nexus. (laughs) (laughs) The idea that we as a civilization will not learn any lessons from the things that are warning us about this stuff, which is the biggest fear, I suppose. But the trailer looked quite cool. Cross it off the melancholy cover square on your bingo card. Got that. Technology, religion and morality seem to be the three things that the film is about which is interesting. And I wonder if the AI child is driven by the whole notion of earning entry into heaven. You know, this whole, you can't get in because you're not a good person. You can't get in for whatever reason. I can't get in because I'm a machine. So that's interesting. I think it'll be less directly getting into heaven and more philosophical discussion of exactly what constitutes a soul. Yeah, it could be in there. It could be interesting. One thing that's just concerning me a little is that in the, the actual plot description of the film, it doesn't actually state that this AI weapon is a child. So I'm just hoping that that revelation happens early enough in the film that it's not going to end up being a massive spoiler. Yeah, because otherwise the, ooh, what's behind this door? That could be a thing that you might want to think about before they reveal it, but they reveal it in the trailer, so it doesn't matter. Exactly. And I've seen trailers do nonsense like that so many times that I'm always a bit suspicious. One of those prominent examples being Wonder Woman in Batman vs Superman. The recent example of Ghosted as well is not a very good film, but the Apple TV Plus movie with Anna de Armas and Chris Evans who maybe sometimes shared screen time. <laughs> but the whole notion of her being a spy is something that you could find out organically as you watch the film. But if you watch the trailer, it just tells you. Because otherwise, I guess there's no reason to watch it, right? It's, oh, look, these two attractive people, they meet and then they fall for each other over the course of an evening. And then she doesn't reply to his texts. Why? Who's going to care about that, really? I imagine a lot of people, but I certainly wouldn't. Yeah, but on the other hand, if you need to know a major revelation in a story in order to become invested in it, then that's a fault in how the story itself is told. I always imagined a good marketing push for Ghosted would have been to not reveal that. So what you get is this change of the level of interest in the the stereotypical girlfriend drags their boyfriend to romantic comedy where they're not interested. So it starts off, oh yeah, like this this is the sort of stuff I'm into. And then it turns into a spy thriller in the (laughs) middle. It's like, oh God, this is crap. And then suddenly the boyfriend's like, yep, this is it. (laughs) So you have half the audience hating it for about half the film. And then the other half of the film, the other half of the audience perks up. It'd be quite an interesting social experiment that. Obviously that's a cliched reading of how audiences work because... Obviously, there's plenty of men that enjoy rom-coms. I'm just generally not one of them. Unless it's a really good one. Or if it's a rom-com and something else. Yeah. Generally, I don't need to see unspeakably attractive people wearing designer clothes who have really cool jobs manufacturing problems for themselves. It's not really something that I need to see in my life most of the time. I have enough real issues in my life. It's not one to see you pretending that you do. Exactly. Anyway, let's move on to the next one. Extraction 2, the Chris Hemsworth action franchise on Netflix that I haven't seen the first one of and will never see the second one of because I was in a shared sequence with Netflix accounts and now no longer have access because of crackdown on password sharing. And I'm not paying for an account. So... Screw them, really. Nobody will see this because there was only one Netflix account and everybody was sharing it. So (laughs) that's it. 
they've lost everything. The Netflix password crackdown thing is is really annoying because they seem to think it's going to create more users, but it's not because if you're sharing an account with a couple of people and then suddenly you can't anymore, that isn't going to mean that everyone will pay full price. It probably means that none of them will pay full price because you'd have been doing that for financial reasons. Exactly, but when the only factor a company can can see that in a situation is how much money they perceive that this thing costing them, then that's all they care about. I hope it blows up in their face. It's funny to see all the other streaming services throwing shade at them as if yes. they're not going to follow suit in a few months. Then we can all quote tweet Disney's mocking of Netflix when they decide that they can't share accounts anymore when Prime do it or whoever. Yes, so you'll barely be able to log on to Twitter without first having to scroll past 2,000 quote tweets saying, this you. <laughs> But also, we're going to move into a world where nobody watches anything because nobody can share the cost of streaming services anymore. Oh, I actually have watched the first movie when it came out. Though, I'm pretty sure it was only because I needed to write something about it. I can't actually remember. Because I can't actually remember anything about the film itself. Generic, then. I know I watched it, but I could not tell you a single thing that happens in it. The Russo brothers have just done pretty much rubbish since Avengers, haven't they? Honestly, the only actual thing I can think to say about it is that it continues Hollywood's baffling trend of shooting quote-unquote less developed countries through some turmeric filter. Yeah, and of course the big strong American, or is he Australian? He is actually, yeah. All right, okay. So it's not just Chris Hemsworth struggling to deliver an American accent like he sometimes does. Well, he's definitely Australian in the second trailer. He actually may have been American in the first one, for all I can remember. <laughs> Is he Australian in the first film? I'm really not sure. I can remember in the Transporter movies. In the first one, Jason Statham tried to put on an American accent. Oh, yes. I did such a terrible job that the second two, they're like, yeah, you know what, just don't bother. Yeah, we want to get home at a reasonable hour. We don't want to sit through 50 takes of you not achieving this. But this looks boring. It just looks it really does, yeah. boring. It's just looks like an incredibly boring action movie with nothing distinctive. The only thing about the trailer that interested me is not something that you'll see in the final film, seeing the credits appearing on the screen having bullet holes shot in them. Well, maybe you will. I don't know. Maybe they'll do that stylized opening credits sequence. Never know. I'll probably watch it at some point if there's literally nothing else available. God, imagine that. Right. I'll never see it because I don't have access to Netflix. But its existence... Is nothing to me. One thing to note about it is that they are advertising the fact that it has a 14-minute one-take action sequence, which I imagine is not actually one take. It will be fake one take. I was just going to say, yeah. And apparently they really set Hemsworth on fire. I don't know if that's in the same sequence, but they do it at some point. They actually set him on fire, so there we go. I don't think we should be celebrating the notion of a 14-minute one-take action sequence by itself. Because that can still be really boring. Yeah, they don't cut, but it's boring. It's just him wandering around shooting people for 14 minutes. Really dull. There seems to be this increase in the usage of those one-take sequences because people think that by themselves they're great, but they still have to be engaging. Exactly, and they also still have to serve a purpose as well. Yeah. There's got to be somewhere in between the one-take action sequence and 14 cuts of Liam Neeson climbing, climbing over a fence. <laughs> There's got to be somewhere in between that. But the John Wick movies, they cut, and nobody hates that. Yeah, they do cut. They just cut considerably less than contemporary action cinema has trained us to expect. Yeah, so what you'll get is you'll get this one 14-minute single-shot thing, 
and the rest of it will be the camera jumping around as if it's in a washing machine. Sounds about right. Really boring. Hemsworth's character's name is Taylor Rake in these films, which I find hilarious. That's the kind of name that someone ran through some online prompt of tough action movie name. Click here to generate your tough action movie name or... Your action movie name is the first letter of your first name and the town you grew up in or something. Yeah. Or the first garden implement you see, in his case. Boring. It will come out, it will be received with no fanfare, and then they'll make a third one for some reason. Yes, despite the fact no one will actually watch this one. Yeah. Let's move on. Gran Turismo, another video game adaptation. I think this approach is quite interesting, as in acknowledging the video game and then someone going to do the real thing after playing the video game, which is something that really happened, apparently. Yeah, that's certainly what Wikipedia tells me. There was a Top Gear episode, a UK Top Gear episode, where they did something similar, as in they tested the accuracy of playing Gran Turismo versus driving real cars. And they found out that it wasn't that accurate. Shocking, I know, but Mm -hmm. that's what happens. In terms of the trailer for this, it's got a wish-fulfillment angle. Oh God, I played a video game and now I'm actually really racing. And oh, it's not what I expected it to be. But also, there is definite wish fulfillment there because he gets to do it for real. He becomes really famous, and now women want to sleep with him because that's in the trailer as well. <laughs> He's kissing a girl in one scene. So, if you play video games, then you too may have women want to sleep with you at some point. Although, probably not. Yes, and the fact that your dad is a professional footballer isn't absolutely no way a factor in this. No, not at all. I think actually this made me think of more than anything is The Last Starfighter. Because it's actually the same kind of base concept. If anyone's familiar with the film, it's a sci-fi film from the early 80s where a trailer park kid playing this arcade game becomes the first person to beat it. And it's revealed that the game is actually a training simulator that's been seeded all over the galaxy by this alien race who want to recruit fighter pilots to battle their evil destructive enemies and contains all the story beats that you would accept and it's cheesy as hell very very 80s and this just came off like a considerably more grounded take on that concept even though as you say it did really happen yeah David Harbour being mean to gamers, that might be quite fun to watch for a while yeah though considering that's pretty much all he's seen to do in the trailer I'm just hoping there's more to his character than that. Nah, that'll be pretty much it. He'll be in the driving training sequences and then he'll be gone. Or at the end of the film, he'll go up to the kid and be like, you did good, kid. Well done. You really learned how to drive a car. Congratulations. (laughs) Now go back to your basement and play your video game, nerd. That's what he'll say. That's that's the exact dialogue. That'd be hilarious. I'm going to give this a watch, but there's some dodgy visual stuff in it. There's a weird zoom through... uh, racetrack it's almost like a helicopter or drone shot that goes over the racetrack but the racetrack is cgi i'm just thinking why why don't we just shoot the racetrack would that not have been cheaper you'd think weird but looks like it could be good fun i'll certainly watch it i like the gran turismo games but i've under no illusions about being plucked from the crowd in order to play them professionally or drive professionally because it just ain't going to happen i can't even drive i don't have a license well you don't need a license to drive on a race course it's private property. I can't remember if I actually knew that or not. So there you go. I could be a professional racing driver. I'm just not, for my own reasons. Anyway, move on to A Hunting in Venice, the latest Kenneth Branagh Poirot thing. can't believe they're on the third one of these. Crazy. I didn't see Death on the Nile, and I don't really know much about this one. Is it one of those stories where it looks like it's spirits and supernatural, but there's actually a logical explanation? 
Yeah, that's pretty much the idea of it. The notion of a mind that functions by rationality and empirical evidence, encountering something apparently supernatural that it can't immediately explain away. It's based on a book that was simply called Halloween Party. And it was actually one of the last Poirot stories that Agatha Christie ever actually wrote. I think there was this one, then maybe two or three more. This is Poirot more towards the end of his career, where he's just become tired and jaded and just sick of it all. I'm so sick of solving murders, man. Can't do it anymore. Which is also a little like Agatha Christie was with Poirot himself. I'm sick of writing this crap. <laughs> to the point that Tina Fey's character in the film has this woman named Ariadne Oliver. She's a character who periodically crops up in the latter Poirot stories, who is kind of like a self-insertion parody of Christie herself. She's a mystery writer who's growing tired of her most enduring creation and still gets backlash from fans about mistakes she made in her earlier work. So I'd be interested to see if they do anything with that. The film itself, it's got the aesthetic of something that Hammer might have made in a 60s. I think it'll be intended more as a kind of throwback horror movie rather than something that you might get from, say, Blumhouse. It looks pretty creepy, certainly. The imagery in the trailer was creepy enough. Yeah, I definitely think it is going to work quite well as a horror movie, albeit one that's all but guaranteed to have a rational explanation at the end. Yeah, it reminds me of the first Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes in that way. That comparison did occur to me as well, yeah. That's about him investigating something supernatural because someone rises from the dead or appears to and then Sherlock Holmes is like, nah, it can't be. There's no such thing as supernatural. And then, spoiler alert, he's right. I do think the most interesting take on that was in one of the uh, Bendit Cumberbatch Sherlock stories when they did Hound of the Baskervilles. It was a hallucinogen or something, wasn't it? Yeah, but the way that they portrayed Sherlock's reaction to it, because for most people seeing something like that, yeah, it's creepy but and it's not something to get, but it's something that I'm still a- able to accept as somehow happening. But for a mind like Sherlock's to encounter something that he genuinely cannot explain in, in any rational or physical sense because he's someone whose mind functions entirely by those parameters, then to deal with something that defies them would be absolutely terrifying to him. I thought that was a really fascinating way of dealing with it. I imagine there'll be some kind of echoes of that in this film, but certainly nothing to that level of intensity. No, I guess we'll see. Well, some people might. I don't know if I'll see this. I didn't see Death on the Nile, but I heard that it wasn't that good. It was basically a big budget Agatha Christie movie. So by Kenneth Branagh, it's just one that happened to not have quite so interesting a story or ensemble of characters than Murder on the Orient Express did. Yeah, let's move on. We have a short trailer for the Netflix animated Skull Island. Really padding out this monster verse, despite the fact that there has only been one good film in it. Really weird. But the animation looks cool. And don't know if it'll be up to much in general, but it's a bunch of people running around on Skull Island being attacked by monsters. So it's effectively the Kong Skull Island film again, but in animation. Pretty much, yeah. And also one where we can assume that there will be myriad hideous creatures that the animators have been dreaming up that can all be realised on screen far more cheaply than big-budget Hollywood CGI can. Yeah, cool. That's coming. Moving on to Disney's Wish. I'm just going to start by saying that Chris Pine's voice is great. So having him voice an evil king, sign me up. I think this looks really good. Although it does contain the song that We'll start out enjoying, but it becomes more annoying the longer it's played consistently. It's in this trailer. Yeah, but that is the same of pretty much any Disney movie in existence. I think it's been less of a thing of late, though. They moved away from making their films musicals for a while. Frozen was a bit of a return to that, wasn't it? And then Moana was the next one they did that had an earworm song. Although I don't think that ever quite reached the same heights that Frozen did. It didn't, know. Despite being better. 
yeah, I mean, it is a very, very good film. Yeah, and how far I'll go, this song is called, is better than Let It Go. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, then you've got Encanto. Yeah, I didn't much like the music in that. It was especially memorable, apart from we don't talk about Bruno. I don't think that reached the same heights that Let It Go did. No, it didn't, but it was kind of hilarious in my family because my brother-in-law is actually named Bruno. He must really hate that, then. <laughs> he does. <laughs> It was an annoying summer for him. Yeah, I can imagine. But yeah, this looks good. It's about the wishing star that Disney is famous for appropriating, being a real thing that people want because it grants them wishes. And the evil king wants the wish. And I guess the young girl is the one who deserves the wish. So you can imagine how this will play out. But it's going to be coming of age. It's going to be finding yourself. It's going to be about wishing for the right things, all that stuff. You can see where they're It's about learning what's truly important in your life and learning that life is so much better when you earn things rather than try to take shortcuts to get them. The only note I put down about this trailer was a very Disney, Disney movie. Yeah, I think it looks good. I'll certainly watch it. Plus, Chris Pine is an evil king. Yeah. Can Chris Pine do any wrong? Doesn't seem like it. It's certainly seeming not at this point. Even though he's sometimes seen as the least of the Hollywood Chris's, pretty much... Everything he's done has certainly been watchable, and even in Lesser Fair, he's usually the best thing in it. I would say he's the best of the Hollywood Chrissies. The projects he does tend to be a bit more risky and interesting, and he's also embracing the fact that he's getting older. Yeah, that's something that more actors need to do. D&D, for example, he's still your adventure action hero, but he's a dad as well. So it's embracing the fact that he can't play the young adventurer anymore, which is funny. I've said this a number of times, but the idea of his Star Trek movies are about the original series crew and their prime, but now they're pretty much the age of the <laughs> motion picture actors where Pine's in his 40s now, so he's not the young, headstrong Captain Kirk type anymore. But because they took so long to make these films, you kind of forget that. And also because, so far, the narrative of that saga has existed in a state of arrested development for basically three movies now. Yeah. Even though the actors are older, it doesn't feel like the characters are because they're not progressing in any way. Yeah. By the time they get around to making the next one, if they ever do, it'll be about Chris Pine's Kirk turning 50. Because mm-hmm. it'll have to be. But never mind. He's going to be the voice in Wish, and that way he can be ageless. But he's still an older character, because he's the older king. He's sort of middle-aged. He will certainly be one of the best things about the film. Remember when he was Spider-Man in Spider-Verse? I do, actually, yes. Hyper-competent Spider-Man. Next one, animated again, Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken. I really like the look of this. It reminds me a bit of Megamind, as in... The typical villain is the hero, the idea of people being misunderstood or having bad press about them. I like the idea of a mermaid as a spoiled celebrity. That was good. I'm sure it's absolutely no coincidence that the mermaid character has flaming red hair and an aquamarine wardrobe. Yes, that will be no coincidence whatsoever. But it looks like a bit of a superhero origin story. It has those beats there's obviously the theme of self-esteem and bullying. It seems like the mermaid is bullying her. And also your typical kids movie message about being true to yourself and not letting yourself be defined by what other people say you are, that kind of thing. Yeah, and don't listen to bullies. Don't listen to the popular people. They suck. Yep. Although, jumping briefly back to the topic of trailer editing, the trailer does seem to end in what appears to be a very spectacular sequence taken right from the film's finale. Yeah, that is a problem. Which is, again, massively disappointing. Yeah, that looks pretty cool, so I will probably see it as well. We're still on the 
undersea theme here with Meg 2 The Trench. Mm-hmm. Is it the long-awaited sequel? Was anybody waiting for this? I'm not so sure. Well, maybe not being especially clamouring for it, but when a film's basic premise is Jason Statham fighting a giant shark, who's going to say no to that? Maybe me? I don't know. <laughs> the first one is fine, I guess, but it's one of those that you have to laugh at it in order to enjoy it. It's the same as the Vin Diesel thing. There's not much about Jason Statham's line delivery that I found believable. It's the bit where he sees the Meg the first time and he says, it's a Megalodon. It's supposed to be this moment of awe and fear and you just hear none of that in <laughs> the way he delivers that line. One of my principal issues with the first film was that it took itself far too seriously. Yeah. Ruby Rose was in that, remember that? I do remember that, yes. She might never work again. Yeah, because she's just like disappeared now. I think it's because she's not a very nice person, if you believe all the stuff that people were saying on the Batwoman set. That seems to be the general consensus among those apparently in the know. Yeah, I'm not going to explicitly comment on it because I wasn't there and I don't know, but enough people were saying it. She's not in this one, though. This one seems like Jason Statham was one of the few people returning. Yeah. It has that T-Rex scene that you told me about happens in the book. Yes. I couldn't remember if I mentioned that or not. I don't know if we ever recorded talking about it, but I remember you telling me about it. That sequence that opens the trailer is pretty much taken directly from the prologue of the first book. Though that first one is the only one of them I've actually read. There's more than one? Yeah, there's a whole series of them. Oh, God. There's like half a dozen of them. How many times can you write about a bigger shark than a regular shark attacking people? Apparently, (laughs) at least six times. Just comparing the synopses of book two to this film, it seems like they're going to take quite a deviation from it now and just kind of do their own thing. Hmm. A few notes in this trailer. If you told me it was set in the Fast and Furious universe, I'd believe you. Because (laughs) there seems to be no distinction between Statham's character in this and in the Fast and Furious franchise. Other than, I guess, he doesn't seem to drive cars and drive submarines instead. But maybe that's why he left during the events of Fast X. He had to go deal with some giant sharks and he'll be back to do something else. They have super strength suits. Yes. Okay, why not? I suppose. Because when you want to include a scene of people going hand-to-hand with a giant prehistoric leviathan, that's the kind of stuff they're going to need. Yeah, except Jason Statham doesn't need it, apparently, because he kicks the Meg in the face, doesn't he? (laughs) And he's not wearing one. He doesn't need one. Yeah, because he's Jason Statham. Yeah. There's a line in the trailer that says, biggest Meg I've ever seen. Haven't you only seen two before this one? That's not really the statement you think it is. Unless they're hunting down Megs between films and it's just their job now. There's so many of them. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that's destined to become a meme. <laughs> they hunt in packs now. There's more than one Meg in this film. Like there was in the first film, but more than one Meg at once, I guess. More than one Meg at once and... Also working together rather than eating each other. Isn't that what sharks do as well in real life? Pretty sure. Certain breeds of them do, definitely. Yeah. So it looks dumb and it might be fun or it might just be too dumb to be enjoyable. I don't know. Yeah, I think it could go either way. Yeah. One thing I remember about the first film was the bit where Jason Statham sings Just Keep Swimming from Finding Nemo. (laughs) And I didn't believe that that character would know that song. So it lifted me out of the film at that point. That's an accurate observation. When did you watch Finding Nemo? And also, why did it resonate with you so powerfully that is something you remember from it? (laughs) But Jason Statham is playing Jason Statham. He always plays Jason Statham. That's what he's best at. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's not that good, but maybe he's not that good at being himself. There's a paradox for you. Actor who's terrible at playing themselves. Let's move on to something more film Twitter indie friendly. Poor things. I don't think I'm going to like this one. It looks like it's too wacky for me. It's one of those, I put the trailer on because people were raving about it. 
And then I actually watched the trailer and it was like, from the makers of The Lobster and something else I didn't like. The Killing of a Sacred Deer. That's the one. I didn't see all of that, actually. I saw most of it, but I think I fell asleep and then just never thought to go back and finish it because I wasn't keen on it while I was awake. So that's that. It's going to be one of those things. People will like it and people will rave about it for the reasons that they rave about those sorts of things. But it's too abstract for me, I think. It looks very, very arty. Yeah. And I'm not saying being arty is a bad thing and... I know I'm always talking about how superhero movies need to look less generic, but I'm not talking about this end of the scale. It made me think a little bit of those terrible videos that people kept sharing for some reason. This is what happens if Wes Anderson directed (laughs) Star Wars. This is what what happened if Wes Anderson directed Lord of the Rings. This is what an AI says. Mimicking a visual aesthetic is not telling a story. But perhaps because that was so fresh in my mind, it it just made me think of that. Because you've got a bunch of incredibly stylized visuals telling what seems to be a a quite fragmentary and incoherent story, the events of of which don't seem to actually tie together in any identifiable way. This trailer seems to tell me three things about the film, and none of which is whether I should watch it. The three things are, it's made by the same people that made these other two films. So if you like them, go see this. It tells you who's in it. So it spends a lot of time identifying who the cast are, and then it gives you all those visuals. And I imagine that some people will look at this trailer and think, oh, masterpiece, can't wait for this, going to be the best film of the year, etc., etc. Whereas I look at it and I think, why should I watch this? Okay, I like Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe, but maybe not in something like this. I know that makes me sound like a film simpleton, but hey, I am what I am. It's just one of those MCU people. Yeah, it's one of those MCU heads. That's the one. Just having a look at the film's actual plot, it seems like it's dealing with things like the nature of artificial life and when it becomes truly alive and the kind of things that constitute personal identity. Yeah, it does not come across in the trailer whatsoever. Exactly, yeah. And I think if you have to do your own reading to actually figure out what a film is going to be telling you and then retroactively apply that meaning to what you've just seen, then the trailer isn't really doing its job. No, but the people that are going to love this film are already going to love this film, so I guess you don't really need to mark it out coherently. And the thing is, I think a lot of this is down to the film snobbery thing, these debates that we get into all the time. The idea of people hate anything with a budget and love stuff like this unconditionally, it seems. I'm all for that, but the people that love this kind of stuff unconditionally, I never seem to get any coherent reason as to why. In the same way that they tell me that Guardians 3 is very bad. And they won't be able to explain why they think it's very bad. It's just that it's very bad. It just is. This is a masterpiece because it's a masterpiece. But what about it makes it a masterpiece? I'm not really into these things. I check out if I try to watch them most of the time because there's nothing for me to latch on to. And yes, that puts me in the bracket of perhaps not looking in the kind of depth that the filmmaker wants me to or whatever else or just what my interests are. And I think that's valid. Yeah, this isn't for me. Fine. I'm not going to say it's crap because... It probably isn't, but it's not for me. Therefore, I cannot enjoy it. But I would be interested to get into conversations with people that do enjoy these things and can actually articulate why they enjoy these things. Because of the people I know, I don't get that. There's a difference between something simply being bad and it being something that you personally are just not wired to enjoy. Yeah. But just because it's something that you don't enjoy doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad film. No, and I would never say that. Personally, I don't particularly enjoy war films, but I wouldn't ever say that all war films are terrible just because I personally do not like them. Chris isn't into horror, but you would never say that horror is terrible, it's just that he doesn't like it. Yeah, and honestly, I think that kind of thing is good, precisely because people have different likes and dislikes and things that passionately appeal to them and things that they utterly despise. And the fact that everyone has different views about that is what makes talking about films so much fun in the first place. Yeah. 
because if everyone had the same opinion about everything, then it would be really, really boring. But we exist in a more toxic space where if you don't consider something a masterpiece, then you're an idiot. Or just being into comic book movies makes you a simpleton because you're into comic book movies and they're obviously just dumb and not worth thinking about. According to some of the people that like these kinds of films that I personally know. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying everybody's like that because I do know plenty of people that, or maybe not plenty of people, I do know some people that do enjoy both and are able to carry on reasonable conversations about both. But I also know people that aren't and they just dismiss one side of it and champion this side of it. But again, like I'm saying, I can't ever really get a coherent analysis of why they think something like this would be a masterpiece because I don't gel with them. I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between The Lobster, which is supposedly a great example of this, and a poor example of it, because they both look the same to me. Yeah, and if you are mentally incapable of separating the two and establishing the difference between them, then it's not ever going to be something that you can enjoy. But that isn't something that you should be judged for. No. It's something that just is. And people feel like that about superhero films as well. They can't tell the difference between one and the other, because, yes, the criticism that they are interchangeable in some cases is valid but at the same time don't watch them then if you get so little out of them don't watch them like me with this i won't watch it because i know i'm probably not going to vibe with it i'm actually giving an extreme example my mum has absolutely no interest in genre fiction whatsoever just does not appeal to her in the slightest to the extent that i actually once had to explain to her the difference between sci-fi and fantasy because she thought they were the same thing I eventually boiled it down as being fantasy is lord of the rings science fiction is star trek yeah, well, there's your pillars. Yes, because it's something that doesn't interest her, so she has no knowledge of it. So that was the most basic and wide cultural touchstones that I, I could think of to differentiate the two. Hmm. Back to this trailer. I don't know if it's supposed to be good or not, because I don't really have that connection to it. So if you're into that sort of stuff and you're looking forward to it, then great, let us know. Pretty much, yeah. I am going to watch it, though I'm just a little wary about how little of what the story is purported to be about is present in the trailer itself, and by an extension will be in the actual film. But we'll see. Well, you can let us know when you watch how you vibed with it. Let's move on to Hijack, a film where Idris Elba plays a man named Jack that someone wants to say hello to. Thank you, Dad Joke from 1987. I couldn't resist. It was all I was thinking about while I was watching the trailer. It wasn't all I was thinking about, I have other notes, but that was definitely in there. Looks like the flight time will play a big part in this. That'll be a source of tension. We only have so long left on this flight. That seems to be the implication. Possibly even real time. Well, no, because it's like a 14-hour flight or something, isn't it? No, six-hour flight. Yeah, but the, the, this is a miniseries, not a film. Oh, is it? I thought it was a film. Yeah. Oh, well. I was too busy coming up with that joke to notice it was a TV series. <laughs> so yes, it, it could be a real-time 24-style thing then, in that case. I suppose it is a bit of a specific time, isn't it? Six hours, 54 minutes, which could be the running time of a miniseries. And also a very specific time, as well as the fact that the trailer kept reminding us of it. It's definitely going to have some major significance. So that ratchets up a new question for me then. Do you think this will be a mini-series that could have just been a two-hour film? Yes, I do. If the fact that the trailer looks like it actually is a film and has a plot that can be told in a single film, then yeah, it probably could have been. Generic title as well, Hijack. Yeah, it really annoys me when they do that. Yeah. Looks pretty tense though, and Idris Elba's always really good in these things. Christine Adams is in it. Black Lightning throwback there. Other than that, I suppose I don't have that much more to say about it. Looks all right. One major thing I was thinking is it looks like it's going to be a lot more psychological than you might expect. 
what have to be if they need to pad out seven hours. Yeah, but given the basic concept of terrorists hijacking a plane, then you're immediate go-to would be to assume it's an action story. Yeah, certainly the time that a miniseries would give you would give you the opportunity to dig into the mindset of the passengers. Because in a lot of these hijacking films that we've seen, they don't really do an awful lot of that. Yeah, because they're just generic background faces. They scream a lot or whatever, and yeah. that's about it. Yeah. And we're generally otherwise supposed to ignore as non-entities unimportant to the story. Yeah, so how do these people start to unravel over the period of six hours being at risk of death, essentially. That could be an interesting angle if they choose to explore it and they use the time effectively. Otherwise, we might come out of it thinking, oh, that could have really been a two-hour film. We'll see. But Idris Elba's always really good. And he doesn't seem to be attracted to crap in terms of projects, does he, very often? The Dark Tower notwithstanding. Yeah, and even if what he's appearing in is rubbish, he is always excellent in it. Could it be one of those things where it's essentially just Luther on a plane? Quite possibly, actually. Okay, let's move on to No Hard Feelings, this Jennifer Lawrence film. Based on what I've seen so far, this film offends me on so many levels. The central premise is about the fact that someone's parents don't seem to like the fact that their child is an introvert and about to go to university as an introvert, and they seem to think it's okay to force him to become less of an introvert. One thing that always annoys me is, why are introverts always expected to be more outgoing? Why is that something that needs to be quote-unquote fixed? Lines in the trailer are things like, you need to learn how to party. Why? Why does he need to learn how to do that? Yeah, exactly what professional or social skills will I acquire by getting wasted with a bunch of strangers? Or people to whom I am, at best, indifferent? Yeah. This kid could go to university and just find his people, as people often do. Mm -hmm. But no. That's not allowed to happen. You have to get Jennifer Lawrence to debase herself and do horrible, unspeakable things to force him out of his shell. The trailer does make the point of Academy Award winner Jennifer Lawrence as if to say, yes, really, she's an Academy Award winner and she's in this. Exactly, because for some reason she's at a point in her career where she actually said yes to this crap. said it before when we talked about the first trailer on a previous news podcast. The messaging of this thing just seems icky to me. I don't understand really what it's getting at and why its message is supposed to be a good thing. Or is it just supposed to be one of those raunchy comedies that we're not supposed to think about? It thinks it is, but the issues that it comes with will overshadow that far more. And also, another thing about it that annoyed me is that it's a continuation of the troubling notion that sexual harassment is perfectly acceptable if it's being done to a guy by a hot woman. Yep, that's another issue I had with it. Like I say, this film offends me. And another one I considered, giving the premise and also the actual title of it, is that there could have been a possibility of portraying the guy as being asexual. Though I think it would take considerably more self-awareness than this film quite clearly possesses, or rather doesn't, in order to even think of mentioning that, let alone talk about it in a reasonable, sensitive manner. If that is a road to go down, it'll be something that needs to be fixed as well. Oh, of course, yeah, because if you don't want to screw everyone inside, there's something wrong with you. Same with the introvert thing again that's commonly perceived as something that's wrong with people but it's not it's just they're not into the things you are they don't want to live their life in the way you do they don't feel confident the way you do so there's nothing fixed there it's just a state of being exactly it's not something to be repaired or erased it just is the thing is i'm gonna feel compelled to see this film just to really see what it does with all these horrific ideas it's floating around in the trailer I'm going to get utterly blitzed on painkillers before watching it, because then there's a small chance I might find it funny. That's an option, I suppose. I don't have that option. I'll go watch it and try to keep an open mind. <laughs> it's funny you would go into this thinking, oh, well, if I hadn't seen the trailer, I would 
feel better about this. A Jennifer Lawrence rom-com, why not? Would be perhaps as far as I get without seeing the trailer. <laughs> Let's move on to June Part 2. It's deliberately vague, of course. Mm-hmm. It shows you it's very long cast list at the end. They've managed to coax every hot property in Hollywood practically in these two films so far. I'm sure it'll be great. I liked the first one a lot and it'll be good to see it finished because it's only half a story. It just sort of ends. I'm a lot more ambivalent about it. Yes, the first movie, obviously, it was visually spectacular. And this turned over from the book rather than specifically the film itself. But it's just that Paul is a really, really boring protagonist. He's basically portrayed as some messianic space Jesus. And he is one of the biggest Mary Sue characters in the history of literature. He's just so naturally gifted at everything, and absolutely everything comes to him intuitively with no to minimal training, because he's just so incredibly special and destined to become this prophet of the spice or some... Sorry, it really annoys me. (laughs) They need to be careful not to fall into the white saviour trap of the Paul character. That too, yes. Because as I understand it, the book does fall into that trap. Very much so. And I am aware that I am in a very small minority with my general dislike of the novel. It does have lots of really great ideas. But just when the whole thing is held together by a character who at best irritates me, then for me the whole thing just falls flat. And there's a limited amount of excitement I can muster for an adaptation of it. That's fair. I am glad it got made, though, because it just seemed like an uncommon thing to spend so much money on. And you can certainly see where all the money went as well. Yeah. Casting, visuals. It's all on screen. Yeah. No money laundering on the June set, it seems, or location of whatever they did. For the next two trailers, there's a big debate online around the fact that these two films are supposedly still releasing on the same day, and the debate is around... Which of these are you going to see first on that same day that you go and see these two films? I don't have the answer to that because my answer is essentially whichever times work out is the most convenient. It depends on Sony World scheduling. Yes, exactly. But I can say that we are going to discuss the trailers in a very specific order. And the decision was made because that's just the order that I copied and pasted the links on my notes. <laughs> there was zero thought put into it whatsoever. Although I did group them together deliberately just so i could do this bit so there was some thought i guess but i didn't put any thought into which one came first i was briefly concerned there for a moment because i was just thinking hang on what completely obvious thing have i utterly missed about this that i should have (laughs) thought about before now let's start with barbie this trailer gives you a bit more of an idea of what the film is actually about it's essentially the lego movie but with barbie in a lot of ways and there's some interesting touches the fact that she floats down from the second floor of her house because that's what a kid would do mm-hmm. when playing with Barbies. The shower doesn't actually work because it's not a real shower. It's just a dream house. All that stuff. I get the sense that the film is about the debate around whether Barbie needs to be more progressive and realistic. And I quite like the idea that Barbie's not into that idea herself. Because she's a product of the time she was made, I guess. Where she's happy just being the vacuous party girl. So she goes into the real world and will get a bit better perspective on what she represents, what Ken represents, etc, etc. There's some old-fashioned stuff in there, such as Ken assuming that he can do anything and go anywhere because he's a man, and he gets to perform surgery because he's a man, which is a bit weird. But maybe the film gets away with that kind of commentary because it is made by a woman. Yeah, I've no doubt that was included just as an indicator of how painfully and uncomfortably dated a lot of those ideas actually are. And because Barbie came into being at a time when that kind of mindset was considered 
standard, but I don't really think there'll be anything more to it. No, maybe not. It just seems like that's what they're getting at in terms of the commentary. The, the concept of relevance and all that's in there as well, because you get that moment in the trailer where the kids say, oh, I've played with Barbie since I was five, and she's horrified by this prospect. The idea that she, I guess, feels like she's some kind of timeless icon, maybe. Everything in Barbie land is perfect and static. Exactly, so everything must remain perfect, because at the core level, she was created to be perfect. Yeah. She was meant to exemplify a feminine ideal, which no longer exists. Well, if a woman was actually that proportion, she would break her spine, wouldn't she? Something like that, yeah. Or she'd need to be, like, seven feet tall to actually be able to physically function. (laughs) Yeah. So it's the unrealistic beauty expectations that will no doubt be in there. And I think Margot Robbie's an interesting bit of casting for that because she's obviously gorgeous, but she has fun with it a lot of the time in a lot of the roles that she plays. Yeah, and that's something else that I find quite interesting about the casting because I've come to the opinion that Ryan Gosling has that kind of attitude towards his own appearance. He could have easily spent the last 25 years just coasting by on his looks and appearing in really generic Hollywood fare, but it seems like he chooses projects because they interest him and the characters that he plays aren't always relevant to what he looks like. Yeah, I think Margot Robbie's done a bit of both. She's done the kind of vapid, blockbuster-ish roles but she's also done some interesting stuff in the mix not bad for a soap actor from neighbors i generally can't remember if if she was ever on it when i would have watched it it was long after i was watching it that she appeared so i can only remember fragments of anyway yeah this could be good i think there's some interesting ideas in there if it is essentially the lego movie but with barbie then that's a good foundation to build on it even has will ferrell i did make that connection Not sure how intentional as meta commentary that was, but it's still a nice link and observation nonetheless. It's a fun little detail, yeah. Well, let's move on to the other film we'll be seeing that day Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's latest and his first with Universal rather than Warner Brothers. I'm not quite sure what to make of this, although I have seen some interesting takes on it that we'll get to. Obviously, it looks visually great, and there's this whole sense of destiny and inevitability to the trailer, the idea that. This is something that you had to move towards and it's going to change the world and all this stuff. And then the the whole risk of destroying the world, igniting the atmosphere when you set off the bomb, even though it's low, it's possible. I'm interested in it and I wonder what Nolan will do with it. I'm not the biggest Christopher Nolan fan, but I do think that he does have things to say and he is capable of making great stuff. It looks like there'll be very limited opportunity for him to muffle someone's voice by sticking their head in a helmet or something (laughs) in this film. So that's a plus. We might be able to hear what people are saying. That'd be cool. Always a handy thing when you're dealing with forms of communication that have a large auditory component to them. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it didn't seem to trouble them before, but yeah. (laughs) What do you make of this? I think it's going to be an interesting story told in a suitably epic manner, and I imagine that we can expect a a lot of soul-searching to do with the morality of creating apocalyptically powerful weapons in the name of maintaining peace. Yeah, it's certainly interesting, although I'm not looking forward to the post-release Nolan discourse that always accompanies films that he makes. It's a masterpiece, I don't want to hear anybody say anything about it, and then when you try to get into an actual analytical conversation about it, People shoot you down because it's a masterpiece. It's flawless. And if you disagree, you're wrong. Yeah. It's always fun. Christopher Nolan has all those people fighting his corner for some reason. Two interesting takes that I can't take credit for, but I found them interesting anyway, is that this film might actually be about the Dark Knight in a weird way. Because Christopher Nolan does make films about himself. He's an artist. He's arrogant. They do that. In Tenet, Robert Pattinson is basically him. He dresses like him, etc. He's a self-insert type. 
character in a lot of ways. But The Dark Knight was a film that shaped the landscape of blockbuster cinema, or cinema in general, ever since its release. And the atomic bomb changed the world completely after that point, as in you couldn't go back to the old world after that was made. So I wonder if the bomb in the film is a metaphor for the Dark Knight and the way his life changed after that, the way cinema changed, the world changed after that. I didn't see the reading explained in enough detail to fully convince me, but I think there's something in that. It's certainly an interesting take, and I can certainly see where the connection was made. Well, I'm not sure exactly how much of that can be directly expressed visually or narratively. No, it'd be a subtext thing. Yeah, but even in terms of subtext, not quite sure how significant it will end up being. No, it's more just Christopher Nolan made The Dark Knight. It was hugely successful. It ended up shaping cinema in a lot of ways, for better and for worse, in terms of its imitators. And the landscape was never the same after it, and the same applies to the atomic bomb where Oppenheimer was concerned. That's your connection. It's one of those accidental, maybe it's not Nolan intended as such, but at the same time, it's Mm -hmm. interesting. The other take was Tenet didn't do very well, so he's now making a film about someone creating a bomb, putting a lot of effort (laughs) into creating a bomb. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, I like that too. So yeah, we'll see. And we'll report back on what we saw first, Oppenheimer or Barbie. I feel like Oppenheimer's the one to end on. That's my initial impression. Yeah, I imagine Oppenheimer will be a bit heavy for early morning viewing. Yeah, although both are releasing an IMAX and Cineworld only have one IMAX. So what's going to happen there? Mm-hmm. There's a question. That's the one I really want to know the answer to. Anyway, moving on. We have another trailer for Strange New Worlds Season 2. Indeed. This one shows you a lot more stuff. The visuals are great, and there's a lot of different things happening to various characters. I really like the look of this. I enjoyed season one for the most part. I like the characters, I like the cast, I like how it looks. I like that it's more old school in terms of Star Trek, as in each episode is identifiably about something, and then the next episode is identifiably about something else. That appeals to me. There's going to be that crossover with Lord X with the weird Uncanny Valley look at the two Lord X characters in live action. Boimler and Mariner. Yeah. Both wearing wigs, apparently. I think Boimler's hair's not purple enough, actually. I did think that, yeah. So, what do you think of this trailer? Are you familiar with Strange New Worlds? Have you seen any of it? I have, actually, yes. It was a series that I was aware of, and a series I meant to watch, and a series that I then completely forgot about. And then when it became something that I was required to talk about on this podcast, I basically binged the entire first season over the weekend. Just on the off chance there was any context that could be applied to what we've seen in the trailer. One particular thing that kind of jumped out was the fact that we're seeing shots of number one and Laan. So at some point there's definitely going to be a return to something resembling status quo. Yeah, they'll resolve that quickly. You'll have the court martial episode and then she'll be back at her old job. That's the way Star Trek used to do things. Exactly. And the way that Star Trek used to do things is the way that this series is doing them. Yes, that's good. I don't want to have a long stretched out 10 episode. Remember this trial that's coming up? Don't want that. Yeah, say the kind of nonsense for a supplemental Picard season. Yes, and that's the thing that modern Star Trek is very bad at, is serialisation. Even though most of the series have built themselves on the idea of being serialised, they're just very bad at it. Yeah, one particular thing that I really liked about the first season is, as you're saying, that each episode is identifiably about something. But also, each episode, it's a different kind of story. You've got your action-heavy episodes, and the diplomacy ones, and character episodes. And you got that one that was basically a holodeck episode, but not. Yeah. Don't like that one, but okay. It was fun seeing the characters play 
pretty much the diametrically opposites of their true personalities, but particularly Lana's petulant bimbo princess, which I thought was hilarious. The one thing I always say about that episode in particular is episodes like that are more fun for the actors than they are for the audience. Yeah. A lot of people loved that episode, I just didn't, so I'm just making that declarative statement. The accurate statement is that episode is more fun for the actors than it is for a chunk of the audience. Yeah, you got an episode like that that's broadly comedic, then followed by a horror story that heavily riffs on Alien. But the fact that the series has created a world where all these different types of stories can conceivably exist simultaneously, I think is quite an achievement. And the fact that it is populated with people who are interesting and you care about, is another reason that I'm looking forward to going back to it. The one thing that I wonder about Strange New Worlds, actually, because they call it a prequel, and I suppose it kind of is, but I do wonder if it is more of a reboot because there's some elements of it where you just cannot mesh them with the original series. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I actually would prefer if it was a reboot because being slavish to the original series would mean that you have a far less interesting show because there's only so far you can take certain characters. As in Spock has to effectively develop in the wrong direction. Exactly, because in this series he's more developed as a person than he was when Leonard Nimoy played him. Yeah, and that's a function of the time and so on. So the idea you meet a character at a point in his life and then that means you can just have them at that point in their life and you can develop them from that point. But Stranger Worlds has to develop them to the point of the original series, which is boring in terms of the progression of the character in this show, because you have to push him further into himself, so to speak. And there's things like Chapel. Chapel is a completely different character in this show than yes. she is in the original series. And this trailer shows her and Spock kissing, which is a complete divergence from the original series because the whole nature of their relationship is that she was love-struck and he didn't know. Mm-hmm. He was incapable of recognising that. So for me, it just feels like a reboot. And I actually have this theory that they're going to stealth turn it into a reboot of the original series eventually. They're going to just trickle in the original series characters and eventually the cast will hand over to the original series cast. Because you've already got Kirk, you'll be in this season, and so on. So, Well, maybe not and so on, they haven't said about any others, but imagine you could get Sulu turn up at one point and appear in the Enterprise as the relief helmsman or something like that. Yeah, and we've kind of had Scotty, sort of. Kind of, yeah. Like we heard him, at least. Alternate timeline, but yeah. So they could easily bring him in, stuff like that. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to getting stuck into the screeners when I get the chance to. Because you are a very big and important person who gets screeners ahead of time and can watch them before everybody else. Excuse me while I tweet about the fact that <laughs> I have the first six episodes and I'll be sure to thank Paramount UK for supplying them as well, because that's what douchebags do on the internet <laughs> so there we go strange new world season two okay let's move on to some less trailer what the hell was that christ what no that was loud oh can't get God. anything done without being distracted i'm gonna go look into this so you hide here in case it's something dangerous sure i'll see if twitter is telling me anything about what's going on see if i've sent that tweet about being a douchebag and having screeners yeah because everyone needs to know about it everyone does yes Cat, you're here too. Does that noise mean that we have to try and kill each other? Is that what it says? Listen, we all know that I'm going to die in the next five minutes. <laughs> the odds are not in my favor. We all knew it was going towards this. <laughs> yeah. From day one, this is where it was going to end. Or we could become mates for ratings. I don't know. Oh, maybe. maybe. That works. I mean, yeah, sure. Depends if people like us. Please sponsor me. We don't know what the outside world thinks. Give me a bottle of water or something. It can make it or break it, so for sure. <laughs> In an endurance-driven fight to the death, I'll probably be gone the first ten minutes. I suspect I will just trip and die. (laughs) (laughs) 
You don't even have to kill me. <laughs> Step on one of the landmines. If you have me run for any stretch, it's not going to go well. Well, I like to pick up milk at the near shop and my legs are like lead weights, so I don't yeah. know my chances <laughs> in here. Anyway, we're here to talk about the Hunger Games prequel trailer, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. There is a trailer for this. You are a Hunger Games expert. I am someone that has seen all of the films once and read all the books once. So what did you think of this trailer for this new film? And what do you think of the idea of this new film, this prequel? I am really excited about this. I don't remember if I've said this on the podcast before, but I think that the Hunger Games movies elevate the source material to just a level that the books themselves can't get to, which is a rarity, I think, in adaptation and in cinema. It's doing the exact correct thing where you take what the source material is and you use the new art form, which is cinema, which has more visuals and all sorts of other things that books can't convey and enrich. I love the films very much. I think they punch above their weight. And obviously, the later films also have a bigger budget, so they get to do a lot more visually. But just in terms of the story, I've enjoyed the films very much. The books are kind of okay. And I felt the same about this book, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. At first, when it was announced, I was so skeptical. I was like, do we need this? And especially, do we need a prequel about Coriolanus Snow? Am I supposed to rally for him now or sympathize or empathize with him. I don't think that I'm willing to do that. So I avoided reading the book for years after it came out. And then at some point last year, I wanted something quick and easy, basically, because Suzanne Collins, bless her heart, is not the most complex of writers. I was like, I think I can read a middle grade book or even young adult if you class this as that. And it's a world I know, so it'll be a quick and easy read. So let's do that. And I actually got really into it. I think it adds a lot to the world and to the core commentary that Collins tries to make about our world and the dystopian levels to which it could head if we're not careful. And despite the fact that Coriolina Snow is still quite a reprehensible character, there's glimpses of a good person in there. And... What the book, I think, tries to do is kind of show you what happens when you're trapped in a system and when even the most idealistic children who might want to and be able to break free, how that becomes difficult when the system actually reinforces those structures of power. The trailer looks perfect. The cast looks great. They've brought back all of that production design, the brutalist architecture, the dark and bright costumes, the beginnings of the capital, as we will, I suppose, know it in the future, the way that it is in the Hunger Games films. It's not there yet, because this is early days just after the war finished, and the capital is still struggling financially and resource-wise. And just seeing all of that really excites me. Violet Davis is going to do such a good job as this character who's kind of a mentor unwillingly for Coriolana Snow. She becomes his mentor and the Hunger Games as they will come to be are kind of her, not creation, but the format, if you will. And so just seeing her in kind of a villainous role is very interesting and I'm here for it. And the core cast as well. Gosh, I forget. Girl who was in West Side Story. Rachel Zegler. Thank you so much. Rachel Zegler is going to be 
fantastic, I think, because the character she is portraying, Lucy Gray Baird, is a singer. We know already that she has singing chops, so that's, I think, going to work very, very well. And I don't think I've seen any of the younger cast before, but I'm excited. They've made them look perfect, I think. It's going to be interesting what response the film is going to have. I think it asks the same as the prequel book asked. Jump back into this world, but see it from a different perspective for a bit. And I wonder if the core message of this story is going to reach people in the way that it's intended. It's interesting because I think a lot of the Hunger Games response sometimes was not exactly right. We're trying to criticize the commodification and the glorification of violence in the media and in the world, what spectacles we make of war and of suffering. And I don't know that people quite got <laughs> that because then it became like oh isn't the hunger games cool we should do a hunger games thing no it's supposed to be bad you're not supposed <laughs> to want this so it'll be interesting to see how people respond to it but as far as trailers go this has me very excited i think i think the hunger games and the purge have a bit in common in terms of mm. what they're saying about the class divide that exists yeah in developed society, or supposedly mm -hmm. developed. I use developed in inverted commas. In quotations, yes, sure. But the idea of the people at the bottom have to kill each other to scramble for the scraps mm -hmm. while propping the whole thing up. The people at the top will never suffer any of the negative consequences of their actions. Exactly. So I wonder if maybe the story was a little bit ahead of its time in terms of people to get it, because I think it's only in the past few years that that's really become a prominent thing that people have been starting to buy into, as in, no, we are screwed. Look at how poor we all are. I agree. Anti-capitalist rhetoric was not so common before the pandemic, probably. And it's the way in which the world broke during the pandemic in the last two, three years, how all of the cracks within the system that we live in became very apparent. I think you're right. I think maybe bringing this movie out now in this climate are people going to perhaps see that message a little clearer and bring back the old Hunger Games films to rewatch and stuff? Are we going to see a better understanding of that criticism? I think that's a very fair point. I've only seen the Hunger Games films, each of them once, and I remember being pretty nonplussed by them at the time, although I did watch all four of them, and I do think there should only have been three, but that's a discussion <laughs> we can have at a later time. Yeah. It was all the rage at the time. Let's split our last film into two so we get double the box office. Yeah, exactly. There's no creative reason to do this, but we're doing it. It's just the way it was. Twilight did it. Harry Potter did it. Hunger Games did it. Divergent was going to do it. Instead, yeah. they just never got to finish their story. Yeah, I think that tendency died with Divergent because, <laughs> I mean, it killed a movie. It sunk their profits. It was just not a good idea. So I don't think they've done it since. No, and neither they should. Yeah, that's enough of that. <laughs> because invariably you get the first film where they don't do very much and the second film where they do almost everything. Everything, yeah. Although they are splitting Wicked into two films. I can't imagine why that's the case, but that's what they're doing. Yeah. This trailer, though, I thought it looked pretty good. I was a bit confused by some of it because I'm not super into the lore. For example, one of the things was they talk about this being the first Hunger Games it's the 10th Hunger Games. The 10th Hunger Games. All right, okay. It's very new. Snow was a kid during the war. All of this is background story. I'm sure it'll come out in the film. Yeah. 
but his father was instrumental in the invention of the Hunger Games. And some of the other people that you see in the trailer, including Peter Dinklage's character, Dean Highbottom, he's the dean at the prestigious school that Snow goes to. So the inventors of the Hunger Games are very much characters in this. And I think what's very interesting is through the course of the book, we kind of see glimpses of what the Hunger Games become, but they are not that yet. Literally, what it used to be is they put some kids in an arena and they just had them fight. No spectacle, no shenanigans, no messing with them or sending weird creatures or changing the environment or anything like that. It was just kind of like, there you go, now die. And they wouldn't even feed them originally. They wouldn't even give them food. So a very different approach to all of it. There is a mention of the first Hunger Games in the trailer, though. I wonder if we'll get a flashback to that event. Maybe. I think I heard 10th Hunger Games in the trailer, No, you're probably right, because they mentioned the Ted's Reaping, but I'm sure I heard them mention the first Hunger Games as well. Yeah, very possible that that's going to be a flashback of some kind. Yeah. Here we are on the 10th anniversary. Let's reflect on how this all started. Mm -hmm. Focusing on who is ultimately a villain in the previous films is an interesting one. I don't think we've really seen anything where they do a prequel centering on a villainous character that actually fully commits to making them awful. Yeah. We usually try to fall back on, well, this is... That thing that happened that made them go down this path. He's just misunderstood. Yeah. (laughs) Because even Cruella, they completely changed her backstory in order to make it a more palatable character, I suppose. Rather than just, she's an awful woman that hates dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which is enough as a backstory, I think. I think those kinds of awful people exist, but there's also not two hours in that. Mm. That's why 101 Dalmatians isn't about Cruella de Vil. Because she's... The antagonist. Done that a couple of times with various things. Even Joker, they tried to make you sympathise with him in some ways, mm-hmm. which I wasn't for at all. That no, a big mistake. I hope they fully commit here, but I'm not convinced they will. Here's the thing, at least in the book, it's a strange kind of dichotomy. The book is told from the perspective of Snow in the third person, but it's very much from his point of view. And even he is conflicted about how he feels about a lot of things. On the one hand, he comes from a capital family. They've lost their fortune. They're very much living off of food stamps, basically, charity. They're not doing well. They're scrambling to make back the reputation and the might, the power that they used to have in the capital. And on the other hand, he sees everything that they do in the Hunger Games and he doesn't like it. He wants to stop a lot of the violence. What happens with Snow here is he becomes one of the first ever mentors because they never used to bring victors to be the mentors of the current tributes. And so he is assigned to basically protect or rather coach one of the tributes and try and help her win. And he does feel for her and he wants to save her, not just because winning would mean that he does well in the capital, but also because he realizes that this is a terrible situation to find herself in and he doesn't feel good about perpetuating it. And yet, there's a part of him that can't escape the mentality of, I have to grasp my way to the top, no matter what it takes. Do I hurt people? What does that mean? And so that's 
struggle, I think in the book, it feels a little bit push and pull. And what I'm hoping for the film is to kind of bring that forward and really make us see that very visibly. I think Collins, maybe because she tries to keep the book at a level that middle grade or young adult readers can read it, perhaps is not conveying the complexity of that moral dilemma. I think the Hunger Games films to those issues and I think they elevated them to a point that they can really shine. So that's my hope and ambition for this movie is for us to really see that conflicted nature of Snow that he wants to but he kind of can't escape the system that he has been born into. And then we know that several years later at some point he will just be all in. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting origin story. Like you say, they usually humanize the villain. I don't think this book does that, and I don't think this film does that. Perhaps it starts off a little bit like this, and you go, oh, is he actually nice? And then by the end, you're like, no, he's still the villain. Okay, fine. So I don't think it asks of us to like someone whose story we know at least where he ends up. The Rachel Zegler career trajectory is quite interesting. Apparently Mm. she auditioned for West Side Story on Twitter. There was an open casting call, and apparently she auditioned there and got the part which is amazing. And I think she's only done like two things, West Side Story and the other one being Shazam, Mm -hmm, which I thought she was pretty good in, such as she was. She didn't have a pile to do in there. Such as that movie was at the very least, yeah. Yeah, I liked that movie. I thought it was good fun, but no one's going to call it high or deep art. And I don't think it's supposed to be. That's a separate conversation. But her trajectory is quite interesting. She's getting all these blockbuster-ish roles. Could this be her... Jennifer Lawrence launching pad like the Hunger Games was. Who knows? Because she was relatively unknown at the time when she did that first movie. Yeah, but she really rose to stardom there. I think she's definitely going to be quite a long-lived star if that talent's anything to go by. Yeah, well, I hope so. She seems really good and really enthusiastic. Then again, it might just peter out like sometimes these things do. This person had potential. Where did they go? That could be where it goes. But she gets to sing, which apparently she's very good at. Mm-hmm. West Side Story and her YouTube channel as well, where she does a lot of covers, or used to do anyway, I'm told. I haven't actually listened to any of them. So that's cool. I thought the trailer was fine. I'm not hugely invested in the Hunger Games franchise, as it is having only seen all of them once. I will do a rewatch, I guess, to see if anything has changed in the years since. There are certain films that I feel like I could maybe go back to them, whereas with Harry Potter, I don't think I ever will. I think once was enough. I've watched The Hunger Games quite a few times. The first film was my favorite thing when that came out. I think it was 2012. Uh, I was 22. I got a job at my local cinema. So I watched all of those movies as they were coming out at work, basically. And I love them very much, especially the first one. I could probably quote it back to back. (laughs) That and The Lord of the Rings is that level. I've watched it that many times. The later ones, I just recently completed a rewatch of all four. Because while reading The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, I wanted to see if the stuff that's connecting the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes to any of the Hunger Games story, how clear is that connection in the films at the very least? And it is and it isn't, but that's because we see everything from Katniss's point of view, and Katniss doesn't know any of this. And at no point is she made aware. 
of this story. And part of it is because history has been rewritten in that classic capital way where they only keep the elements that serve to oppress, but not often the truth. It's interesting to me that in the trailer, they had some opportunities to maybe use the Hanging Tree song that became really popular after the fourth movie. Really great melody and it's actually significant in the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. And so I was like, ah, you could have used that in the trailer, but you didn't. That's a shame. Maybe the next trailer. Maybe. I'm hoping they will because, come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) That was another idea that I didn't even think about, the revisionist history aspect of it because I'd kind of forgotten that's in there. But Mm -hmm. we're living that at the moment where certain world leaders or former world leaders are trying to change the narrative to suit their own ends. Yeah. It's possibly more topical than it ever was then. If these themes and ideas are suddenly becoming a bit more close to home than they were at the time. Yeah, a little bit. The one thing I remember about the second film, weirdly, is that it had the longest continuous IMAX format sequence ever at that point. Oh, that's interesting. As soon as Katniss goes into the games in the second film, it switches to IMAX and doesn't change back until after the games. I see. So the entire Hunger Games, all of that is IMAX. That's very cool. Before that, any IMAX created sequences were much shorter, I guess, than that. Yeah. Obviously, it changed very quickly after that. The record was broken probably months later. (laughs) And definitely by the time Avatar The Way of Water came out. All the Marvel movies, well, all the big ticket Marvel movies, they were all filmed exclusively on IMAX cameras. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll see this. And we've discussed possibly doing some kind of retrospective primer type episode prior to the release of this thing later in the year. Yeah, for the listeners, let us know if that's of interest, because I could talk about The Hunger <laughs> Games forever and ever. So that's completely fine by me. And if you don't let us know, we might end up doing it anyway. We might do it anyway. <laughs> Such as these things work. But yeah, I'm trying to do these primer episodes, none of which have been released at the time of recording, but they do exist. Doing Mm. one for Secret Invasion that talks about the cartoon episodes that adapted Secret Invasion that have absolutely nothing to do with the upcoming Secret Invasion TV show. Oh, well, that's cool, though. And for The Flash, did the animated adaptation of Flashpoint as well as the very lacking episode of the Flash TV (laughs) show that also adapted Flashpoint. Right. So getting these on the go, they quite an interesting excuse to revisit things. Absolutely. Anything else on this trailer before one of us kills the other one? Or are we running high behind a tree until it all blows over? Whichever one we want to do. Yes, listen, as I grab this axe, (laughs) nothing else really. I'm just very excited for this, actually, despite myself. I wanted to resist, but actually... (laughs) As much as most prequels kind of bore me just by existing, I think there is something to be said about fleshing out some of the aspects of the world that resonate. And as you say, maybe they resonate a little more now, and that's why they become important again. So bring it on. I think it looks great. Yeah, and maybe there'll be some stuff in there that shows how our world turned into their world, because... That's often the thing with these post-apocalyptic things. You see the setup and you think, how did we become them. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking that with Divergent when I saw the first one, I was just thinking, how did society become this? Oh, God. <laughs> Listen, Divergent is an entirely different bag of cats, as I say. Oh, yes. It was written as part of National Novel Writing Month and very much on the back of The Hunger Games. So it's not too deep. And if you hear Victoria Roth talk about it now, we all know that mistakes were made. <laughs> 
but look how much money I made, so screw you, suckers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, good for you. <laughs> yeah, if I wrote something that I thought was crap after a while and ended up making a lot of money out of it, I would find a way to live with it. Yeah, exactly. Maybe rubbish, but I'm rich and you're not. So great. Uh-huh. But anyway, I'll give you a five second head start and then I'm going to run in the other direction as well because the thought of getting into some kind of Mortal Kombat situation makes me queasy. Very well. On your marks. Get set. Good luck. See you later. May the odds be ever in your favor. Okay, I'm back. It's just a Hunger Games scenario with Kat. We chose not to kill each other. That's very, very mature of you both. It's because we're really lazy, to be honest. It was just one of those things where we just couldn't be bothered. So we're both alive. Glad to hear it. Anyway, where were we? Let's move on to more general news. Let's start with one of our pillars, the Marvel Universe. Let's start off with some news about Deadpool 3. Rob Delaney is to return as human X-Force member Peter. So it basically sounds like they're just getting the entire cast of Deadpool back for Deadpool 3. It would be nice if at some point Peter somehow has something meaningful to do. Because he basically just was a joke character. His only purpose was for a couple of punchlines. So to bring him for this one just seems a bit of an arbitrary choice. Unless it's going to develop into Deadpool making some metafictional reference about sequels, insisting on bringing every single actor back for sequels, regardless of whether or not they're going to be any use or interest in it, then you can drive yourself insane with that kind of thought process. The interesting thing is, though, Deadpool 3 is still going into production despite the fact that there's a writer's strike, which might actually be to its detriment because it means that Ryan Reynolds can't actually ad-lib on set because that would count as performing a writing task. Actually, that never occurred to me. Because Ryan Reynolds is part of the Writers Guild of America, he won't be able to do that because that would be considered work. And I think actors aren't allowed to do that without the writers being on set to say, yeah, that's fine. So... That's a complication. But the thing about that is they could film it now. Ryan Reynolds could say what's in the script. And if he comes up with anything better, they can just add it later. Because his face is fully covered. So you can just fix it in post. That would work, actually. Rob Delaney joins other returning actors, such as Karen Sony, Leslie Uggams, Marina Baccarin, Stefan Kapicic. They played Deadpool's cab driver, sidekick Dopinder, his roommate Blind Al, his fiance Vanessa, who the sequel killed and revived, hmm. and Colossus. Newcomers to the franchise will include Hugh Jackman, who is Wolverine, of course. The Crown's Emma Quinn and Succession's Matthew McFadden in as yet undisclosed roles. Yes, and the notable absence of T.J. Miller, which was pretty much inevitable. Yeah, of course. For reasons people likely know about. Yeah, and if you don't. I'm not going to tell you, look it up. Or don't, because you'll wish you hadn't. Yeah. Also for Deadpool, we have returning Brianna Hildebrand and Shuli Kutsuna, reprising the roles as Negasonic Teenage Warhead. I feel like I want to sing that in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme. Which may or may not be because that's what Honest Trailers did. Oh, did they? I don't think I saw that one. You know, at the end of each one, they do their starring kind of yeah, thing, yeah. Okay. like a pun name for each of them. I've heard it went Teenage Mutant Negasonic. <laughs> Well, I came up with the same joke, but independently. Yeah. So they're coming back. So basically everybody that was in the Deadpool films is coming back. And that's cool. I wonder if they'll do more with Yukio than her just being there. And people saying hello to her. And her being unspeakably pleasant. I imagine so, because it'd be pretty boring otherwise. Unless that's what we want. And I would also imagine that Brianna Hildebrand would be keen for a queer relationship to actually be 
properly portrayed on screen. Remember when she Lucifer's daughter? I do, yes. I didn't realise it was her at first, and then I ended up looking up. Sometimes when I'm watching stuff, I'm like, who the hell is that? Look up an IMDb, and there it is. I tend to notice their names in the opening credits, and then just wait for them to appear. Which is really annoying when they do it for characters who are supposed to be dead. Yeah, that, that is always annoying. Or when you watch a show and it says, previously on whatever... And the previous film tells you that there's dead characters in it. Or they're going to be addressing that. Oh, well, I wonder what's going to happen now. Yeah. Moving on, we have some release dates for some upcoming Marvel projects. Loki is going to be releasing on October 6th. And it's going to be running weekly, like we would expect. Because that's what Marvel do. However, the next part of this is not what we may expect. Loki Season 2 will be an interesting one. Apparently... They're encouraging marketing and so on to just not mention Jonathan Majors in any capacity whatsoever. Yeah. So it looks like they're not doing anything about the fact that he's in it. They're still leaving that as a thing. They're just not drawing attention to the fact. Yeah, which I guess is the best thing you can do without reshooting the whole thing, or without certainly reshooting every scene that he's in. Yeah, which you would imagine would be certainly more than last time, at least. Yeah. So that's the thing. The other bit of news is Echo will be releasing on November 29th, and that's going to be releasing as a full series, just on one day, which has a couple of different possibilities attached to it. One is that they're experimenting with the release model to see which one works better for them. The other is that it's a train wreck and they just want to get rid of it as soon as possible. There has been some chat about behind-the-scenes issues, reshoots and all that, so it could be that they feel like they've got a lemon on their hands and they just want to dismiss it as soon as possible. Certainly sounds plausible. There's also the possibility that they don't have as much faith in its success as they do with Loki, because Loki is a very well-established MCU character, and also very, very popular, been there since pretty much the beginning. Whereas Echo is a character, it's not unreasonable to suggest very few people are even aware exists, and who only appeared in a completely different series, not in any way about her, that wasn't particularly good anyway, and not that many people bothered to watch. At least that's my cynical take on it. There's a few different issues with it, isn't there? One of them is the fact that it's a deaf character, so I wonder how much of our dialogue will be subtitled, or they'll do that trick they did in Hawkeye if you have whoever talks to her just saying whatever they're signing, which is a common tactic when it comes to the use of sign in media that we watch, isn't it? Yeah, and to be fair, is also something that happens in real life when hearing people and deaf people are communicating. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see who the other characters in the show are. There's the rumour that Daredevil will be in it, isn't he rumoured to be in everything that Marvel make at the moment? Yeah, because everyone loves Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock and they want to see more of him. Yes, fair enough. So I guess we'll see how it turns out. But the fact that it's all releasing in one day isn't that encouraging. It seems like they're burning it. It's like, okay, we've made this, we might as well dump it on the streaming platform. And if people want to watch it, they will. And if they don't, we don't care. Yes, so we'll see what ends up being the truth. Next up, Marvel have delayed production on Blade. Again. They just got a new director and now they're delaying it again because of the writer's strike. It's not permissible to put it back in production. Marvel recently hired Nick Pizzolato to pen the script. And given that he was just hired, can't do any work on it during the strike, the studio thought it best to push production on filming until the script was ready. So he can't work on it unless he does it in his spare time and lies about it later. Marvel had no comment about it. Right Strike is an interesting thing. Obviously, it's closing down a lot of productions like it did the last time they had one when it killed Heroes Season 2. Although I would argue that Heroes Season 2 wasn't that good before the Writer Strike shut it down. So I don't think that really necessarily impacted the quality of it. Oh, yes, and once the Writer Strike ended, the show conspicuously failed to get much better. Yeah, so it was heading in that direction anyway. There's some interesting things about the Writer Strike in terms of the lack of empathy for it from higher-ups in Hollywood. The whole thing is happening because of streaming residuals and how they don't exist. So people 
who work on a streaming show, they get paid a very small amount to work on whatever they work on on the streaming show, and then they get nothing after that, essentially. And writing isn't as lucrative a job as people assume it is. Or as lucrative as Hollywood often portrays it, either. Yeah, so screenwriting is pretty much a paycheck-to-paycheck type job, and it's also the fact that, similar to actors who get paid a lot more, you're only employed as long as you're on that project. So after you finish that project, you're looking for work again. And then the era of streaming seasons are much shorter, so someone's only in the writer's room for like eight episodes instead of the 22 or whatever it is, so it's less income for them. There was a comment from David Zaslav. He's the CEO of Warner Brothers. He said that he thought the writer's strike would end soon because work ethic would kick in and people would want to get back to work. No, David. People want to eat. People want to pay rent. People want to have their living costs taken care of. It's not the case of, yeah, it's a few extra pounds. We don't care about it. It's not that at all. It's life. People want to live rather than just exist, and they need money to do that. Money that the current model under which they're being paid is becoming untenable, or has become untenable, rather. And the money is there, crucially. It's not that these things don't make money, because they're always reporting profits and things based on that. So yes, the people that wrote it deserve a fair slice of that. It's what seems to me that of all the various aspects of film and TV production that general audiences actually think about, it always seems that writing is the one afforded the least respect, because it seems to be perceived as something that anyone can do. I know words, I can write words, I can put words in a sentence, I can be a writer. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works at all. Yeah, you need to understand how structure, characterization, all that stuff. Though we watch a lot of stuff where the writers don't seem to understand that. The Flash, for example. Yes, well, but are somehow still able to get paid for it, which endlessly irritates me. Yeah. <laughs> it's whether they know that and just don't bother, or they don't know that. We don't know. And they also seem to think that writing is something that can be done very, very quickly and easily as well. As if people can just sit down at a laptop in a coffee shop and knock out an hour-long script for a TV show in an afternoon. Again, not how it works. No, not in the slightest. But anyway, Blade is shutting down again until they resolve all this. That film's just never coming out, is it? And all we will see of Mahershala Ali as Blade is a five-second voice cameo at the end of Eternals, and also his entire performance in Alita Battle Angel, which I am fairly confident in asserting was what got him the job as Blade. I forgot he was in that, actually. Because he basically dresses like Blade, fights in a very similar manner, and is very stoic and unafraid of whatever he might face. Hmm. So we'll see how that pans out. We do support the writer's strike, we stand with the Writers Guild of America, in case that wasn't clear. Because you have to pick a side, don't you, these days? Always. Because nuance is a thing of the past. Okay, let's move on to something Marvel adjacent. We have some news about Venom 3 again. She would tell Edgio 4 has joined the cast in a role that's undisclosed, but he's in MCU Marvel and Sony Marvel now. <laughs> so... Good for him, I guess. Yeah, but... I'm sure he's done other comic book stuff as well. Or no, I'm thinking of Serenity. Yeah, I was just going to say, let's count Serenity. It's a weird thing to actually say anything about, because he's been cast in an undisclosed role in a film that we've not been told anything about, other than the fact that it's going to exist. Yeah. And that we can likely assume that at some point, Detective Mulligan is going to become Toxin. Yeah. And presumably Venom will feature... Probably. You would imagine so. The Venom films are a strange beast though, aren't they? Because they are mediocre but have great actors in them. It's odd when that happens. And this is no different with Chiotel Edgefor being an exceptionally good actor. So you can likely assume that whoever is playing his performance will elevate what's likely to be fairly mediocre material. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. 
Kelly Marcel is directing. She previously wrote the films. And Juno Temple will also be in it. So some people are in that film. Yeah, because it now seems to be contractually obliged that actors who attain greater notoriety from Ted Lasso now need to be everywhere. Yes, seems to be the case. It's the new Game of Thrones. Yeah. Okay, let's hop over the fence to DC. We don't really have anything concrete. We have a bunch of rumours, though, for the casting of Superman, Lois Lane, and Lex Luthor. Basically, it looks like any actor between a certain age range who has dark hair is being considered for Superman. Yeah, so it's basically the American version of speculating over the next James Bond. Essentially. And unlike James Bond, it could be someone that's not American. (laughs) Like it was last time. Indeed. James Gunn is turning his attention to casting the major roles for his Superman movie. Nicholas Holt, David Cornswet, Jacob Elordi and Andrew Richardson all in the mix to play Clark Kent slash Superman. The only one I've heard of from that group is Nicholas Holt and I really don't want it to be him. I do like Nicholas Holt. I think he's a really good actor. I just think he is very wrong for that role. I find him dull most of the time. I haven't really seen him in anything that I thought he was great in. Mad Max, he sort of dialed it up to 11 but I'm thinking of things like X-Men, he's a really boring beast. Clash of the Titans. Did you remember he was in that? No, I did not. <laughs> I was too busy distracted by Sam Worthington trying to convince me he's an action hero. <laughs> or Liam Neeson being a badass Zeus, actually. That was great. Who was he in Clash of the Titans? He was one of Mads Mikkelsen's soldiers who were all killed off one by one as the film progressed. Right, okay. Warm Bodies. That was another one where I found him pretty dull in. Giant Slayer? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was dull. That was the tech demo for Sentinels in Days of Future Past, wasn't it? Yeah. Skins, I watched that when it was on. And he was in it. He was fine, I suppose. I'm not a huge fan of Nicholas Holt. I always find him pretty unengaging, so I really hope he's not Superman. The other ones, they certainly have a bit more of a Superman look to them. I actually had to look them up. The only thing I've apparently seen David Cornsweet in was that he was a killer in an episode of Elementary. Okay. Well, it's good to cast relative unknowns as Superman. Yeah. There's a fine tradition of it. Jacob Elordi was in the Kissing Booth movies. I've not seen those. I have. <laughs> and that's all you're going to say about it. It's also apparently in Euphoria, which I've never watched. No, me neither. Despite the fact that it has all the prominent female actors that we're going to see in the future. That is true. Well, Zendaya is already huge, but Sydney Sweeney and so on. And... Andrew Richardson hasn't actually been in anything I've seen, which is honestly saying a lot. He looks a bit like Andrew Garfield. I don't think that, yeah. Young guys with dark hair. That's who they're casting the net to. The role of Lois Lane, Rachel Brosnahan, Emma Mackey and Samara Weaving all reportedly tried out for the part. Samara Weaving's a bit of a surprise, actually. It wasn't the kind of role I would have expected her to have been interested in, because she seems to typically go for more sort of indie stuff or really off-the-wall kind of productions. Or Snake Eyes. Or what? The G.I. Joe prequel. She plays Scarlett O'Hara in Snake Eyes. Oh, yes! God, I totally forgot that. Most people did. It's okay. Rachel Brosnahan's in the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, isn't she? She is indeed, which Jana and I finished watching only a few days ago, actually. It's actually a really, really good series. Mm. And Emma Mackey it was in Sex Education. She was indeed. And she's going to be in Barbie. And she was also in Death on the Nile, which we briefly mentioned earlier. I would be inclined to go for one of the lesser known of the three. Samara Weaving's probably up there in terms of notoriety, isn't she? Well, not notoriety, in terms of people knowing her. Yeah. And you've also got the problem that if Lois Lane is played by a bigger and more recognisable star than Superman, it could end up being quite distracting. Yeah. Although that's Superman 101, isn't it? In terms of the films. Superman is the least famous actor in it. As long as they're better than Kate Bosworth, she was pretty hopeless. 
The role of Lex Luthor has allegedly been labelled apex with gun open to casting black actors to play Superman's arch nemesis. However, apparently Nicholas Holt also tested for Lex Luthor. So that's something that might be happening. James Gunn took to Twitter to say he would never comment on who is or isn't auditioning for a role. So this is all rumour. Translation, stop bothering me with this. I don't want to deal with it. I'll tell you when I tell you. Now leave me alone, says James Gunn. However, there tends to be no smoke without fire with these things. There tends to be an element of truth to it when it is something as specific as this. And when people like the Hollywood Reporter and the Rap and so on are reporting it, there tends to be some kind of viability to the sources. Yeah, because they're not the kind of outlet that just publishes random stuff for clicks. The information will have originated somewhere. Yeah. And also the rumours around fantastic forecasting have a similar credibility to them. The suggestion is that Adam Driver, Margot Robbie, Reed Richards and Sue Storm, as it will be, then Paul Mescal as the Human Torch and... Duffy digs as the thing. Paul Mescal is a human torch. That's going to really piss off people that are into indie films, isn't it? <laughs> oh, he was ours and now you've got him. Yeah, which is reason enough for me for it to happen. Yeah. It's funny, Florence Pugh hit back against that recently. She talked about, have you seen a reduction in my output? Have you seen a reduction in the types of roles I'm taking? Mm-hmm. Just because I'm in Marvel stuff? I think Tom Holland's comment about the difference between indie and superhero blockbuster he doesn't notice any difference in terms of the way he works when he does them that's an interesting perspective but yeah superman i'm interested in the james gunn superman thing i wonder what direction he'll take it in presumably not the same one as brightburn yeah it's disappointing that it's lex luther again though can we do a superman story without lex luther because the chances are you won't get far enough in to take it much further than that because it never seems to happen so why don't we just skip that and do something else. Could just have someone like Bizarro or Brainiac. Or to go in another direction, Mr. Mixpidlick. That'd be crazy. Especially for the first one. That exactly. Be It'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> I think Brainiac would be a good shout. Especially in Superman Legacy, where he has to deal with the consequences of his home being destroyed and things. Which normally manifests through Zod, but what if it was through Brainiac? A killer AI that was made on my planet is coming to this one. Oh no. I know he's an alien, but there are versions of Brainiac that he was a Kryptonian artificial intelligence. Yeah. The animated series did that, and Smallville did that. Did indeed. Anyway, let's hop over to our final pillar, the CW, and I think this could be one of the last times we ever talk about it, because it looks like they're cancelling everything that we would be interested in, and changing them into cheap reality TV crap. Have you looked at their lineup for fall, or autumn, as we call it over here? Not the specific shows, no. Just the general kind of stuff that they're planning to do. I looked at the schedule and it's grim. It's things like F by Island and all this nonsense. So they're going for the cheaper common denominator shows. Reality TV is cheap to produce, so they're just going to double down on that and get rid of all this stuff where people are creative and think about stuff and develop things. Although some of it's crap. But still, there's going to be very little scripted drama. The only real survivor was Jared Padalecki's Walker for some reason. This whole thing seems to baffling decision to me because if you are buying an entire tv network then presumably you would expect to also be buying the audience that comes with it you would imagine so yeah but with the kind of stuff that they're going to be putting on it then pretty much everyone who watches the cw now is not going to watch the stuff they're going to put out on it so i don't understand where the business decision came from that this was a channel that they wanted to own and completely alter the ethos of everything that it does. It's a money-saving thing, isn't it? Because I've talked to people in America that talk about how the CW, outside of the primetime scheduling, which is what, three, four hours a night, is just talk shows and game shows and things like that during the day. So we're thinking from the primetime 
slot perspective of your 7 till 11 p.m. slot of stuff, which is where the stuff that we all watch comes from. But that's actually a small percentage of it. But then prime time is the... We're putting it on here because that's when people are going to be in front of their TVs. So it's, you can see that side of it too. But yeah, it's basically killing off a lot of the stuff that we enjoyed. Among the casualties, they've officially killed off the Powerpuff Girls show that they were making, which I'm surprised wasn't actually official before now. I just assumed it was. I is shocked. <laughs> I does not have the words to express how shocked I is at this. Yeah, crappy, problematic, unaired pilot Hot garbage. I guess they gave up on the reshoot, so they're just not going to show them. I want to see the leaked pilot. Leak the pilot and let me see it. I do too. Just have morbid curiosity, just to know just how bad it is, and to see if it's actually worse than that Adrian Pellicky Wonder Woman pilot. Ah, uh, yeah. It'll look as bad, though, won't it, because of all the unfinished effects and things. Yeah. If they even got to the stage of post-production at all, which they may not have, whereas the Wonder Woman pilot was partially complete, at least. Yeah, one of the things I remember from it was there was an aerial shot of the road and there was a note on the screen for the VFX to put in a whole bunch of police cars. Yeah. There was also the bit at the start where it says, pants to be darkened. Oh, oh God, yes, I forgot that. <laughs> but when she's fighting, you see the wires and things. But there was also some visual effects that were more or less complete and all that stuff. So it was in a watchable state. Insofar as it was visually coherent. Whether or not it was watchable as a piece of narrative fiction is another conversation entirely. It was at the kind of proof of concept to be pitched to the network to pick it up stage, and then they would go and finish it later. Yes, and then the network was like, you want us to give you money to make more of this. <laughs> Get lost. Poor Adrian Poliki, she's in the trifecta of failed pilots, isn't she? Yeah, it was uh, Aquaman. Aquaman, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. spin-off that never was, and Wonder Woman. Most Wanted? What was going to be called? Yeah, Marvel's Most Wanted. I would have liked that. Or maybe I wouldn't have. Maybe I'd have got sick of it after like three episodes. But conceptually, it seemed interesting. But she went on to do the Orville, which proved better for her. And that may be gone as well. Is she a cursed object that gets passed into a TV show and then kills it? You have to wonder, don't you? Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. got rid of her before it happened. Mm -hmm. And also, she starred in that, I think, god-awful Angel Apocalypse movie, Legion. I never saw that. It was bad. Like, really bad. Not even fun bad. They made a TV show out of that as well, didn't they? They did. I believe it was called Dominion, which was better, but that's not saying much. <laughs> okay. Still on CW cancellations. Another casualty is this stoppage of development on the Arrowverse offshoot Justice U. Our longtime listeners will <laughs> have heard us previously refer to it as Diggle and the Sexy Squad because the premise is John Diggle teaching a team of teenage superheroes how to be superheroes. So therefore, with it being a CW show... It would have been a group of very attractive actors playing university students. Yeah, so all somewhere around the age of 22. Yes, so Diggle and the Sexy Squad. That's what they would have been. But we're not getting it, which is a shame. Yes, and most likely with a gender balance of three girls to two guys and a notable variation of ethnicities. Yes, and one of them may or may not be bisexual. Mm -hmm. That will be a plot point for a season or so. And there'll be a love triangle in there somewhere. Undoubtedly. One of the girls will be in a relationship with one of the guys... And another of the guys will be jealous. Or the other way around. Uh, depends on what they feel they could ring the most melodrama from that particular week. And we're wondering why they stopped production on this, based on what we just said there. Another casualty was the female-led Zorro series, which I actually forgot was happening. But there's other Zorro projects in production. I remember coming up with the premise of that show on a previous news podcast, actually. Basically, she's a bit of a misfit from the wrong side of the tracks, and then she meets an old Zorro who teaches her how to be the new Zorro, and she finds purpose in life. Exactly. And I think I mentioned the last time this was brought up that there actually already exists a female Zorro series, this early 2000s show called Queen of Swords. 
Which was actually alright. One of the essential ensemble from Dark Matter was a sort of anti-hero slash love interest slash villain slash whatever was going to be the most melodrama that week kind of character. Was it set in Zorro times? It was, yeah, colonial America when California was still part of Mexico kind of time. My CW pitch is modern day. Ah. Because of course it would have been. Has to be, because that's when women can dress the most sexy. Yeah, exactly. Another thing that was binned was Jake Chang, which was to be based on a newish Archie Comics character. Don't know if that character appears in Riverdale or anything. He does not. Though just reading the synopsis of what that show was going to be like, if it was going to be in any way as demented as Riverdale is, then it was going to be a hell of a lot of fun. What was the synopsis? It's not in here. Uh, I think it was on like a Riverdale wiki or something. Okay. Because it's like an Archie Comics thing, so it was kind of Riverdale adjacent, so it was deemed worth putting on it. It described it as a teen drama slash neo-noir mystery type thing, which Riverdale kind of started out as before getting increasingly insane. And it was to do with a lot of cliches about Asian Americans being subverted. Things like martial arts and ancestry and family duty and that kind of stuff. And then applying that to Riverdale's straight-laced bonkers tone, I think it would have been a lot of fun to watch. It says, 16-year-old private investigator as he navigates the diverse worlds of his ever-gentrifying home of Chinatown. That's all it says in this article. Apparently the CW have given all these things back to the studios, so there's a possibility of them landing somewhere else. Yeah, but then they say that every single time. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, well, they talked about that for the Winchesters. They're trying to shop that around to other networks, but no one's going to have it. Yeah, because Jensen Ackles is determined to make this happen, <laughs> whether or not people want it. I'm okay with the Winchesters the way it ended. It ended in a way that actually puts a good button on Supernatural okay, as well as the Winchester. It's one of those endings where it's, okay, you could pick this up, or it just seems like, well, this is their life now. Fine. One of those sorts of endings. Yeah. So they must have thought about that with that in mind. But that's that the CW has been guttered effectively. Walker, the Jared Padalecki show, survived. However, the spin-off slash prequel did not. They cancelled that too. So Catherine McNamara needs work again. She wants to join this podcast team. She can. <laughs> Friend of the show, who may or may not remember who I am. I always find it a bit awkward contacting actors or directors or writers who I've, I've spoken to previously, but I'm not sure whether or not to assume they actually remember who I am. It's one of the things that if you ask them, they'll be like, oh yeah, I remember. No, you don't. So that's the CW. It's, it's a shame, really, because so much of what we watched and talked about and wrote about came from there. It did, and now it's all basically come to an end. Yeah. End of an era. And it ends with just such a whimper as well. There's no occasion to any of it. Which you can hear all about on another podcast. Coming to you soon. Yeah, we'll talk about it some other time. Moving on, we're out of our pillars now. We're back into just general stuff. We talked a bit about it earlier, but Vin Diesel has been talking about Fast and the Furious spin-offs, including a female-led spin-off. I'm surprised that he's gushing about that because he hated the last spin-off, didn't he? He considered it a betrayal of his family. That's why him and The Rock hate each other so much, or supposedly. I always had the impression it was because they're... Basically like a pair of five-year-old boys on a school playground who just can't learn to play nice together. Yeah, pretty much. It's funny when you watch the Fast movies that they're both in, and you see all the weird angles they do when they cut back and forth to make them look just as tall as each other. Which is patently ridiculous. <laughs> and then it's the number of punches you have to throw, and the scene where The Rock's fighting Statham. Statham throws him through a pane of glass. The Rock throws him through a different pane of glass. <laughs> so they're equal. And the fights never result in a victory. They just end. Something will separate them. Something interrupts it. Yeah, crazy. He's also teased the fact that the two-part finale might actually end up being a three-part finale. So that's great. There's going to be two films where bugger all happens instead <laughs> of one. Fantastic. 
Can't wait. He's also talked about other spin-offs. It's not in this particular article. I think it was more recently. He talked about how he wants to do a spin-off of the Toretto's, which centers on the sun. And I guess he'll be the... Let's use this comparison because it'll be even funnier. He'll be the Bruce Wayne in Batman Beyond to his son's Terry McGuinness. Oh, God. <laughs> I just can't. What a dumbass franchise this is. It is. And for a franchise that, as is often commented, basically started out as, let's remake Point Break, but with cars instead of surfboards. And now let's do spy slash superhero films. Because that's a natural progression. This article says it, so I'm just going to spoil it. I already spoiled it earlier anyway. Fast X features the shocking returns from Giselle, Gal Gadot, and Luke Hobbs, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Diesel admits it wasn't easy keeping the cameos a secret. He said, I'm so excited to have them back home and even more excited to see fan reactions and to see how happy it makes people. He admits it wasn't easy keeping the cameos a secret, so that's why they didn't. Although I don't think it was Vin Diesel or anybody involved in the film's fault, because it was after the first press screening or the premiere or something. Yeah, because everyone has to be the first one to report on surprise development, because they can't just let it be a surprise. I'm not at all surprised, actually, because I, I did expect it to happen. I wonder if it's all just been performative. It's effectively a wrestling match in the press, isn't it? Just them arguing with each other through various trades until they have their big reunion. But it's handled so weirdly in the film as well, because it's this post-credit scene where it's revealed that The Rock is about. And unless you know about the out-of-universe feud that's been on the go, it shouldn't be a surprise, because you know that he's still alive in-universe, so the fact that he turns up is not unexpected. Yeah, that can sometimes be a problem with this kind of thing, because a lot of times there seems to be this assumption that everybody watching knows absolutely every intricate detail about a film's production because it gets reported everywhere, and just forgetting the fact that some people are perfectly happy to just turn up, watch a film, enjoy it, and not think or know anything more about it. That's a persistent mistake that's actually made. It's the assumption that Twitter is real life, according to studios and so on. It's the idea of the potential Ezra Miller controversy surrounding The Flash. Most of your movie-going audience won't know about that. Exactly, yeah. They're just turning up to see a superhero movie. Yeah, they won't know anything about the -the behind-the-scenes stuff or anything like that. People went to see Justice League without knowing anything about the fact that it was reshot, remade, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But people assume that what's rattling about on Twitter is fact and it's not. It's a very small representation of the movie-going audience. So the fact that they make decisions based on what people are moaning about on Twitter is bizarre. That's the next illogical progression of the whole films made by committee concept. Films influenced by audience reaction in real time. We're making it for the fans. Oh god, which fans? (laughs) Exactly. That's why we have Picard Season 3. That's why Picard Season 3 is what it is as well. Yeah, and that's why we have so many other things that they've made dumb decisions on. That's why we almost had Guardians 3 with no James Gunn, etc. It's just dumb. The other thing with fast movies is the films are treating Paul Walker's character as if he's alive, but he's just not there for baffling reasons. All the stuff that they're getting up to, there's no way that he wouldn't be weighing in if he was still alive. Yeah, and the excuses that they're using to justify his absence are becoming increasingly spurious. Oh, he's looking after the kids, but Jordana Brewster's here for some reason, and she's far less useful. He's going to be in the next one, or the last one, though. They're just going to do the deepfake thing again. They're going to do it. It's a weird choice to constantly reference a character who realistically can't appear again, or at least not in any true representation. At the end of the last film, he pulled up to the barbecue and you saw his car. Mm -hmm. Again, the the behind-the-scenes stuff. If you didn't know he was dead, you would wonder what the hell was going on. Yeah. Why isn't he here? What's he doing? And there'll be a 
large chunk of the audience that don't, I guess. Quite possibly, yeah. Anyway, let's stop talking about the Fast franchise. Please. Let's talk about something that may be even worse. Yeah. Pink Panther reboot is happening, and Eddie Murphy is going to be in the role of Inspector Clouseau. Are we past the point where Eddie Murphy's funny? Is he still funny? I don't think he is. We were past the point where Eddie Murphy was funny in freaking Bowfinger, which was like the late 90s. <laughs> well, Shrek. Come on. Sorry, in the movie, he headlined. Uh, okay. And he's the main star. He made a ton of really awful comedies in the early 2000s, didn't he? He did. There was a film made a couple of years ago called Dolomite Is My Name. Yeah, I never saw that. Which, anyone's unaware, Dolomite was a famous character from black exploitation cinema in the 70s, I think. His film was very successful and very popular. And this was basically a movie uh, about the character's inception, which grew out of a bunch of black creatives not properly understanding why white people think white comedies are funny. And so decided to just make their own. <laughs> Fair enough. Which actually was quite a good film. But aside from that, films in which he was the main attraction have largely been absolutely dire. An Eddie Murphy film is the only film I've ever walked out of in the cinema, actually. Which one was that? The film Meet Dave. Oh, dear God. I'd actually blanked that one off my memory. If people don't know, it's the film where he plays little aliens that live inside a robot that looks like Eddie Murphy's. It's in that era of Eddie Murphy in films where he plays multiple characters, which was a weird three or four years of stuff. And quite often involves him wearing fat suits, because fat people are hilarious, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. I was at Meet Dave with a friend, you know, living <laughs> at uni at the time. I heard the inverted commas there. Well, we were friends. I remember I was about 40 minutes in or something like that, and I just turned around and I said, I'm going. I can't take this anymore. And my friend was like, I want to see this. And I was like, you can stay. I will go to the pub and I'll see you there. And then he followed me out and he complained the rest of the day. Oh, for God's sake. I didn't say you had to go. I just said I was going. If you were enjoying it, fair enough. Can't imagine how, but fair <laughs> enough. But this, apparently, it's going to combine live action and CGI so he can interact with the cartoon Panther, which sounds horrific. Sonic the Hedgehog filmmaker Jeff Fowler is directing, so there's some hope there, I guess, from a script by Chris Bremner with Rideback Dan Lin and Jonathan Eyrick producing via their Rideback banner. There's one choices in this one, particularly with that whole live-action CGI mix thing. I was just saying that there'll be for animating the Pink Panther, except the Pink Panther was just this animated character that appeared in the opening sequence, and the actual Pink Panther that the movie refers to is a diamond. Yeah, so the thief was just a thief. Yeah. And then the Panther himself got his own cartoon series that I vaguely remember watching as a young kid, but couldn't tell you anything about, though. It was just a generic cartoon, yeah, where he stole stuff, I think. And then there's also the fact that there's a reference to Inspector Clouseau being this smooth and suave detective, which runs completely counter to the whole point of him, is the fact that he's a bumbling moron, and that's what makes him entertaining to watch. Is anybody making this aware of what the Pink Panther movies actually are? Have they watched them? You have to wonder, don't you? Which I mentioned earlier, if you're making something that is so far removed from the thing that it's based on, then why even ostensibly adapt the thing that you're claiming to. Yeah. Remember the Steve Martin Pink Panther movie? That was really bad. I do remember it. Or them, rather. Oh, there was more than one, wasn't there? Yeah, I only saw one of them. That was the best thing for it. Steve Martin, who has a career, because some people seem to think that Cheaper by the Dozen is funny. It's not. And also, Steve Martin is also someone whose heyday is long behind him. Yeah. So, don't understand why they're making this. But it seems like they're not making the thing they think they're making. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't know why this not even why this movie needs to exist but why it even is existing what purpose is 
shepherding this creation into life actually achieve. Yeah. Moving on, something that might be a bit better. Arnie's going to be another film called Breakout. It's apparently been launched ahead of the Cannes market because, yeah, they'll love that, won't they? At Cannes, an Arnie action film. When they talk about how apparently the new Indiana Jones is the worst film ever made or whatever, you don't put films like this in front of that audience. Yeah. People largely go to that festival to be pretentious snobs and to over-enthusiastically express their passion for a piece of art they have just seen to demonstrate just how much they understood and it resonated with them. Because you always hear about just how long a standing ovation a certain film got at the Cannes Film Festival. I don't understand that because if you're applauding something for more than like five seconds, don't you start to feel self-conscious? Exactly. I'm looking around to see why other people are still applauding. And I wonder when I should stop. And surely everybody else is feeling like that. If the standing ovation lasts that long, then how does it stop? Who's the first one to stop clapping? Yeah, and also out of the multiple dozens and dozens of movies that we've seen at the Edinburgh Film Festival, can you recall a standing ovation a single one of them received? No. Exactly. I remember some light applause at the end of a public screening when the director's there and doing a QA after. Mm, yeah. But that's just being polite. Yeah, it's not an expression of passionate love for what you've just seen. Uh, it's painfully performative. Yeah, but anyway, we digress. The Expendables 4 filmmaker Scott Waugh. When is Expendables 4 coming out? I don't know almost as much as I don't care. I like the Expendables movies. Oh, yeah, I do enjoy it. I'm just utterly indifferent to them. Yeah, okay. But he's going to direct. Arnie will take on the lead role of Terry Reynolds. Yeah, that's such an Arnie name, isn't it? <laughs> When his stepson is framed and sentenced to 25 years in a foreign country, Reynolds makes a daring jailbreak to save him and must overcome an overzealous prison warden in a race against time to avoid capture and flee the country. Isn't that basically the film he was in with Sloane? Escape plan, yes. The shoot is due to kick off this year in Eastern Europe. Arnie's coming back to action films. Yeah, well, he has had a bit of practice recently in that Netflix series, Fubar. Uh, I haven't seen that. It's actually not too bad. It's a similar kind of tone to something like Whiskey Cavalier or Burn Notice. It is largely a straight espionage thing, but it's also too goofy to completely take seriously. My theory after watching the trailer is that it's an eight-hour series that should be a two-hour film that should be a 90-minute film. <laughs> One of those forgettable action films you watch and you think, you know what, if that had been 90 minutes long, it would have been perfect. The fact that it was two hours was kind of painful. I can see what you mean, actually. Um, there is some truth to that. <laughs> Oh well, I'm right then. Good. But yeah, Arnie doing action. I'm always keen for Arnie. I like Arnie, so I'll watch it, I guess, when it comes out. Anyway, let's move on. Russell Crowe is going to be in a sequel to The Pope's Exorcist, because apparently that did quite well. I didn't actually see it, but it's getting a sequel. The problem with the exorcism movies is that it's very, very easy to make them look like every single other Exorcist movie. When I saw the trailer for The Pope's Exorcist, it looked a lot like just The Exorcist. It had a lot of the same stuff in there. And it largely was. Oh, okay. You've got a pair of exorcists, one older and experienced, one a lot younger, and just starting out as career as that, and they're trying to exorcise a young child who has been possessed by a demon who is considerably more powerful than other ones that the priest previously encountered. And the demon, as a small child, makes lots of mocking taunts about their sins and personal failures and guilt, which they then need to overcome, and in the end they uncover this conspiracy about the Catholic Church itself. Nothing to do with all the paedophilia it covers up. <laughs> A completely different cover-up of evil committed. It has some decent effects work in it, but aside from that, it's not much more than just a bunch of the same tropes you've seen in a 
dozen other similarly themed movies, and I don't really feel that any more desperately need to exist. But you got to see Russell Crowe attempt an Italian accent. That must have been something. Yes, it was almost as entertaining as seeing him attempt a Greek accent. You can hear a resident Greek <laughs> wax lyrical about that. I was just about to mention that, yes. <laughs> so, doesn't need to exist, but it is anyway. It seems like it must have made enough money to justify doing another one. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. Yeah, must have done. Okay, moving on. A24 has acquired domestic rights for John Crowley's We Live in Time, starring Andrew Garfield and Florence Pugh. Plot details are being kept under wraps, other than it being described as a funny, deeply moving and immersive love story. I'm interested that based on the pedigree of the actors in it, because I like Florence Pugh and I really like Andrew Garfield. So I'll have to see this because he's in it and she's in it as well. I do like Florence Pugh. I'm just not gushing about her in the same way that other people are. I acknowledge that she's great. I just haven't seen the entirety of her body of work as some others have. So I don't really have that connection to her that others do. But with Andrew Garfield, I've always thought he's really good. And I like to see the guy doing well as well. Yeah, I'm of a similar mindset. They're both exceptional actors who have a habit of picking interesting projects. So I would imagine that whatever this is going to be, if it's not made more interesting purely by dint of them being in it, then simply watching them in it will likely be at least something. To show how minor my connection to Florence Pugh is, when I watched Don't Worry Darling, I was a bit thrown off by the fact that she wasn't speaking in a Russian accent. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the same happens to me for Andrew Garfield as well. Whenever I see him being English, I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? Because I got used to him as being American before any of that. Even when he was Doctor Who, he was playing an American. What? Yeah, he was in Doctor Who. He was in the Dalek two-parter in Tenant's second season. So season three overall. I totally forgot that. He's not a main character. He's not in it that much, but he's in it. And then after that, I saw him in The Social Network. And then after that, I saw him in... Spider-Man, obviously. And I've seen some other stuff he's done. I haven't seen a lot of his indie stuff, so things like Under the Silver Lake I've not seen. But I've seen the Mel Gibson movie he did. Hacksaw Ridge? Yeah. And what was the other one? The Scorsese one, Silence, which I thought was painfully boring. The thing I first noticed of him in was the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. I didn't realise he was in that. He was the Imaginarium's assistant, who I think was in love with Lily Cole. Can't quite remember. I guess he did a lot of those roles, though, where he's kind of a secondary background player. Yeah, I'm not sure the timing, but I think that was pretty much just before Spider-Man. Well, it was and it wasn't, because remember Heath Ledger dying really delayed a lot of what that film was. Yeah. Anyway, so that could be fun. That could be interesting. Let's move on. Joel Kinnaman is attached to starring They Found Us, an alien abduction thriller to be directed by Neil Blomkamp, who is directing Gran Turismo earlier. It will head into production in Australia later this year. It will follow a father and his daughter, Kinnaman is the father, his daughter Kaylee, who's apparently not cast, as they undertake a camping trip in the Utah wilderness to heal their broken relationship. After being attacked by a hostile extraterrestrial life form, their lives, not just their relationship, wind up at stake as they fight with a humanoid beast to stop their abduction to an unknown and terrifying alien world. Keen for this, I really like Blomkamp's work mostly. He's one of the more interesting sci-fi directors out there in that he gets to largely make unconnected his own stuff. Gran Turismo is the first adaptation he's actually made. He was down for an alien film, but that's either not happening or will never happen. Yeah, and at one point, wasn't he attached to the adaptation of Halo? Yeah, it never happened either. So he's a filmmaker that has largely got to do his own projects, with Gran Turismo being the only adaptation that actually made it to theatres. Or will soon make it to theatres. It might not. It might get dropped last minute. 
but it probably will make it to theaters. So he's getting to do another original sci-fi thing, which I'm keen for. Yeah, because I do really like his films, and I do quite like how they're often a bit different from what you might be expecting. And it's also the fact that his sci-fi, it's not exactly industrial, but it's not shiny or glossy. It's all exposed wires and battered circuit boards and haphazard bits of metal welded together in the hope that whatever they're creating will stay functional. And I think that's a lot more interesting, because it feels more real, it feels more fallible, and because of that, it's something that you can connect with. Yeah, it's quite rare where I'll see a film where I'm so on the opposite side of prevailing opinion that I can't even understand why people would think that way. It was chappy. I loved it. And then I saw that everybody hated it for some reason. I'm thinking, what? What did you see that I didn't? Possibly due to its principal human star being an insufferable twat. As far as I'm aware, I'm not actually hugely familiar with it work doing anything. I really enjoyed the film as well, although I hate the title of it. I just think it sounds so incredibly stupid. <laughs> but aside from that, I thought it was great. The only film of his I haven't liked was Elysium. I did quite enjoy that. I think it, it might have just been because you might have been expecting as much from it as District 9. Maybe, but I think it was very half-formed as well. It feels like it's only half a story, really, because stuff happens and then it just ends. I just didn't find it terribly interesting. But anyway, that's besides the point. And also another aspect of this which I think points towards being interesting is that it's written by Jeremy Slater who's done things like Moon Knight and the Umbrella Academy and the Exorcist TV series. So he's certainly got experience writing uh, about really weird offbeat worlds and the odd freaks that populate them. Yeah, I'm interested in this. I think he also does Doom Patrol as well, which is wonderfully bonkers. It's something I haven't seen yet. I should probably do that. I'll be in a bit of a slump of DC content in the near <laughs> futures. I should just mop up the stuff that I've been interested in seeing but yet haven't. Anyway, let's move on. Republic Pictures have acquired the action thriller Air Force One Down which is not a sequel to White House Down, even though it could be, probably. That was certainly the first thing that came to my mind. Especially when you have sequels to the other White House home invasion stories. Yes, the Save the Kidnap President kind of action flicks. Yeah, the Jerry Butler franchise that exists. This one, though, is nothing to do with White House Down. There's no Channing Tatum in sight. However, in sight, we have Catherine McNamara, who is no longer in Walker Independence because it's been axed. So she found another job. Well, that was quick. Ian Bowen, who was... No, it's Team Wolf he was in, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Peter, I think the character's name was. Previous alpha werewolf villain slash reluctant ally later on kind of deal. And he was in season two of Superman and Lois. He was, yes. Anthony Michael Hall, Halloween Kills, and Dasha Polanco, who was in Orange is the New Black, and so on. The pick rap production in March. Plot details for the film are under wraps. What? <laughs> it's said by writer... Producer Stephen Paul to involve a new twist in the saving of the president theme. What possible new twist can you get? I'm suddenly thinking of that one where Samuel L. Jackson's the president, where Air Force One crashed. Oh, big game. That's the one. Yeah, because one that crashes in Finland. Yeah, it was just a Finnish film with Samuel L. Jackson yeah, in it. Because why the hell not? It's so gloriously random. I love it. Victor Garber as the sneaky vice president that wants to offer yes. the president. Yeah, it's good. What exactly is the point of keeping a plot under wraps when the pertinent plot points can be gleaned from the film's frickin' title? <laughs> yeah. Also, it says it's going to involve a new twist on the saving of the president theme. So what? Air Force One crashes and they have to save the president. That's the plot. <laughs> the actual mechanics of that plot, okay, we don't need to know those, but yeah, that's what we're getting here. And you may also recall that there also exists a similarly themed action film titled Air Force One, where Harrison Ford was the president. Yeah, but that doesn't go down. No, and also his president took a 
considerably more active role in proceedings. Well, maybe the president will here. It seems from the cast that are listed, none of them will be the president. Maybe Anthony might go home. Possibly. Maybe the twist will be that Catherine McNamara is the president. That'll be interesting. Well, as in the how the hell did this happen <laughs> side of things. Not that she's incapable, it's just presidents tend to be considerably older. Yes, and considerably more male. Yes. I mean, it's only in fiction that you get female presidents, but you do get them. Joe Biden, who's on death's door, for example, he's your current president. Another interesting thing about this, it's directed by James Bamford, a prominent director from the Arrowverse, who whenever you saw his name appear on the screen, you knew it was going to be a good action one. Yeah. That sounds cool, I guess. Let's move on. Jane Widdup, Joe McHale and Justin Long lead slasher horror It's a Wonderful Knife. You can tell from the casting that it's probably going to be comedic, and from the title, to be fair. Yeah, and also from its writer and director as well. Yes. Here's the official synopsis. Set in idyllic Angel Falls a year after saving her town from a psychotic killer on Christmas Eve, Winnie Carruthers' life is less than wonderful. But when she wishes she had never been born, she finds herself in a nightmare parallel universe and discovers that without her, things could be much, much worse. Now the killer is back, and she must team up with the town misfit to identify the killer and get back to her own reality. So basically, it's, it's a wonderful knife, but with slasher elements. Yeah. Just like Happy Death Day is Groundhog Day, but with a slasher element. As, and Freaky is Freaky Friday with slasher elements. Yeah. The writer of this movie, Michael Kennedy, was also the writer of Freaky. Yeah. So Michael Kennedy wrote the script and serves as executive producer. Director is Tyler McIntyre. Also worth noting that Tyler McIntyre wrote and directed Tragedy Girls, which, like Freaky, is a very, very good and very subversive slasher movie. So I would imagine that these two guys who independently of one another found new and interesting things to do with the slasher concept coming together to do another one, I I'm really looking forward to this. Could be cool. We'll see how it pans out. Moving on, there's going to be a sequel to Dodgeball, apparently. Vince Vaughn will return to star in and likely produce a sequel to his hit 2004 comedy, Dodgeball. God, that's nearly 20 years old. Written by Jordan Van Dina. It's in early development. My God, why? Why are we getting a sequel to this? This is a section of the podcast where it's, why are we getting a sequel to this? This is the unnecessary legacy sequel section. Yes. In the case of Dodgeball, I feel like you said everything that you could say in the first film. Dodgeball's very funny. I love Dodgeball. I go back to it now and again, but I don't want another one. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. It's actually my favourite of those mid-2000s sophomore comedy movies. It arrived just before Vince Vaughn and Ben Stiller were in that kind of direct once a month, wasn't it? It was before all that kicked in. Yeah, it was slowly becoming a thing, but hadn't been recognised as one around that time. I think it's really hammered home with Anchorman, because so many people love that. But well, as popular as it is, I actually prefer Dodgeball over Anchorman. Same. Yeah, I don't go back to Anchorman nearly as often. And I don't find it as hilarious as others do either. And I do remember a time when the interminable quoting of it started to get really grating. There's only so many times you can hear somebody mumble, I love lamp, before you want to punch him in the face. <laughs> yeah, or 60% of the time it works every time. Yeah. But Dodgeball 2, I don't imagine what you get from it either. Yeah, I mean, there's not more story to tell. No. Ben Stiller comes after his gym franchise again. Or Vince Vaughn has become so successful, he's now like Ben Stiller was in the first movie. Yeah. Nah, not keen. We'll see how it pans out, but I'm not keen. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. We have a sequel for Gladiator coming out, which we already knew about. Connie Nielsen is going to be returning. Maximus dies at the end of Gladiator, in case you didn't know. The sequel is focused on Lucia's son, Lucius, played by the Academy Award nominee, Paul Mescal, the guy that <laughs> people are going to be really upset about being taken from them 
into franchise oblivion. It's a betrayal. So she's coming back, which nobody is surprised by considering the sequel's about her son. And also the fact that she was about the only featured character still alive at the end of it. Yeah. And also Pedro Pascal has joined the cast because apparently he can't make anything without adding Pedro Pascal to the cast. He's like, yeah, I'm never in The Mandalorian. I've got loads of time. I'll be in your film. The Last of Us, that's not out for a couple of years. It'll be fine. We've got time. No problem. Although they did fix the creditation in The Mandalorian, didn't they? They actually credited the stunt guys up front Yeah. this time. Because Pedro Pascal himself admitted that it's basically a voice role now. That's the kind of thing that actually makes me really respect him as an actor. Because there are very many guys who would actually do that, who would admit up front just how much they rely on stunt performers. Because they just want, they want to create this mystique that they're doing everything themselves. Yeah. He's having an unexpected renaissance as well, isn't he? For the age he is and how long he's been in the business, he's suddenly huge and that's surprising that that's happened at this point in his career. Yeah, I think it was pretty much since he appeared in Game of Thrones. Because even though he wasn't in it for very long, his character was very popular. And he did a very good job of portraying him as well. I mean, I became aware of him largely in The Mandalorian, but then you start looking back to see what other stuff you've seen him in. Buffy, for example. Exactly, random episode of Buffy at a random college meeting. And, fun enough, Wonder Woman pilot that we discussed earlier, he's in that. Oh, so he was. I've forgotten that. Which is really funny because he ends up being in not one exactly, movie yes. later on. Not as the same character. That would have been funny. Obviously, but... Yeah. Maxwell Lord in both things. Mm-hmm. Just no one noticed. And then when he was auditioning, he just didn't tell them. Oh, yeah, just so you know, I've played this character in a Wonder Woman project before. Yeah, he didn't. It was a different character. I can't remember who he was in the Wonder Woman pilot. I think he was just some guy. He was a corporate exec or something. Who may or may not be a villain, as is the case with these things. I only remember fragments of that because it's not really worth remembering. Anyway. Gladiator 2 is happening, so there we go. And the final in our pointless legacy sequel collection, Sylvester Stallone set for Cliffhanger. It says Reboot from director Rick Roman Waugh. And then below the headline it says Sylvester Stallone is set to return for a sequel to Cliffhanger. So which is it? It can't be both. Are you acknowledging that the 90s movie exists or are you pretending it doesn't? I suspect the confusion is arising from the fact that this new film is also simply going to be called just Cliffhanger. Not Cliffhanger 2, still hanging, or something like that. Hanging around. No details as to the plot of the sequel have been divulged. What can the plot be? Stolen will reprise his character of Ranger Gabriel Gabe Walker from the original film. Cliffhanger is not good, though. It is not. It is a very, very 90s action movie with all that that entails. It's a 90s Stallone action movie as well. But anyway, that's all we have to say about that. Let's move on. Cinderella's Curse, a gory horror retelling of Cinderella coming soon. That's all it says. This is part of a larger issue that I have mixed feelings about. I am always going to think it's a good thing when more mainstream horror movies get made. Because more mainstream horror movies need to exist because horror is amazing and I love it and I want to share it with more people. However, this emerging trend of rewriting or reimagining childhood classics as horror stories, it just doesn't seem to have anything more to offer other than brief shock value. Oh my god, they turned this totally non-horror kids thing into a horror movie. And that's it. That's all it has to say. And the rest of it just ends up as generic nonsense, which is one of the reasons why I never actually wrote a review for Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, even though I said it would, because I just could not be bothered. (laughs) Because the film itself was so generic. This one's produced and directed by Louisa Warren. The film is written by Harry Boxley. The cast includes Kelly Ryan Sanson, Chrissy Wuna and Danielle Scott. None of those people I know anything about. I was so annoyed about what I just talked about that I forgot to actually look any of them up, but the names aren't any I 
recognise off the top of my head. It doesn't say anything about what the plot will be, but it's going to be something to do with the curse around Cinderella. Something to do with the shoe, I guess. Shoe or a uh, big forest growing. they like got monsters in it or some nonsense. Yeah. Oh, there was another pointless legacy sequel. I'm really bad at opening these articles in the right order. But anyway, another pointless legacy sequel. Nicolas Cage is going to be in a sequel to Lord of War, imaginatively titled Lords of War. He's also going to be in it with Bill Skarsgård, co-starring as his son. Did he have a son? Oh, he did. It was a baby in the first one, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, he did, but reading the synopsis of this, this appears to be a son he didn't know he had. Oh, uh, yeah. It's Bill Skarsgård co-starring as a son who's a chip off the old block. Yes, because I can believe that Nicolas Cage will be the father of Bill Skarsgård. <laughs> What kind of weird genetics is going on there? You know, I was going to make a Flash reference, never mind. <laughs> Tune in for that at some other time. Lords of War finds Orlov, the world's most notorious gunrunner, as he discovers that he has a son who's trying to top his dad. Anton is amassing a mercenary army to fight America's Middle East conflicts. This triggers an international bitter rivalry, one that pits father and son against each other. Add that to the list of stuff we don't need. I saw Lords of War precisely once when I was in the cinema, and honestly, there's like two particular things I remember about it. One is the notion of where the title came from, to do with some African warlord mixing up English words and idioms, referring to some upcoming fight as being a bath of blood. And Nicholas Cage was like, oh no, you meant bloodbath. No, I think mine sounds better. And then referring to him as the Lord of War, rather than a warlord. It's like, no, it sounds better. Was that... And also the scene where Jared Leto gets killed. <laughs> Which you must have enjoyed, I'm guessing. Actually, this was a time before he'd started to really annoy me. And it was more an observation that I couldn't remember seeing him in a single thing where if he didn't end up dead, he ended up perfectly maimed in some way. Like in Fight Club, where Edward Norton beats the crap out of him, or in Requiem for a Dream, where he gets his arm cut off. I really liked Lord of War, but I haven't seen it in years. It was quite a stylish and edgy film at the time. It's one of those good Nicolas Cage films. When Nicolas Cage was still making good films. He still does now and again. Yeah, but that's more out of luck than intent. <laughs> yeah, I did enjoy him doing the press for The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, and he's doing one of those, I think it's GQ, where he does the searchable terms. One of those YouTube videos where it's oh, star comments yes, yes, on yeah. their top search terms related to themselves, and one of them was, does Nicolas Cage ever turn down movies? And he says, yes, I do. I know that's not the narrative that people want to believe, but I turn down films all the time. A nice bit of self-awareness on his part. Because you never really see him be interviewed as such, so it's quite interesting to just get an insight into him occasionally and the way his brain works. Yeah, because it sometimes seems like you can't be sure that something you know about him isn't part of some elaborately constructed persona. It could be. It might well be. I don't know. But he's an interesting guy anyway. I will end up watching this. Okay, let's move on. Matt Berry is in talks to join Jason Momoa in Warner Brothers' Minecraft. Is that a sentence you ever thought you would ever read? Every part of it is not. Details as to the film's plot and Barry's role are kept under wraps, but the live-action pick adapts the sandbox video game, which is the highest selling of all time, scheduled to hit theatres on April 4th, 2025. Live-action Minecraft, what is that even going to look like? I haven't really ever actually played Minecraft. Me neither. It just seems like it's going to be one of those things where if you start it, then that becomes your life. Yeah. Which was also why I avoided playing World of Warcraft. It's also why I decided to stop playing Animal Crossing while I still could. <laughs> Get out while you can. Yeah, because pandemic, that became how people lived. Every day they were in Animal Crossing, just doing stuff. I was thinking, I just can't do that. Because if you're out for a couple of days, you've lost the game, basically. Mm -hmm. It's run away from you. The thing is, the type of character that Matt Berry excels at playing, namely 
pompous idiots who think they're a lot more impressive than they actually are. I imagine he'll be playing some kind of useless king or a lord or something like that. Because it's possible that there might be different realms of Minecraft of the different areas. I'm not entirely clear on the lore of it, or how much lore there actually even is. I should have read more about it before actually talking about this. No, that's cool. I haven't read much of it either. Anyway, the plot's under wraps. There's no idea who's going to be playing or what form it's going to take. So it's absolutely fine. But I really hope the loudmouth idiot persona is what he brings to it. Same with Jason Momoa and his flaky charisma. He could be a douchebag, but somehow isn't type role that he normally plays. Exactly, yes. Video game adaptations seem to have broken the curse that never existed of being terrible, so who knows? We'll find out. Anyway, let's move on. Taika Waititi has found his next project to direct. Sources tell Deadline that the Jojo Rabbit Oscar winner, because we need to be reminded of that, is in negotiations to direct Clara and the Sun, based on Kazuo Ishiguro's New York Times bestselling novel. The project is in development, with Davy Waller penning the original draft of the screenplay. The novel follows Clara, a robot girl created to prevent teenagers from becoming lonely. This is a story of how she tries to save a family of humans she lives with from heartbreak. The role is certain to become one of the more sought-after parts for actresses in their 20s given the awards pedigree Ishiguro adaptations have garnered. The problem with Taika Waititi films is that they tend to be Taika Waititi films. Exactly. So that automatically makes you feel a little bit concerned because he might just go full Waititi, which we learn from Thor and Love and Thunder is not a good idea. Yeah. And also the fact is that the general tone of Ishiguro's novels is one of, sort of introspection and existential serenity, which are really not words that you associate with Taika Waititi movies. Definitely not. And also the thing about basically being awards bait. Okay, so the other major adaptations were that cloning story with Andrew Garfield and Carrie Mulligan and Keira Knightley. Can't remember the name of the movie. That and also the 90s costume drama Remains of the Day, which did win a ton of awards, but that was more down to it being a Merchant Ivory movie rather than an adaptation of this particular author. So that just seems like just a bit of a meaningless statement that really annoyed me. It seems like it's something that should be very thoughtful, but if Taika Waititi makes it wacky... Then he just runs the very real risk of just obliterating what the story tries to be. Yeah. The film you're thinking of is Never Let Me Go. That's the one, yes. I just looked at it. I didn't just remember that. I figured as much. I remember I read the novel of that at uni, but I've never actually seen the film. Maybe I should watch it. That's quite good. Out in 2010. Very young Andrew Garfield. Indeed. Blech. Whatever. We'll see how this pans out, but don't go full YT, please. Rein yourself in. Would not be appropriate. Next up, a Babylon 5 animated movie is in the works from original series creator J. Michael Straczynski. It's coming from Warner Brothers Animation and WB Home Entertainment. Straczynski announced via Twitter, Classic B5, rock is heartfelt non-stop, a ton of fun through time and space, and a love letter to the fans. It's set in the original continuity, even though the reboot is still potentially in the works, but probably not at the CW <laughs> anymore. This is happening, and I have zero interest in it because I wasn't into Babylon 5. But if you're a fan of Babylon 5 and you're getting this, then great. Well done. It sounds great for you. I am sceptical as to how well this can actually work. I did actually quite enjoy Babylon 5. I came to it years after it had finished. It's actually after a friend of mine just wouldn't shut up about it. I thought, you know what, I'll just freaking watch it so I can talk to you about this. And actually it turned out to be quite good. It was quite unusual at the time, specifically the mid-90s, and that it had pretty much an entirely arc-driven story, where the whole series was planned out over its five seasons as one big plot. Was it not planned as four seasons and they ended up getting an extra one? It wasn't quite that. It was meant to be five. 
But then Tunisky was told that he wasn't going to get a season 5. So he then rushed to wrap up the main story arts in season 4. And then once that had been completed, he was told, OK, now you are going to get season 5. We've changed your mind. <laughs> so he had basically 10 episodes of plot to fill 22 episodes of TV, which is why season 5 is generally recognised as one of the weaker ones. Anyway, the point of all this is that the whole thing is one big story, so any addition to that from a new film would be completely surplus to it and not really add anything to it. And there is also the factor that a disproportionately high number of actors who starred in it have since passed away. Yeah, so there could be some sound alikes, possibly. Yeah, I imagine that's one of the reasons why it's going to be animated. Along with the fact that the actors who still remain are like 25 years older now. Plus there's also the notion of it having to be animated because it would be cheaper to produce and how impenetrable it will be. That didn't occur to me, but it actually does make sense, yeah. Because for me, I'm not interested. I haven't seen Babylon 5 and I'm not going to start with some connected animated film set 25 years after the fact. Oh no, I imagine very much this film will not be aimed at newcomers. If you're not familiar with the series, then who the characters are and what's going on will likely mean nothing to you. As I understand it, in the last episode of the show, they blow up the station, don't they? Yes. So that's a problem. It was being blown up because it was jumping to the future and the station had been decommissioned. It was included just to give it a sense of true finality. Okay, and then there was a spin-off crusade that lasted one season? Yes, which was not terrible but also not very interesting also that spin-off movie was a continuation of one of the actual movies that got made in the 90s and then there was another movie which was created as a pilot for another spin-off that didn't actually go anywhere it's very intricate which makes this film even more impenetrable yeah it can seem a bit of a mess if you're not familiar with it because basically everything is connected to everything else that goes on yeah good for fans though i'm happy when fans get stuff that they like but beware it might be like picard season three yes anyway Let's move on to something else. Here's another hot package set to hit the can market this month. Oh, great. Sebastian Lelio has set Voyagers as his next film, with Andrew Garfield attached to play astronomer Carl Sagan and Daisy Edgar-Jones attached to play Cosmos filmmaker Anne Druyan. The film is set in 1977 as NASA prepared to launch humanity's first interstellar probes, and a team led by Sagan set out to create a message to accompany them, the golden record. But what starts out as a race against the clock mission becomes an epic, unexpected love story between Sagan and his collaborator, Druyan. Druyan has been paired with screenwriters Lelio and Jessica Goldberg, who wrote the original screenplay based on interviews with Druyan and many others who worked on the Golden Record project. That sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, that's how I think so. I've always thought Carl Sagan is a really interesting individual. I've read a couple of his books, and he is an exceptionally intelligent man who is able to portray very complicated topics in ways that people unfamiliar with them can understand. Atheists worshipping him are pricks though, aren't they? Yeah. Especially when he himself was of the belief that there isn't any real reason why science and religion can't coexist peacefully. Yeah, but I've been in conversations with a lot of staunch atheists, and staunch is used in the very deliberate (laughs) term in reference to atheists. Well, I suppose I would consider myself an atheist, although I would like to think there's something beyond this mortal coil that we exist on because that's just comforting to think that when you're gone that isn't it yeah absolutely but it's one thing to not believe in any particular theocratic doctrine but it's quite another to make that your whole personality yeah i'm so atheist i don't think religion should exist yeah and quoting carl sagan what are you on about just let people be one thing i'd say is andrew garfield looks nothing like carl sagan that is true. Absolutely nothing like him. I imagine the hair and makeup people are going to be having fun trying to fix that. Oh, that should be fun, yeah. Because at least with Jonathan Larson, he had a passing resemblance. 
Yes. They still don't look an awful lot alike, but you can at least see something there. But with Carl Sagan, it's nothing alike. But it's Andrew Garfield, so cool. As we mentioned earlier. Carl Sagan's now a young, handsome Andrew Garfield. <laughs> that's who he's going to be in people's minds. Oh, that's nice. Let's move on. Henry Cavill, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Isa Gonzalez to reunite with Guy Ritchie for his next movie. Plot details and title are being kept largely, in brackets, under wraps. <laughs> we hear the story, which is said to be laced with Ritchie's trademark humour, will revolve around two extraction specialists who must plan an escape for a high-level female negotiator. The movie will see Richie reteam with Cavill, Gyllenhaal and Gonzalez after recent collaborations. Could be interesting. I didn't watch The Covenant, which was his last film, because it looks like generic Middle East action stuff. I didn't actually see it. I had to waver between how much I actually like Guy Ritchie. Sometimes I quite enjoy his stuff, and sometimes it really annoys me. So my reaction to anything he's involved in can change one day to the next. Yeah, that's fair. I like the cast, so that's something. Yeah, because there are interesting people who have done interesting things. Yeah, moving on. This one's quite exciting. Tom Hiddleston and Mark Hamill are set to star in Stephen King adaptation The Life of Chuck. Based on the short story from King's 2020 anthology If It Bleeds, The Life of Chuck is three separate stories linked to tell the biography of Charles Krantz in reverse, beginning with his death from a brain tumor at 39 and ending with his childhood in a supposedly haunted house. Hiddleston will play the title character, and Hamill joining for the role of Albie, whoever that is. It's fairly accepted wisdom that adaptations of Stephen King's stories are very hit and miss. Yes. And the ones based on supernatural horror stories, even more so. Because some of the better films based on his works are ones that aren't horror movies at all. Things like The Shawshank Redemption or The Green Mile, generally accepted to be rather good movies. Yeah. The death-to-birth structure sounds quite interesting, conceptually. Yeah, it wasn't an interesting one, certainly. And also the fact that it's Mike Flanagan doing it is quite encouraging. Yeah, everybody loves him, don't they? Yeah, because he has done a lot of good stuff, including a previous adaptation of a King book, Gerald's Game. I did see that one. Which, for a film based on a book where so much of the narrative takes place inside its protagonist's head, I think did a fantastic job of bringing it to the screen. I was expecting it to, to go really, really badly, but I think it actually worked out quite well. Yeah, that's the one where Carlo... Trugino is attached to a bed for most of it, isn't it? That's the one, yeah. And Bruce Greenwood plays a corpse for most of it. <laughs> yes. And he also did Ouija, Origin of Evil, which was a actually pretty good prequel to a very mediocre film, which I think is quite an achievement. So this could be really good then. It's interesting to see Mark Hamill at this stage of life doing something that isn't either the Joker or Star Wars. Yeah, but perhaps that's exactly why. Because it's something different. Yeah, because I do think he could demonstrate himself to be a really good actor, and I think in those roles, he doesn't quite get that recognition as such. Everybody accepts him as being good in those roles, but you could see him be good in other roles. Exactly. Just because he's done a few very famous and well-received things doesn't mean that's all he can do. Yeah. The next thing we've got is another Stephen King adaptation. Theo James has been set to lead the horror movie The Monkey, based on a short story by Stephen King. James Wan is producing as well. The supernatural story has been adapted for the screen by genre specialist Osgood Perkins, who will also direct... In The Monkey, when twin brothers Hal and Bill discover their father's old monkey toy in the attic, a series of gruesome deaths starts occurring all around them. The brothers decide to throw the monkey away and move on with their lives, growing apart over the years. But when the mysterious deaths begin again, the brothers must reunite to find a way to destroy the monkey for good before it takes the lives of everyone close to them. Additional casting is underway. I suspect this one is more likely to be part of of that whole hit-and-miss cycle of King adaptations. The monkey toy being this source of horror reminds me of, I think it was a Simpsons joke, it might have been Family Guy, one of the two, 
where he's pitching a book and he's talking about Haunted Lamp. And the publisher's just like, yeah, whatever. When are you going to get it to us? You're not even trying anymore, are you? <laughs> I think that was Family Guy. I was looking around the agent's desk and he's like, how about a haunted stapler? Yeah. <laughs> All right, just hand it in. Fine. We'll make it. Though that said, those symbol clanging monkey things are legitimately one of the most traumatising toys ever created. Yeah, look at Toy Story 3. Look what they did. They are just horrific. I'm just getting the feeling that this is going to feel very, very 80s as a horror movie. Which may not be a bad thing. Uh, oh, absolutely, because there was some great stuff in the 80s. There was some dire stuff in the 80s as well. And there was some stuff that was both dire and great at the same time, somehow. Theo James is pretty decent. I tend to like him when I see him in things. He's another one of those actors that tends to crop up in really random places that you don't expect him to. I enjoyed him in the adaptation of The Time Traveller's Wife that unfortunately didn't get out of its first season. I've never actually watched that. It's pretty good. Rose Leslie was the other character. That would have been good. Well, it's there, but it doesn't go beyond the first season, so maybe there's no point in watching it. As can often be the case, sadly. Yeah. Anyway, move on. Hanway Films has boarded The One, an erotic thriller starring Melissa Barrera and Nicholas Holt. The project comes from writer-director Kevin Armento and Jackie Bradley, and is billed as a nightmarish horror about the romantic and psychological warfare waged by our beloved popular entertainment and also begs the question, are we, the viewers, complicit? Barrera leads the cast, opposite Holt. Barrera plays Taylor, whose last-ditch effort to find love by becoming a contestant on a reality show begins to feel terrifyingly real as she becomes a finalist. Amidst an opulent beachfront setting, fairy tale dates and champagne, pursuit turns into obsession and rivalry turns into treachery as reality itself burns. So it sounds like a really twisted version of The Bachelorette. That was my take, certainly. No, The Bachelor is the one where it's multiple women competing for one man, isn't it? Yes. Now, having never watched any of these, I'm just getting... But I think that's the way, right? So it is The Bachelor that she'll be on then. Sounds really cool because I hate stuff like this, as in, <laughs> in real life. So yeah. anything that lampoons it would be interesting. I can't remember what it was, but recently there was something that was poking fun at reality TV, but it wasn't doing it in a malicious way it wasn't saying that anybody who watches this is stupid it's just us having fun with the concept but i wish i could remember what it was but this sounds like it might just be very unambiguously condemning the whole notion of its existence in the first place yeah or it might be saying something like the stuff that happens in this film might as well be these tv shows because people will watch it anyway yeah i am i'm also faintly intrigued by the a notion of referring to it as an erotic horror movie which it's kind of thing that makes you think of sleazy DTV movies in the 80s that you buy on VHS from some dodgy guy in a raincoat in a back alley. <laughs> or the kind of nonsense that you could see on Late Night Channel 5 in the 90s. I was interested in the idea of them just out and out calling it an erotic thriller when it stars Melissa Barrera and Nicholas Holt, because it suggests it's more high profile than your standard erotic thriller would be. You don't get a lot of those now. Exactly. And also it suggests something far more sexual than the rest of the synopsis actually implies. Yeah, interesting. Even though I've already said I'm not keen on Nicholas Holt necessarily, I really like Melissa Barrera. I think she's really good in the Scream movies that she's in. Oh, hell yeah. She's about to become a hot property for sure, and this will be another thing that she's in. It's ending up as next year's Jenna Ortega. (laughs) Speaking of Jenna Ortega, she's another person on the rise, but she's going to be in Beetlejuice 2, which we already knew ages ago, but Monica Bellucci has joined Beetlejuice 2 along with Jenna Ortega and Michael Keaton. Plot details have been kept in the coffin. It is known that Bellucci will play Beetlejuice's wife. Yeah, which is an interesting decision. So she'll come out in the same clothes kind of thing. She'll look like Beetlejuice. Either that, or she will be incredibly 
incredibly glamorous to provide this massive contrast between the two of them. I'm not sure we'd need another Beetlejuice movie at this stage. Again, yeah. Sounds like they're screaming it, though, in a way, as in Jenna Ortega's in it, for one thing. <laughs> but it's the idea of, we're going to do this thing, here's younger people to take it forward kind of thing. While also still having Winona Ryder. If like those couple of photos are anything to go by, it looks exactly the same in this movie as she did in the original one. And Michael Keaton, an ageing Michael Keaton. He's revisiting the hits. He's probably having a great time doing this. I imagine so. Batman. We'll see how that turns out. Well, certainly in that Flash trailer, he looked like he was the only one having any fun. Except when he made to say the line. Say the line, Keaton. Say it. <laughs> don't want to say it. Say it, don't get paid. We'll just dub it in anyway, so you might as well say it. Moving on, we talked about the development of the Radio Silence-produced Universal Monster thriller. I've got some more casting for it now. Dan Stevens has been added to the cast. Melissa Barrera was added to the cast before. Plot details are being kept under wraps. Mm-hmm. So cross that off your bingo card. And this one, uh, I missed... They've also added Angus Cloud, Catherine Newton, and Will Catlett. So Catherine Newton will be in it too. Yeah, which is generally a good thing because she is fantastic. Kevin Durand will be there too. So it's the screen producers doing a universal monster thriller. Is that something that interests you particularly as a fan of all this stuff? I think it sounds like a great idea. It does actually, yeah. Interestingly, when I was going over this stuff last night and making some notes and ideas and things, it did actually occur to me that Dan Stevens would make a fantastic Victor Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the fact that they've mentioned that Kevin Durand is in this, there's a possibility that he would be the monster. Oh yeah, I could totally see that. Sounds like an interesting prospect. I wonder if that's the restarting of the dark universe again. Yeah, well, can be much worse than The Mummy. Yeah, that's true. Dracula Told was fine. That was kind of supposed to be the start of it. Until they said, no, 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 that was never going to be the start of it. It was going to be retrofitted at the start of it until the whole thing died on its arse, so then they pretended it wasn't. So we'll watch this with great interest, see who else turns up in it, see what the development of it looks like. But what a cast so far, for sure. Some good names in there. Yes, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm always happy when horror movies get a high-profile release. So I'm definitely looking forward to this. And always happy whenever Catherine Newton gets work. True. (laughs) Okay, moving on. Clive Owen has joined Daisy Ridley in the London set action thriller Cleaner. Directed by Casino Royale, Helmer, Martin Campbell, the project follows a group of activists who ambush an energy company's annual meeting at the Shard. Jesus. This is set in London. And takes 300 people hostage. However, the cause is hijacked by an extremist within the group who's ready to kill in order to send a message. It takes the efforts of Joey Locke, a former soldier who's now a window cleaner, played by Daisy Ridley, to save the hostages while ensuring the corporation is held to account. I'm sorry, but do you believe... Daisy Ridley as a former soldier turned window cleaner. I do not. And that is why this movie is going to be magnificent. It is going to be so incredibly stupid that it will be incredible fun. Could be. Very topical, isn't it? And I'm also assuming that the title is meant to have a double meaning in that cleaner is also sometimes used as a euphemism for an assassin. Yeah. Plus energy. Oh, that too, yeah. That actually didn't occur to me. Wow, layered. Mm. Former soldier turned window cleaner, Daisy Ridley. (laughs) Also, on topic of ridiculous sentences you thought you'd never read. I know. That's something I didn't actually read too far into before I read it, and I'm so glad I didn't know ahead of time, because that reaction filled me with joy. It's going to be great. It's going to feel like a late 90s action movie when the basic trend of them was essentially derivations of Die Hard. Yeah, Die Hard, but that genre of films. Die Hard on a boat. Die Hard on a plane. Yeah, and Martin Campbell directing, so it will probably be very well done. Very competent. Very likely. Moving on. Melanie Linsky, Carl Urban, Thomas and Mackenzie, Jermaine Clement, team for Andrew Nichols, I Object. 
or eye object. I think that's the second way is the right way to say it. That was how I read it, certainly. Centres around 10-year-old Tom, who's grieving the loss of his father and unable to relate to the people in his life, takes refuge in the everyday objects around him. Pop can lids, suitcases and untold numbers of everyday objects reveal their true faces and speak to Tom, helping him on his healing journey. Nicold will direct the project, marking his second film in The Marsh, whatever that is, along with Lord of War sequel Lords of War. It's a unique and a heartwarming story about the power of imagination and the importance of finding hope in the darkest of times, said Nat McCormick, worldwide sales and distribution president at The Exchange. By exploring big topics like grief and mental health from a child's perspective, this film is sure to resonate with audiences of all ages. It kind of sounds like that Steve Carell film, Welcome to Marwin, a little bit. Because that's about a guy who lost himself in an imaginary world. Well, that was based on a real guy, I think. Yeah, definitely. The movie actually most made me think of was Toy Story. That too, yeah. But instead of being a simple kids movie, it's a study of psychological grief. And the toys don't actually come to life. That's who, yeah. But really good cast. So, cool. Moving on to our penultimate item. The third and final season of Final Space is not the end of Gary Goodspeed's Galactic Adventures. Series creator Olin Rogers revealed he will finish the Conan O'Brien produced adult animated series in graphic novel form. It's going to be called Final Space, the final chapter. The fan favourite series, which aired 36 episodes across three seasons, aired on TBS and Adult Swim, was cancelled ahead of the Warner Media and Discovery merging to form Warner Brothers Discovery. It was also removed from streaming services. Olin Rogers said, Five years of my life, three seasons of TV, blood, sweat and tears became a tax write-off for the network who owns Final Space. So, down with those guys. For sure. Absolutely. I really enjoyed Final Space. I can't remember how I even first came across it, but I just remember thinking it was random things like, oh, this sounds interesting, I'll give it a go. And if I'm being honest, it took me a little while to get into it, because at the beginning of the series, the protagonist, Gary, he's just a little bit too reminiscent of Zap Brannigan from Futurama. Because <laughs> he's just really self-absorbed and obnoxious and just thinks he's an absolutely magnificent example of human being. When in actuality, he's anything but. But as it goes on, the scope of it just keeps on increasing in scale to the point that the cliffhanger that the third season ends on was not just well a thing, but basically involving a cosmic level threat to the entire universe. Of course. And it's a series that started off as basically a two-hander between an annoying guy and an even more annoying robot as the sole occupants of this prison ship. And it's also not really any one thing, because it jumps between comedy and drama and tragedy constantly but the focus on one is, is never to, to the detriment of another it can still come back to being other, other things even after it's been something else in the interim I was actually gutted when it got cancelled partly because I thought that season 3 was going to be the big finale though in retrospect I probably should have realised that because there was still far too much plot to wrap up in 22 minutes even though it's not getting the ending that I would have liked I'm glad it's still getting an ending in some form so are you going to pre-order one of the 10,000 hard copies of the graphic novel set to release in 2024 priced at 125 bucks i'm having difficulty justifying it <laughs> so you'll buy the trade paperback that inevitably releases in its wake i would hope that's what's going to happen well i'm glad you're getting a conclusion of that in some form or another see how it translates to the written medium rather than the animated medium i was thinking it could work fairly well because the characters all do have quite distinctive ways of speaking so even if just translated to written text then you should still be able to hear how they speak. I feel like it's one of those things that they could have at least kick-started a motion comic with the actors doing the voices. 
But I guess Warner Brothers wouldn't release the thing they have no intention of doing anything with. Also, that was actually one of the stipulations that Owen Rogers had to agree to in order to make this comic in the first place, was that he actually couldn't do any crowdfunding, and also couldn't do anything that involved a vocal performance. Well, that sounds great. Here's the thing we're never going to pick up again, we're never going to do a single thing with, but we're not going to let you do anything interesting with it. Yeah, because even if this is your thing, we own it, but we decided we don't want it anymore, so it's now just become a blood sacrifice to our bottom line. Yeah, we're going to stick it on a shelf and forget it exists. Can I have it back? No. It's like what we were saying earlier, which I've said more times in this podcast than I think I ever have in my life, about now when things are cancelled, they just cease to exist in any form. That's not how entertainment media should work. It shouldn't be something that if you don't experience it within a particular time frame, then you never will. Yeah, especially in the modern age. Exactly, because there are now so many more ways that things can be preserved permanently, yet companies are willfully destroying them so that nobody can ever experience them again. To me, that is the utter antithesis of everything that work like this should be, and it absolutely infuriates me. And I pointedly avoided swearing at that point. I hope you're very proud of me. I am very proud, yeah. And I totally get where you're coming from, seeing something you like just discarded in this way but at least this is a happy ending in a way as in it gets something exactly as opposed to just disappearing forever the way that Owen Rogers put it was that it might not be the ending he wanted but it's the one that's real yeah it's the one he's getting he's getting one as opposed to not as a lot of people can attest to legends showrunners and actors for example that's gonna annoy you for a long time (laughs) the pain will never heal okay our last item Kiss frontman Gene Simmons and Gary Hamilton chairman of Arclight Films have launched Simmons slash Hamilton Prods. Well, a lot of thought went into that name. To develop, finance, and produce feature films. The standalone banner will produce 25 movies over an initial five-year period with a focus on action, thriller, and genre titles with global franchise potential. The first film greenlit under this company is Deep Water, a survival thriller directed by Rennie Harlan, who did Die Hard 2 and Cliffhanger. Scheduled to go into production later this year, the film tells the tale of an eclectic group of international passengers whose plane en route from Los Angeles to Shanghai is forced to make an emergency landing in shark-infested waters. The terrified group is forced to work together and overcome their differences if they hope to escape their sinking plane and the frenzy of sharks drawn to the wreckage. Yes, and following on from that description, I think it's also worth bringing up that Rennie Harlan also directed Deep Blue Sea. Yes, he did. Which is one of my most favourite shark movies ever for reasons that do not make sense. Have you seen the Deep Blue Sea sequels, though? I have. They are both terrible. Oh god, they are, yeah. I watched the second one after I discovered that there was going to be a third one, and then thought, they made a second one? They are not good films in any justifiable sense of the word. The second one, I remember a line from it where one of the characters says, they're playing as like pieces of chess on a chessboard. <laughs> it's a line of dialogue that actually existed in the film. That somebody got paid to write. And then I remember the repeated shot of the baby sharks spilling through a hole in the wall or something like that, but they just changed the lighting colour mm-hmm. every time they used it, so it looked like it was different. All that nonsense. The first one has one of the best Samuel L. Jackson usages in film history, though. It absolutely does. He gives that rousing speech about, we're going to survive this, and then is immediately eaten. It's a genuine shock. You don't expect it. Yeah. And then you have that moment, is it Saffron Burrows? Strips down her underwear and actually yeah, she doesn't yeah. get electrocuted. Yeah, that's gratuitous. Yeah. Ice Cube's a chef. No, it wasn't Ice Cube, it was uh, LL Cool J. LL Cool J, oh yeah. Ice Cube was also in action films around that time, so I got confused. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, that was Butter Rounds. Sorry, I was thinking of Halloween Resurrection. <laughs> Tom Jane with blonde hair. Yep. 
Oh God, what a movie. It's pretty good, actually. Still on Skarsgård being there. <laughs> the director had something to say. He said, I've had my greatest success when working with planes or sharks. Getting to combine those two of my favourite thriller elements in a character-driven action adventure is a dream come true. I can't wait to take the audience on the scariest plane ride of their lives. Gene and Gary, both are my old friends, and I'm excited to rock and roll through the friendly skies with them. It sounds crazy that this has come into existence. It does, but at the same time, I love the fact that something like this can still exist. <laughs> and people can make it exist purely because they want it to exist. Yeah, I think it sounds really fun. I'll give it a watch when it comes out. I wonder if Gene Simmons will be in it. If he does, I imagine it'll just be a cameo. He'll be the pilot that gets killed or something. Yeah. Anyway, that's it. That's our last item. Wow, that was a list of things. Jesus. It always seems to be a massive list whenever my turn rolls around. Yeah. It must be this can stuff. A lot of stuff comes out of can because they're trying to get financing. I noticed that, yeah. But anyway, that was it. That was our chat about May 2023, all the stuff that happened there. Andrew, thank you for joining on this very long journey of trailers and news and all that good stuff. It was a bit of an endurance trial and had a couple of scary moments that I was thankfully able to hide from. But aside from that, it's been as much of a pleasure as it always is. A transforming Aaron and a Hunger Games scenario involving Cat. We've been through some stuff. We've been on a journey and we've come back changed. The True News Podcast was the friends we made along the way. I'd like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music and if you like what you heard, please do subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcast, there'll be a subscribe button. Please do press it. And usually on those apps, there is the option to rate normally in the form of a star. So, Andrew... What number of stars should people give us? The number signified in Roman numerals by the letter V. And in case you look horrified, that is a five. Or five, the number of hours this podcast is, possibly. <laughs> and you can leave us a comment too. If you want to reach out to us about anything we discussed here or anything really, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or you can leave us a comment under neilbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod. Mm-hmm.